Hi, welcome to the mop-up for June 6, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 78 degrees and sunny. On today's show, Fred Hayes from Apollo 13. Not the movie Apollo 13, the Apollo 13. He's here in about an hour, so I'll say this before he gets here. This is huge for me. It was a birthday present given to me by one of the people who puts the show together, and I feel like I'm uh, 10 years old again. For, for me to meet Fred Hayes from Apollo 13, it's for me, it's like meeting a, a Marvel superhero. Apollo astronauts are physical and intellectual specimens they're superhuman. There's a paucity of Ivy Leaguers who ended up as Apollo astronauts. I don't think any of them went to uh, an elite private university. I know Fred Hayes eventually went to Harvard after he retired from NASA, but none of the Ivies produced men like Fred Hayes. He'll be joining us along with Bill Moore, to discuss their new book, Never Panic Early. Go to smithsonianbooks.com and buy the book, Never Panic Early, right now. Never Panic Early is published by Penguin Random House. I read it last night. It's a quick read, too quick if you ask me. Astronaut Fred Hayes is only one of 24 men to fly to the moon. He didn't get to land on the moon. He circled the moon, but he was supposed to land on it as the lunar module pilot for Apollo 13. Apollo 13 suddenly began to die. Three men were on board. Everything is on the line. And NASA flight director Gene Kranz's world is crumbling. He famously says, and I play it all the time on this show, I will say it myself. He says... Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. Those are great words. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. And then, most importantly, he asked, What do we have on the spacecraft that's good? Now, maybe that's a line from the movie, or maybe he actually said that. But to me, for me, that is the core lesson from Apollo 13. When everything was falling apart around Gene Kranz, he asks, what do we have on the spacecraft that's good? Gas is venting from the spacecraft. The astronauts are 200,000 miles away from home. They are losing oxygen, water, on, and energy. The command module was dying. So what do we have on the spacecraft that's good? Ground control went to work. The astronauts went to work. They kept cool. They did not panic. And they worked with what they had that was good. And they realized that while the command module was dying, there was still the LEM, the lunar module, LM, the LEM, lunar module. So in order to understand Apollo 13 and my conversation with Fred Hayes, you, you need to know that 
there are three modules on their way to the moon. There's the command module, the command service module, and the lunar module. And I want to explain what these modules are because it's thrown around as though you understand it. If you're young, it's impossible for you to know what these terms mean. And if you're my age, why would you understand it? So the command module, that's where all three astronauts sit during liftoff and on the entire trip to the moon. That's where they sit. And then after the moon landing, they're back. All three of them are back in the command module and they fly home in the command module and they're sitting in that uh, all the way through splashdown. That's the command module. Then there's the command service module. That's where the flight attendants sit. I'm kidding. The, the command service module provides water, energy, oxygen, and storage for the command module. Attached to the command service module is the lunar module. You know, I actually prepared for this. Let me show you. Can you hear me? I think you can, right? You can hear me. Yeah, okay. Yep. So... Uh, on the far right, going from right to left, you will see the command service module. That would be numbers, you know, 12 and 13 here, right? And then at the very tip, overlaying the command service module, you have the command module. That would be 10, number 10, right? And then attached to the command module, uh, you know, where number nine and number eight starts, that's the LEM, the lunar module, right? So the lunar module detaches from the command module and the lunar module with two astronauts on board breaks away and lands on the moon. They walk on the moon, they fill the, the lunar module up with rocks and results of science experiments, and then they use their ascent engine, which is number one, to fire up and back and to dock with the command module again. Then they load up all the rocks and all the experiments and put it back into the command module. They seal up the lunar module and they let it go. It goes, supposedly it goes crashing, I think, to the lunar surface, sur lunar surface, or it orbits the moon. I don't know. We'll ask Fred Hayes about that. So on your way to the moon, this is after all the booster rockets were fired and all the maneuvering, once they start heading towards the moon, this is the setup. And this is the setup that... They had when the oxygen tank exploded, and that would have been, I don't know exactly, I would assume the oxygen tank was number 13, you know, around where 13 is, or number 11, or number 12. The oxygen tanks were in the command service module, and the command service module is there to service the command module. Uh, I don't expect anyone to understand that, but in order to really understand Apollo 13 and what our country 
collectively was up against. It's important to understand that you have the command module, the command service module, and the lunar module. So the command module, that's where all three astronauts sit during liftoff. They're uh, sitting there on the trip to the moon, and then they get uh, then two of them leave to get into the lunar module to fly down to the moon and then fly back up. And then all three of them are together again in the command module on the way home from the moon, including splashdown. So that's the command module. Then there's the command service module. And this is where the problems for Apollo 13 happen. That's uh, where they store energy, water, oxygen, other assorted papers and equipment that's in the command service module attached to the command service module is the lem the lunar module uh, and while three astronauts sat in the command module during the lunar mission when they're on the moon two astronauts sat in the lunar module away from the command module where one pilot was. Those two astronauts who go to the moon crawl into the lunar module and they undock from the command service module and then they descend to the moon. The lunar module has two engines. There is the descent engine that's fired to slow the lunar module's descent towards the moon. You have to remember the moon has its own gravitational pull. Eventually, when you get into lunar orbit, the, the moon starts pulling the LEM towards it. So when the lunar module undocks from the command module, it eventually gets captured by the moon's gravitational pull. And unless you fire descent engines, the lunar module will come crashing down and the astronauts will perish. So NASA provides the lunar module with a descent engine, which the astronauts fire to push the lunar module up away from the moon to counteract the moon trying to pull it down. It is the responsibility of the commander of the lunar module to apply just the right amount of push upwards to counteract the moon's gravitational pull downwards in order to achieve a soft landing. This was done 52, 54 years ago. Unbelievable that they were able to do this. It's unbelievable. So the lunar module also has an ascent engine. After the astronauts land and they walk on the moon, they crawl back into the lunar module with all their rocks and their experiments, and they fire the ascent engine, which is powerful enough to help the lunar module escape the moon's gravitational pull so that the lunar module can then get reunited with the command module, which has been circling around the moon, waiting to dock with the lunar module. It's unbelievable that they were able to come up with this. To review, because I really want you to understand what was going on during the Apollo 13 crisis. The lunar module is the tiny capsule that two astronauts were supposed to sit in. They were supposed to crawl into the lunar module, seal it shut, and then undock from the command module and descend to the moon. James Lovell and Fred Hayes, Fred will be our guest tonight, 
They were scheduled to be in the lunar module while Jack Swigert stayed in the command module, circling the moon, waiting for the lunar exploration to finish. Then the LEM would fire its ascent rockets to reunite with the command module. Once the LEM docked with the command module, the astronauts would move all the rocks out of the lunar module into the command module, and then they would crawl back into the command module, seal everything shut. They would unlatch the LEM, and it would float freely into space, eventually crashing on to the lunar surface. Uh, uh, lunar surface. I think that the skin on the LEM was like equivalent to three sheets of aluminum foil. I mean, you could literally... If poke, poke it, poke a hole through it with a pen. On their way to the moon, Apollo 13 experienced an explosion inside the command service module. An oxygen tank blew. Apollo 13 was dying. Ground control and the Apollo 13 astronauts had to quickly come up with a plan for survival. What they came up with was shut the command module down temporarily. They would still need it for reentry and splash down. They were to crawl into the lunar module, put three men into a lunar module. It's only equipped to handle two men. Put three men inside the lunar module while it was still attached to the command module and use up all the provisions inside of the lunar module. In other words, use the lunar module as the command service module because the command service mo module was practically destroyed. So they were going to use all the electricity, oxygen, water inside the lunar module that would have been used on the moon. They weren't going to the moon anymore. So they decided to try to live off the lunar module, treat the lunar module as if it were the command service module. I hope you understand that. Uh, I, I really want to make it as simple as possible for everyone because it's just genius that they were able to not only figure out how to land on the moon, but also how to, how to survive a broken command service module. You have the command module, then you have the command service module, and the command service module has all the food, energy, electricity, water, and oxygen, but that's just for the command module. The lunar module, supposed to go to the moon, it was never going to rely on the command service module because the command service module was attached to the command module circling the moon. The, the LEM had to be able to serve itself. It, it, the LEM, the lunar module, had to have its own ability to generate water, oxygen, and energy. Now, the lunar module was designed to keep two men alive for 45 hours. 45 hours because the entire trip to the moon and back was 45 hours. 45 hours away from the command module. But now, now that the command service module had been destroyed, the astronauts and ground control had to figure out how to stretch 40 hours worth of oxygen, electricity, and water into 90 hours. To make matters worse, tonight's guest, Fred Hayes, 
developed a urinary tract infection. The three astronauts crawled into the lunar module and used it as a temporary life raft. The three astronauts huddled in the LEM and they shut down the command module. The crew reduced their water consumption to six ounces per day. By the time they landed together, they lost a combined total of 31 pounds. So they're in the LEM and they're approaching re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. That's when the three men crawl out of the lunar module into the command module. They power the command module back up, hoping that it's... Uh, electricity still works and hasn't been destroyed by moisture and humidity and they get the command module up and running they get the command service module running a little and they seal up the port portal between the lunar module and the command module they seal it shut they disconnect the lunar module from the command module and say goodbye to it. It it floats out into space somewhere. I don't know where it went. I've heard that it actually was still being pulled by the moon. So it could be either orbiting the moon or maybe it crashed into the moon. And then they discarded the command service module. They took photographs of the command service module and saw that one side of it had been completely blown apart. They said goodbye to the command service module. And then it was just the three astronauts in the tiny command module on their way back, uh, a tiny capsule, and everybody hoped their heat shield had not been destroyed. And they fired their re-entry rockets and landed safely back on planet Earth. There's a bit of a debate among Apollo nerds, and that is, was Neil Armstrong's landing on the moon NASA's finest moment, or was Apollo 13 NASA's finest moment? I don't know, but personally, I draw most of my inspiration in life uh, from Apollo 13 because Apollo 11 was absolute perfection. Everything went right within reason, about uh, a couple hundred feet above the lunar surface, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin realized everyone got the math wrong and they were about to overshoot the landing site and crash into a pile of boulders and die. So Armstrong turned off autopilot and steered the lunar module to a softer, impromptu landing site. Uh, So that's... uh, pretty inspirational. But for me, Apollo 13 reminds, should remind us that the measure of a human is how they hold up in a time of crisis, not when things are going magnificent. Apollo 13 serves as a lesson as to what America can do when we have a singular purpose. Our government, and that was our government, our government can do anything when it puts its mind to it. Why were we able to pull off something like this back then? And can we do it again? Why were we able to create the moonshot and use that as the example for all other projects? 
They talk about a, a cancer moonshot, a poverty moonshot. But only the moonshot was the moonshot. Why were we able to pull something like this off back then? Well, a lot of people mistakenly believe it was all about beating the Russians to the moon. I don't happen to think that's true. I don't think that's what incentivized us to uh, go to the moon. I think that's what sold us the, the spending. I think a lot of Americans wanted to go to the moon because of pride to beat the Russians. But the Russians, they already had beaten us for the most part. They had the first satellite in space, Sputnik. They, uh, Yuri Gagarin was not only the first man in space, he was the first human to orbit uh, uh, planet Earth. The Russians were way ahead of us, way ahead of us in space flight. And then we changed the competition and decided to go to the moon, which they're not quite sure as to how much the Russians really wanted to get to the moon, to, to land men on the moon. We changed the competition. Kennedy changed the competition. And by the mid-60s, I've read that Khrushchev, who was the leader of Russia at the time, he pretty much quit the space race. He, he saw too much trouble on planet Earth, especially in Russia, and he didn't feel like spending his rubles on competing with America. So... They were still in the game, but we weren't really competing with the Russians. We wanted to go to the moon. And how did we do it? Why did we do it? Well, NASA, not necessarily, not really part of the Pentagon, but it was made up of men and women who had served and were serving in the military. This was... Uh, an effort on behalf of our military and our military industrial complex. Uh, the astronauts, our American astronauts, were sitting on top of a Saturn V rocket. Uh, the Saturn V rocket is what sent men to the moon. That rocket, at the time, could have two types of payload, human beings or a nuclear weapon. And I've always found something uh, beautiful about that, to think that this one Saturn V rocket could, with the right payload, destroy the world as we know it, or with different payload, human beings, it could allow us to know other worlds. So Gene Krantz, who was the flight director, uh, when Apollo 13 is dying, he looks around and says, what do we have in the way that's good? And to me, that's kind of what NASA is all about. With all the, the garbage in this world, and Vietnam was raging in 1970 when Apollo 13 took off, NASA affords us the opportunity to look around and say, what do we have in the way that's good? We have the Saturn V rockets that were designed to blow up cities. But what do we have in the way that's good? Well, these rockets can also take us to the moon. The Saturn V rocket is everything that's great about humanity and everything that's evil. 
It all depends on who's pressing the launch button. The Saturn V rocket, to me, is humanity in all its complexities. What's important to remember is that the Apollo program was a public-private partnership. It was our government working with private corporations. It was NASA working with North American Aviation, Grumman, Rocketdyne, General Motors, IBM, Douglas Aircraft, and even General Motors. That was and is our military-industrial complex, and now we're watching as NASA takes a backseat to Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. It's NASA that still awards the contracts, but space travel now has been turned over to the private sector. They get all the credit because it's now been commercialized. And these launches look more like scenes out of Capricorn One than actual real-life moonshots that I grew up enjoying. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are not just leading our space effort. They, too, are part of our military-industrial complex. They provide rockets, satellites, cloud computing for the Pentagon. So why, why are we letting Musk and Bezos lead the effort to go back to the moon? Do you trust Elon Musk? and Jeff Bezos to land astronauts safely on the moon. Elon Musk can't even come up with a self-driving car that doesn't kill people. Jeff Bezos can't deliver a bottle of water to my house without exploiting his workers. What happens if there's an Apollo 13 moment with Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk at the helm. Do you think they're going to decide to scrap a multi-billion dollar effort and focus all their energy on saving three lives? Do you? I don't. Well, why does somebody like Jeff Bezos want to go to the moon? Why does Musk want to go to the moon? Because they know that if things stay in motion, it's Newtonian, and the way things are heading without an equal and opposite force to stop it, the Earth is going to become uninhabitable, uninhabitable pretty soon. And instead of prepper bunkers on Earth, they're looking to escape to the moon. We'll talk all about that with my guest, Fred Hayes from Apollo 13. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We have a newsletter that comes out every Friday night, and I ask you to sign up for that. And while you're over at my website, sign up for office hours. We will be back with Fred Hayes from Apollo 13. I'm a porcine gourmand of the art of romance. 
I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. Rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and a push comes to shove, I'm a second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. Suspicious, please pardon me if I'm somewhat repetitious, like a hand in a glove. I'm a pig for love. Yeah, I'm a pig for love. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. He's a pig for love, and Professor Mike Steinel will be joining us. A little later on in the show, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, sign up for my newsletter. And if you would like to join us in our virtual studio audience right now, if you're watching us on our YouTube channel, we live stream the podcast as we're recording it on YouTube. And if you're watching us right now on YouTube and you would like to meet Fred Hayes, author of Never Panic, uh, the Apollo 13 astronaut, Fred Hayes is about to join us. Go to my website right now, hit pay-per-view. It doesn't cost you anything. It's we're just using the pay-per-view menu. Hit pay-per-view. It'll take you right into our Zoom room and you can participate in the show and ask Fred Hayes from Apollo 13 uh, some questions. This is uh, one of, this is pretty cool. Uh, Fred Hayes, author of Never Panic, uh, joining us at the top of the hour. The Congressional Budget Office reports today that individual income tax collections will reach $2.6 trillion this year. $2.6 trillion, that's nearly an 11% uh, 
increase in tax revenue over 2021. And 2.6 trillion of tax revenue constitutes about, I don't know, 12% of our economy. So that's fiscal year, 2022, it ends September 30th, by the way. The income tax is 109 years old, and this is a record. We have never had a level of income coming in from the income tax as we have had in 2022. The government, the federal government, has never received as much in tax revenue as it is receiving right now in 2022. This is with an IRS that is completely understaffed. When you uh, take into account population growth, we have not added, uh, we've had a 40% decline in IRS staff since Reagan took office. When you factor in the increase in American population, we've pretty much had a hiring freeze over at the IRS, which has resulted in something like a 40%, in real terms, 40% decline in staff at the Internal Revenue Service. And can you imagine what our tax revenues would be if we had an internal revenue that was fully staffed and could force the rich to pay their fair share? And What does that teach you about government spending? Well, 2021, the government spent a lot of money, not on the richest 1% on you and me, not enough on you and me, but they spent trillions on you you and me. And what that teaches us is something we already knew. It's what Keynes taught Franklin Roosevelt. When you stimulate the economy, when you pump money into the 99%, you balance the budget. You have to spend money to make money. So, uh, and we learned from Milton Friedman uh, that what when you do what he told Reagan, Bush, and Trump to do, when you only cut taxes for the wealthy and pay for it by cutting government spending, when you think you're paying for it by cutting government spending, when you cut government spending while giving tax cuts to the wealthy, you get record budget deficits. It's basic math. It's been proven over and over and over. And yet they they repeat the lie like it's received wisdom from Lord up above. This is what Stephen Moore from the Club for Growth, this is what the liars in the Republican Party repeat over and over and over again. And it's a lie. Supply side economics, the trickle down theory it is nothing but a lie. When you cut taxes for the rich and try to pay for it by cutting government spending, you rack up record deficits. And what Roosevelt has proven and what Joe Biden has proven When you stimulate the economy, when you pour money into the economy and it goes to the 99%, you balance the budget. Three people were shot to death and 11 wounded in Philadelphia in their entertainment district late Saturday night after an armed gunman began firing into the crowd. There was a shooting near a Tennessee nightclub early Sunday, three dead and 14 wounded. 
according to police. And that's just the tip of the gun iceberg. Two more Russian generals are reported shot to death in fighting along Ukraine's eastern Donbass region over the weekend. I think that brings the number of Russian generals shot during the war. I think it's up to 11 now. I could be wrong. Henry Enrique Tadio, the former chairman of the Proud Boys, they're that right-wing extremist group, uh, he has been charged with seditious conspiracy by federal prosecutors. Federal prosecutors say Henry Enrique Tadio helped arrange the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol in order to prevent President Joe Biden from being certified as president of the United States. Seditious conspiracy. Interesting. Well, January 6th goes prime time this Thursday. They've issued 100 subpoenas, conducted 1,000 interviews, and looked into over 100,000 documents. And we're going to see the results starting Thursday night in prime time when the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol begins their prime time hearings in an attempt to set the record straight. Fred Hayes joins us from Apollo 13, not the movie Apollo 13, Apollo 13. We'll be back with Fred Hayes, author of Never Panic Early. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of wool light and a little bag of weed. Got to saw bell on novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller. Magic kit So I can do my tricks Got my favorite pillow Which I call Mr. Fluffy Four kinds of allergy pills In case I get stuffy A pound of Epsom salts Cause my ankles get puffy I'm traveling light Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket in case I get a chill I'm traveling late Got my margarita mix And my rust 
tasty old blender A 50 tequila In case I go on a bender My attorney's number In case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light In case I have some visitors For breeze if I'm really stinky A Polaroid in case I get kinky My Jesus bobblehead And my Star Wars bedspread I'm traveling light I got my rabbi costume And my portable dark room My hair plug lotion And my expensive wrinkle cream My Emmy statue For my self-esteem I'm traveling light my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies. Traveling Light. That song is dedicated to Fred Hayes from Apollo 13. That was written by Professor Mike Steinell, who will be joining us uh, later on tonight. And in about 10 minutes, we will be joined by... Fred Hayes, author of the new book, Never Panic Early. He's also uh, written the book with uh, Bill Moore. So we'll be joined by both Fred Hayes and Bill Moore to discuss their new book, Never Panic Early. They will be here in about 10 minutes. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We have a YouTube channel. If you're listening to the show as a podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's a great way to share episodes. And we slice and dice individual segments up and post them on YouTube. For example, the Fred Hayes interview will be sliced and diced and available on YouTube. And that's a great way to share content with like-minded people. If you are watching us live right now on YouTube, we live stream every podcast as we're taping it. I invite you, if you're watching us live on YouTube, to go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the attend a live taping menu, and we'll take you straight into our virtual studio audience. All you need is Zoom. If you have Zoom, come join us in the Zoom room. I will, we will be taking questions from our virtual studio audience. I know everybody wants to talk to Fred Hayes from Apollo 13 and Bill Moore, who wrote Never Panic Early. The two of them wrote the book Never Panic Early. I, I want to be generous. I don't want to hog all their time. So if you have questions at the end of my conversation with 
Fred Hayes, I will take questions from our virtual studio audience. They're coming up in about 10 minutes. I need you to go to smithsonianbooks.com right now and buy Never Panic Early. It's published by Penguin Random House. It is a great read. The only criticism I have is it's a short read. I It left me wanting more. It's a quick, easy read. If you want to learn more, not just about what happened on Apollo 13, but the man, Fred Hayes, where he came from and where he is heading, go pick up Never Panic Early. Buy it over at smithsonianbooks.com or go visit the Smithsonian and their space museum. I'm sure it's on sale over there. Never Panic Early, published by Penguin Random House. This is exciting for me. Uh, astronaut uh, Fred Hayes is only one of 24 men to fly to the moon. He was supposed to land on the moon as the lunar module pilot for Apollo 13. But two days into the mission, and I believe it was April 13th, I think it was, I know it was Apollo 13. I think it was April 13th, 1970, uh, an onboard oxygen tank exploded. So a mission intent on sending the fifth and sixth men ever to walk on the moon suddenly became a mission to bring the men home safely. Listeners to this show are very familiar with Apollo 13. I talk about it all the time because Apollo 13 is a metaphor for life. The venerated priest from the Middle Ages, Thomas A. Kempis, famously wrote, Man proposes, God disposes. John Lennon put it more succinctly when he said, Life is what happens when you're busy making plans. Three astronauts were planning to land on the moon, and then life happened. Staying alive suddenly became the mission. Man proposes, God disposes. A maze of computers, scientists, and layer upon layer of government and private sector bureaucracy rapidly concentrated their collective mind upon one thing and one thing only. How do we keep these three astronauts alive? Block out anything or anyone that isn't mission specific. That's how you bring them home alive. You block out anything or anyone that isn't mission specific. What a metaphor for living our lives. Know what your mission is, then block out anything or anyone that isn't mission specific. It requires tunnel vision. It requires focus. It's how you thrive during crisis. And this country is in crisis. So we have a lot to learn from Fred Hayes, author of Don't, Never, Never Panic Early. <laughs> I said Don't Panic er, uh, uh, Early. Uh, it's Never panic early. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Go to my website right now. Hit attend a live, oh no, I'm sorry, pay-per-view. Hit pay-per-view. 
It'll take you right into our Zoom room and you'll get to meet Fred Hayes from Apollo 13. We will be back with Fred Hayes from Apollo 13 right after this. Walking 13 miles on every shift with not a chair in sight. Lifting 20,000 pounds a day, that don't seem right. Saving plastic bottles to have a place to pee. Injuries in this place are the highest in the industry. Don't believe those TV ads, things ain't what they seem. Don't tell me this sweatshop has become the American dream. We need to stand together. Can't do it on our own. We need to stand together and make our presence known. We need to stand together to get the union done. We need to stand together. What side are you on? One million strong, working two shifts a day. Packing all day long while the cameras are running away. 100,000 trucks tearing up and down the roads. Delivering stuff all over the world in 40 ton loads. When did this sweatshop become the American dream? Don't believe those TV ads, things ain't what they seem. We need to stand together. Can't do it on our own. We need to stand together and make our presence known. We need to stand together and get the union done. We need to stand together. Which side are you on? your mates can't listen to music gotta pack all those crates start to feel like a robot but soon you understand there's more of them than you that's always been the plan do not believe those tv ads things ain't what they seem and don't try to tell me this sweatshop will become the american dream we got to stand together we can't do it on our own 
Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. He'll be joining us a little later on in the program. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and go to my website right now and hit pay-per-view. That way you can get a Zoom link to join us in our virtual studio audience to meet Bill Moore and Fred A's, the authors of Never Panic Early. I, for some reason, I, been, I love the book and I've been calling it Don't Panic Early, but it's Never Panic Early. Let us now go to, I don't know where you are, Bill. Where are you, Bill? Am I here? Yeah, you're here. There I am. <laughs> Hello. Hi, where are you coming from tonight? Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City. Welcome, mm-hmm. Bill Moore. You wrote Thank you. Never Panic Early with Fred Hayes, and you're here first, so I figure we'll get to you, because uh, I have a feeling I'm going to be fawning all over uh, uh, Fred Hayes when he arrives. Is that is that tough on your ego to be on a book tour with Fred Hayes? Oh, no, because I, I reacted the same way. <laughs> Fred is uh, he's a special guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, tell me about Never Panic Early and why it's more relevant today than it's ever been. You know, there is so much about the book that that is special. Um, the man is probably the real reason, but the title Never Panic Early tells us that we should really think through what we're doing. Um, it's, it's critical in today's world, uh, rather than reacting, we need to think through what we're doing. Uh, what, what happened to conversation? What happened to, uh, to thinking things through? And so, yeah, it's very important today. Why is Fred Hayes special to you? What, what is it that excited you to be able to spend the right kind of time with a hero? where you get to just talk about specifically why he's a hero. What, what was, uh, what was special? I, I grew up uh, watching these Apollo astronauts uh, go to the moon and watching 24 human beings circle the moon. And it happened in a special time period, a four year time period from 1968 to 1972 and 12 of those men walked on the moon and and it's it was so unique and so special at the time uh and and it still is today and here's fred there's fred 
uh, <laughs> I was kind of hoping this would yeah. uh, that this interview wouldn't work. It would be like our own little disaster. We couldn't get the technology. Houston, we had a little problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to try to keep my cool, Fred Hayes, uh, author of Don't Panic Early. I have a lot of questions, a lot. So I want to tell our virtual studio audience to raise their hand or put your questions in the Q&A. We'll get to them. And if you're watching us on YouTube, go to my website right now to get into our Zoom room. Just hit pay-per-view. It doesn't cost you anything. We just call it pay-per-view. Fred Hayes and Bill Moore are the authors of Never Panic Early, Go to smithsonianbooks.com, buy the book right now, Never Panic Early, is published by Penguin Random House. It's not just Fred Hayes' story. It's a master's class in keeping your wits about you while others are losing theirs. Please say hello to Fred Hayes and Bill Moore. Hello, everybody. Thank you, Fred. Let me ask you some soft questions before we get to the meaty stuff. You became an astronaut. You were part of the the original 19. What did, what, what did they call your group? Called, yeah, John Young gave us the name of the original 19. There were 19 of us chosen in uh, 1966. You were a pilot, a test pilot before uh, you were an astronaut. What made you decide, you know what, it's nice to be on the edge of space, but I want to see more. Okay, now I was a test pilot for NASA for seven years before I applied uh, for the astronaut program. And I had to think about it hard, uh, and I talk about it in the book. Uh, Neil, Neil Armstrong was also a NASA pilot. In fact, I was just three years behind Neil mm-hmm. and going through test piloting with NASA. And he had come back to visit at Flight Research Center, where I was at the time, uh, where the X-15 was flying, which Neil flew. I didn't get to fly it. But nevertheless, he visited it, and I he had just uh, was fixing to fly his uh, Gemini flight, and I asked him kind of what it's like to be an astronaut. And he said, well, you sit in a lot of meetings, you sit in a simulator a lot, and there's not much good flying and he's comparing it to what he flew and what I was flying at the time at Flight Research Center, flying almost every day and flying many different different types of aircraft, probably participating one way or another in about three test programs. And so I had to think real hard, but what made me decide was uh, going to the moon. I knew if I said it afterwards, I wouldn't have the chance for that uh, great adventure. So that's why I signed up. Really? It was specifically, you knew exactly what you wanted. You knew you wanted to go to the moon. Yeah, that was, that was a great adventure. That how, was the, how, what was going on in the Apollo program. How old were you when you made the, the switch? Uh, probably I was 33, 30, let's say 1966. I was 33. Right. Chuck Yeager uh, was not an academic, I don't think. You were an academic. Is that correct? Well, I had an engineering degree. I wouldn't call it. I had a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering from the University of Oklahoma. In order to be an astronaut, you had to be an academic, though. You had to study. NASA had that requirement for the original seven that you had to have a uh, degree of some sort. It didn't have to be engineering, I think. Uh, could be physics or chemistry or, or something, science even. 
Uh, if, and as always, obviously, you also had to be a, a test pilot or a, a qualified pilot in high-performance aircraft. When did you realize you had to become a geologist in order to go to the moon? Were you interested in geology? Uh, no, none, none of us were. But they, we did uh, intensive training, though, with field trips. I trained for four Apollo missions, uh, only get, got to fly one. And over that time, I went on 31 geology field trips which were very uh, well organized with the uh, right trainers, if you will, uh, to look at different, particularly the sites were picked to show you different features that you, uh, and, and also to learn about uh, units and how they were arranged and how to, how to vary the, uh, the geology and the, and the traverse they, they had for you on the moon, particularly because no one knew what you were going to see when you landed on the moon. So a lot, a lot of it depended on your knowledge as a field geologist to vary and also vary what samples you might pick up. Right, right. And you also had to worry about the mission being aborted before you left the Earth's atmosphere, landing on some strange island. They, they left you stranded. Uh, what's the weirdest thing you ate uh, when you were <laughs> stranded as an astronaut training for an aborted mission. What was the weirdest thing I ate? Didn't you have to eat oh, boiled? Didn't you eat? I was in uh, uh, survival training. Yeah. And jungle training. Uh, they uh, showed us there that it was cooked. Uh, iguana. We uh, ate some boa, boa stricter, boa constrictor snake. Uh, actually, I don't know the name of it, but it was like a field uh, rat that was brown in color, not like our rats. Uh, a nutria. Did you say it's a nutria? Or? Yeah, it was probably a nutria, a cousin of the nutria here, which is a dark critter, and you find them in the U.S. But uh, they, they were cooked, and uh, all were edible, although, I, frankly, I thought the nutria was the best. Okay, well, there's probably one running around my apartment right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been 52 years since Apollo 13. I cannot tell you the number of times I call upon Apollo 13 for courage and guidance in times of my own personal crisis. Uh, work the problem, focus on what you must do now, right now, to fix it. Uh, I've, we all, as human beings have our own Apollo 13 uh, a couple of times a year. So tell me, Fred Hayes, in the past 52 years since Apollo 13, uh, how have you applied the lessons you learned from Apollo 13 uh, since Apollo 13? Well, the lessons from Apollo 13, if you're talking about handling problems, were not unique to Apollo 13. Uh, I had lessons when I was a Marine Corps fighter pilot in two squadrons and had airplane problems, uh, which you now had to deal with yourself. And similarly, as a test pilot, uh, there the were uh, situations you had to deal with. And the, the basic thing is to uh, depend on your experience and your knowledge base of uh, and, and what particular aircraft you're in or situation. And I think the never panic early thought, though, is one of uh, not do anything too fast, but to uh, at least take time to uh, look at the situation you have at hand and choose the best path uh, for, for a, a way out or a, a improve the situation and hopefully uh, survive if it be a real dangerous one. Right. I'm going to assume the lessons you learned from Apollo 13, you already knew most of them by the time 
the oxygen. It's, it's, yeah, as far as reacting and handling the problem, I think it was manifested in Ron Howard. I spoke to him after the movie and complained a little bit about some of the uh, fake drama he added in the movie, uh, my extreme throw-up, uh, uh, the uh, crew argument, uh, things like that. And he said, well, I, he, he told me he listened to all the air-to-ground transmissions uh, through the whole mission between Mission Control and ourselves. And he said, it never appeared to me you had a problem. And uh, so he said, I had to put some stuff in there to make you seem a little more human. Right. But his rationale was. Okay. Uh, yeah, you just threw up a little mucus. You were getting—I I read you were just getting used to zero gravity, and you bent over too quickly, and it was just like a, a minor hiccup. Not what? Uh, well, it was a spit up. It was a spit up. But uh, uh, the fellow who played me, right. Bill Paxton, uh, must have saved up a big mouthful of something that he he uh, coughed up for the movie. I think. Right. Right. So NASA prepared you for every single contingency. I'm going to assume your parents prepared you. What happened on Apollo 13 that nobody trained you for? Well, Apollo 13, uh, uh, we, we had failures. We assumed that we had uh, devised through all the FEMA failure main effects analysis through the whole design of any vehicle, airplane, be it, or in this case, spacecraft of things that could possibly happen, happen that we call credible failures. Uh, explosions were credible failures, but the answer to the explosions, if you read the FEMAs, was the crew and the vehicle would not survive. Hmm. So we, I think people were primarily thinking of rocket engines blowing up. But nevertheless, uh, so we, we didn't think much about it trained for explosions. That was, quote, not the credible failure you could survive. So our training was spent on things uh, within the various systems that would uh, fail in some way. And normally we had backups, uh, that, that kind of thing you'd have to switch to or deal with. But, uh, no, we, we never trained specifically for explosions because they said the answer was you weren't going to have anything to do. <laughs> nice. You aren't going to be around anymore. In, in the book Apollo Thirteen, uh, that the, the I think Lovell wrote the book that uh, that the movie is based on. I think the opening chapter they talk about the myth that you men were issued cyanide pills. Is it true that you were issued cyanide pills? Should anything go wrong? No, we, no, we we're not issued cyanide pills. Actually, Lovell, I thought the answer to correctly when I was question one. He said, all you got to do is open the valve on the hatch and bleed the air out and you'll be going pretty quick. So right. you didn't need to sign that pill to do the trick if you wanted to. The closest, I think you came, the closest brush with death you had came after Apollo 13, didn't it? Uh, yes, it did. And an airplane crash. Was there anything that happened on Apollo 13 that helped you during there was an air show? You were recreating, I think, the Pearl Harbor attack? Right. That was the air show I, I participated in. As it turned out, the day I had the accident, I was ferrying an aircraft to get it ready for an air show, to get it cleaned up at an airfield at Galveston, Texas. And we were going to have the air show coming up on the weekend. Uh, no, I'd, I'd say, again, it was the, the situation I had there was uh, I had 
had an engine failure and I, I crashed on the west side of the field. I couldn't, uh, the engine couldn't keep running. And then at terrain, uh, we, uh, uh, rough terrain, a wheel uh, dug in, car, uh, came off that cartwheel, ended up going upside down. And I was now backwards with the canopy shut and it was on fire. Now the fire was down around, coming out or down around my feet initially. But I knew I, I had to get out and I couldn't slide the canopy open because the airplane was on it. So it was, I had to think a minute about the process of uh, extracting myself uh, and how best to do that, which obviously wasn't that difficult. I had to unstrap the harnesses, pivot, stick my rear end in the fire, <laughs> and, uh, kick a hole through the. Fortunately, the airplane was one of those World War II airplanes that uh, had uh, plexiglass uh, canopies, uh, very thin. And I could kick a hole through right. and get myself out. But by then I had uh, su- suffered burns over 65%. Right. right, right. In the book, you describe the flames coming towards your uh, uh, crotch, I believe. that was Right, yeah, right. It was coming down below. So, Unfortunately, with just uh, blue flames, uh, oil had apparently not got into the act yet, which would have been worse because that would have created a lot of smoke. And, uh, and I, if I breathed it, of course, that wouldn't have been good. So I did extract myself before the fire uh, proceeded to that uh, point or even an explosion, which it never did. It never did explode. Which had a worse burning sensation, your urinary tract infection on Apollo 13 or the, uh, the plane accident? I was playing much worse. It was, it was very painful three months in the burn ward. In, in the movie, they... Uh, play out your illness and you were shivering Paxton looks like you're you're close to not death but you're uh, a drain on the crew you had a urinary tract infection in real life how bad was the urinary tract infection well I've had uh, well a couple since then uh, they're, they're basically uh, you do end up with chills and fever and uh, we, we were in a very cold environment, probably somewhere in the 30s Fahrenheit in the limb, even that froze right. the water tanks in the mothership. And so, uh, you know, when I got to Chillsport, I was shivering, you know, like you see a dog shiver. Right. Okay. Uh, so cold because uh, we didn't have adequate clothing. I had on three sets of underwear and uh, just an outer, little out of garment. Uh, people ask a ship, why do we do, do the spacesuits? You could have, one person could have done a spacesuit because we did have one set of hoses free in the limb, which, as you know, was only meant for two people. Right. The other set of hoses was tied up with that lithium cartridge. So one We're tied up with the what? I'm sorry? Uh, the other set of hoses for the, to hook up to the spacesuit. The lithium cartridge was used in one oh, of those. Oh, to scrub things. the carbon dioxide. Yeah, to scrub the carbon dioxide. So it tied up the intake hose. And in the spacesuit, uh, you might think, well, that temperature in the mid-30s, it would have been fine. But you would have perspired in that suit if you right. had, really, if you didn't have cooling air flowing. Right. Uh, but you know, on the lunar surface, we wore underwear that had uh, tubes that provided cold water, even where you have a you know pretty high workload that would help to keep you cool. In the book, you say that uh, Apollo 12 and Apollo 11 got thirsty on their moonwalks and that your yours was going to be the first suit where the astronauts could sip water. They they sent out, was it Beam and Mit, Mitchell? 
Well, it was actually it was 12 that uh, complained and said they got thirsty. And so they did jury rig uh, a bag we could have inside the suit with a little uh, spigot came up a nipple that you could bite and uh, to open it up and suck water. So, it, it of course, we didn't get to use it. Right. But that would have been available for us. And, of course, then uh, it was carried on for the other mission. So Ed Mitchell and Al got to use it. Uh, unbelievable that they sent four astronauts onto the surface of the moon uh, with no hydration. I mean, that 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 is... Well, do you miss... Uh, this is going to be a silly question. Do you miss... Uh, the crisis portion. Are you there? Did I lose you? No, I'm here. Oh, I, I, I thought you came to your senses and left. Uh, do you <laughs> do you miss the crisis portion of Apollo 13? I ask that because I'm going to assume the crisis lasted, you know, one or two days. It could not have been entirely heart pounding because you would have exploded. Uh, so you had this ongoing crisis. Is there any moment of that time in the mission uh, where you were in a crisis that you look fondly back upon? That you no, kind of- not, not, there was a set of uh, crises, if you will. It went on actually four days. Uh, ultimately, the, the, the real final crisis is will those three shoots open? Uh, at least two of them, uh, which happened on 15. I mean, if the chutes don't open, you're going to die on splashdown. What, Apollo 15? Uh, Apollo, uh, yeah, Apollo 15, only two of the chutes are fully open, the big ones. The drogues? What are they? The drogues? What are the drogues? I'm talking about the big chutes, the ones that open at 10,000 feet. The drogues open at 60,000 feet to stabilize the capsule, and then about 10,000 feet, the main chutes are deployed, the big ones. And you need at least two of them open to, you know, have a reasonable splashdown. Uh, of course, I'm saying that's a, that's the last crisis as you're looking. So, out what, your excuse me for one second. So, 15 the the shoot the big shoots didn't open. Two of the three opened. Oh, so one did not. okay. Yeah, one failed, and but no, we had crisis right up to just before entry when we powered up the command module. You have to realize the command module was never meant to ever be powered down. Right. They had to invent a procedure on how to power it up. We didn't have any procedure. So the ground had to, people on the ground had to invent that. And then, of course, we worried how that thing would behave because we'd froze it for four days. We turned it completely off. It was never intended to be turned off. Violated specifications on all the electronics. And we just hope it would uh, perform uh, good to get us through entry. It, again, there's nothing you miss. There aren't any moments during that period of uncertainty that you you look back on fondly. No, not not in that the way you're trying to describe it. The biggest emotion I had was disappointment because I lost the landing. I'd done training through two previous missions to get ready for this one and. Uh, I knew almost immediately when I knew we, we lost one of the two oxygen tanks. And this was before it became uh, really bad because I thought we had the second tank intact, but I knew we had lost the landing. From there on, it was just a set of uh, workarounds, if you will, over the next few days. Because even though uh, I don't know how quick uh, Krantz and uh, his brain trust, they, they got together offline, 
and figured out uh, the alternate path home and what the open items were, but they didn't have the answers for, uh, you know, it took several days as they went along for various people that worked different uh, problems to uh, come up with solutions. Right. And it wasn't just, a, it wasn't just a person incidentally that another complaint I had for Ron was his cast wasn't big enough. Uh, it, it was a very, there was a lot of people involved all the way back across the country to the contractors and some of the, you know, the contractors built, uh, designed and built the spacecraft. Right. They delivered them to NASA to fly. And so it, uh, the real brain trust of engineering was in some cases back at the plants where the, the vehicles were built. Right. So I, I want to tell you, and I want to bring in, uh, I feel like I'm ignoring Bill more. Uh, what I no, want to do I, is. I'm enjoying listening to all this. Well, uh, <laughs> so am I. <laughs> so here's here's what I want to do. I, I want to ask a few more general questions. I want to play some of the interchange, the air to ground interchange between Fred Hayes and uh, Gene Krantz. And does Lonnie, when this, when the, when the explosion happened, who was running the uh, mission control? It was Gene Krantz and then it gets turned over to Lonnie? Well, Gene was, yeah, Gene was on duty, his uh, white team and uh, the next one, uh, let's see, uh, not Jerry Griffin, but uh, Lonnie, Glenn Lonnie. Glenn Lonnie. His crew, some of them had already come into the room. They normally overlap a little bit to do a handover and look at uh, look at the notes and see what each each expert compares with the other one, what's happened, mm-hmm. been happening. And so it, it, uh, Gene carried on, I think, for uh, – maybe another 15, 20 minutes or more to 30 before he handed over to Glenn Lunny to take over. And but so does anybody he, at that point really just, all right, I'm, I'm going to clock out and I'll see you guys in 12 hours. Nobody does that. <laughs> how do you, how do you know? Like you just, uh, one of the things I want to also do in our limited time is run video that recreates your actual view of the moon. You did go to the moon uh, you went to the moon, you just didn't get to walk on it. But uh, NASA, uh, in the past couple of years, using satellites, has been able to recreate your path around the moon and show us what you saw looking out the window. So if you don't mind, I'd like to play that in a little while and get your thoughts. Have you seen the recreation? No, oh. I'm not. I'm you not, haven't no. seen the recreation? No, I've not seen it. No. Oh, uh, hang on for I one. Have- Bill, you haven't seen it either? No. Oh, my God. This. Oh, well, hang on. Let's do this right now. Okay. Uh, NASA. Uh, let me just pull this up. This is. Uh, all right. Uh, this is uh, NASA using data gathered from the Lunar Recon- Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft they, they compiled all the uh, pictures taken by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft to recreate the precise views of the moon that you, Jack Swigert, and Jim Lovell saw as you were uh, on the far side of the moon. That was your slingshot to get back home. And I would assume that you've seen this. Um, I hope I have it. Yes. Okay. Uh, 
uh, I'll start playing it. This is what you saw. <laughs> See if you recognize the old neighborhood. Uh, Fred, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm looking. Yeah. What are, what are we looking at? Around the corner. Well, this is the backside, which, as you can see, is quite different from the front side. It's much more rough and jumbled uh, with smaller craters. There's not too many of the large features. I don't know if they'll pick up Sea Moscow. And there were two large features we saw. Siokoski, which had a nice mountain in the center. It was a dark area, like a mar on the front side. And Sea uh, Moscow. But there's not many of those on the backside in comparison. And this is uh, color? It just says more, more large meteorites hit the side we look at all the time. That's why you see those big dark areas. There it is. That's Siokoski. Uh, it was named by the Russians because they went around the moon the first time and shot pictures. A beautiful feature with a mountain, as I said, a residue in the center. And uh, so that was the one prominent. That's the only dark feature we saw. Whereas, you know, there's a very, and that's the other dark feature. That's the Sea of Moscow. Wow. And we, were, we went around a little higher than normal flights, which were at 60 miles. We went around a little over 130 miles. And what's that popping up all of a sudden? That's the uh, home popping up over the horizon as we came on around. Uh, and, that, and actually, uh, we did this part of the moon we, would have been dark because we were at, uh, when we flew, we, it was a half moon, half moon in the front and a half moon in the backside. Right, right. You have not seen that view in 52 years. No, that's uh, been a long time ago. Now, I do have my Hasselblad pictures that I took. Some of them, I have them in my reservoir Right, uh, I saved. But no, I never saw that animation. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. The Hasselblad, those are the cameras that you... Yes, yes, sir, the the cameras. Wow. Uh, Do you mind if we look at it again? And you... Go ahead. Yeah, I I just... uh, I... uh, Life sometimes... This is... For me, this is one of the highlights of, of my life. Bill, can you believe this? Yeah. No, that's, uh, the backside is just radically different from the front in that, in that respect, that there's none of these very large, dark areas like you see in the front side. Some people can see a face in the moon. Right. Uh, you only have a few of those on the backside. Uh, I have to be, I, I'm sorry, I'm a little... Uh, this is like this is unbelievable for me. Uh, it really is. Explain to the the listeners why you're you're two hundred thousand miles away from Earth. There's an explosion. Your instinct is well. Let's get. Let's just turn the the thing around and land. Why did you have to go to the moon when you weren't going to land on it? Well, I, I wasn't, we wasn't part of that the decision. Uh, the ground wrestled with that because I think some of the guidos, the guidance uh, people, wanted to do just that. They wanted to uh, uh, get back quicker by not going around the moon. But then they realized, and then what they told them was to do that would have to burn the, shuttle, the uh, SPS big engine on the service module literally to depletion uh, to do that. And, uh, of course, they didn't know what the status was of the engine. It turned out it was a good decision because as we, we separated the service module, it looked like it had been slightly hit, the bell, on that mm-hmm. engine when the panel came off, an explosion. 
So anyway, that's what the, that's why they mainly decided we don't want to do that and have to depend on that one engine to burn it all the way to depletion of the fuel and propellant, uh, oxidizing propellant. And so they that quickly, I think not, not, and I say quickly, I don't really know. I wasn't there, but I'm assuming that it didn't take them long to figure we got to go around the moon. Do you have a background in physics? Because if if I were 200,000 miles away from planet Earth and I wanted to get home quickly and they start telling me about the slingshot, like you have to go around the moon, I would assume you you understood the slingshot and how that works, because I would have went I would have said, are you? Well, I, I understood it because you're just talking orbital mechanics. I'd had a lot of that, and I, didn't, I hadn't really had that in my uh, aeronautical engineering degree. I went through one year in the uh, aerospace uh, test pilot school, and the second half was about space rather than being a test pilot. Second half of that year, and we, we uh, had, uh, you know, classes in orbital mechanics. And so I knew the, the physics, if you will, of that. So, so what is it? Is it the gravitational pull of the moon creates... Uh, serves as like an engine for yeah. you and you're you're kind well, of tacking the wind it's a pull on the, on the mass we use it all the time for the, uh, for the unmanned flights some unmanned flights that are going way out they'll sweep around uh, uh, venus or they'll sweep around jupiter to get an impulse almost when they come around and but they also get pointed in the right direction say to go out to pluto or so we we use that all the time for uh, unmanned flights uh, as we traverse in, uh, through the solar system. But you're using, I, I apologize, but you're using the gravitational pull of the moon to shoot you towards the planet Earth. So all I can think of is sailing where you, you tack the, you kind of get the wind. You, are you using, how, how does... They made this. I, this doesn't seem real. I don't understand it. There's no aerodynamics involved. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a way to, if you think of the velocity, it's, it's the same. See, so you see it as you're going out to the moon. You leave the Earth at, uh, uh, say, 25,000 miles an hour, and, uh, and you're slowly slowing down all the way because the Earth's pulling on you. And, uh, you know, you're, you're in a vacuum, so there's really a, no reason for you to slow down. Uh, you're not, you, there's no molecules or any, there's no drag or resistance. The drag is the Earth pulling on you, the force uh, mass of the Earth. And about uh, nine-tenths of the way to the moon, you'll start speeding up. And that's what happened. And actually, uh, in an earlier, the flights that really landed, they speeded up too much. So that when they went around the moon at 60 miles, they had to actually fire the engines retrograde backwards for a bit to slow up because they were at about, I think about 7,000 something feet a second. And they needed to be at 5,000 something feet a second to orbit the moon at 60 miles. I see. So they actually had to slow up because the moon speeded them up too much coming in. So you're using, you're firing an engine with the gravitational pull of the moon to get you towards. Exactly. I yeah. see. I see. Let's look at this again, if you don't mind, and just whatever you can just watch it or tell me what you think. Uh, All right. Coming around the corner. You got any comments, Bill? It looks pretty rugged. <laughs> no, it's yeah, the, moon, the moon has obviously been hit over the eons with a cra 
creating craters after craters with these impacts and of all sizes, you know, they, as we saw when we landed, there were sizes, craters below what anybody could even see from orbit, uh, smaller yet. So it's, it's being impacted, I, I assume, all the time in some small way by things hitting it every day because it uh, has no atmosphere and there's nothing to protect it. But it's also a, a less, I'll say less colorful, even if you call the moon colorful at all, the backside is almost totally uh, shades of gray, whereas there is more of these, what you're seeing now, Sikorsky, there's more of these dark features Mars, they call them, or seas, on the front side. So there, there's more, if you want to call it coloration on the front side that we're looking at all the time, then you'll see on the back side. Overall, the back side just much more rugged. Uh, I would have guessed if you went a you know, billion years or more in the future and could look at the moon we're looking at, it would look different because things will have hit it over those billions of years. And so the front side you're looking at every night or I'm looking at at night would look different a billion years from now, I expect. Right. The, the, one, the one thing I might add here is, and, and this is something Jim Lovell asked Fred to be sure and tell in the book, that when the other missions went to the moon, they orbited the moon. So they fired the engine, and they were 60 miles above the surface. On this mission, they weren't going to go into orbit, and the slingshot effect took them further out away from, and I forget how many miles it was, Fred will know, but they were the, the crew that went the furthest away from Earth of all the Apollo missions. So how many miles was it, Fred? Uh, we went around, I think, 131 point something miles above the moon. But the moon was also further out, too, on that. Or, now that moon doesn't go around an exact circle. It's in an ellipse. So we also hit it at a time. It was a little further out from Earth as well. We're, we're talking with Fred Hayes and Bill Moore. They're the authors of Never Panic Early. Go to smithsonianbooks.com and buy the book right now, Never Panic Early. It's published by Penguin Random House. Bill uh, Level is the only person to go to the moon twice. Is that fair? No, Gene Cernan. Gene and John Cernan. Young. Right. Three, three, three people went to the moon twice. Right. Uh, but only they only walked once, although Level. Um, right. So is it fair to say that the Apollo 13 astronauts were the only Apollo astronauts who had time to think about what they were experiencing? Was there downtime for them to just think? I, you know, Fred, Fred obviously answered this, speak to this, but I think they were pretty busy most of the time, solving problems and thinking ahead to the next maneuver. In the book, though, I, I believe, Fred, in the book, you, you gentlemen write that there was some downtime. Well, there was downtime between the things we did, had to do, no, this downtown on every mission because virtually uh, all you're doing while you're headed out to the moon for three days on all the missions and coming back, you're three days coming back, you may stage a TV show, uh, you're doing housekeeping kind of things, but that's about all you're doing. Uh, and, and actually on the way out, you're still writing changes and uh, checklists and things have given you an errata sheet or uh but it's pretty relaxed going to and fro from the moon on all the missions. And you have time to 
to think and talk and right sure that i'm sure the people that landed on the way back probably talked about things they had done uh and been affecting the landing and what they did on the surface etc that kind of thing and i and everyone uh, i think st- planned and did stage a tv show going out toward the moon and they stage one on the way home and before did, did it happen on on uh, the 13th what's that did, did the oxygen tank blow up on the 13th of the month uh we launched on the 13th oh you launched on we the launched, 13th i see we launched on the 13th i see and how did you get before the explosion? Did you get a good night's sleep? Did you were you or were, had you been up? No, I had I had no trouble uh, sleeping. No, no, it was comfortable. I, I really didn't use the hammock where you could rig a, a cloth hammock uh, below the couch, underneath mm-hmm. the couch, string it up, and then get in there and zip it up. I just stayed in the couch and sort of kept buckled up so I wouldn't drift away. Right. And I slept that way the first night. For some reason, when I have trouble sleeping, I imagine I'm in one of the, the, the capsules. I think that I would sleep very well. There's like a rotisserie. You guys are spinning slowly. Is it? Do you sleep well when you're in outer space? I, I, I had no trouble. Uh, I, you have to realize we also were busy. Uh, no, most flights, uh, two or three days for the flight, you kind of backed off. And we had a place uh, near the beach, not too far from uh, Pad 39B, that uh, we could go to uh, a little uh, a old house actually left there from a town that had been there one right. time. And we could go there to relax and leap through the, the flight plan and that kind of thing. And it actually had no phone. So if anybody wanted us, they had to drive there to get us. Right. And uh, unfortunately, with our crew change out two and a half days for launch, we were in the simulator till about eight o'clock the night before launch right. uh, with Jack to go through all the critical phases and verify that Jack, even though we used the same checklist and obviously the same flight plan, backup and prime crew, uh, that he wasn't, when he called out something, he wasn't using some diff- different vernacular. Right. Say doing rendezvous or doing entry or launch, right. and it's kind of a test of that uh, with Jack. So we talking about we, Jack Mattingly, who was supposed to fly with you, but he came down with they think right. so, yeah, chicken pox, but he didn't have it, right? Yeah. Okay. Otherwise, we would have not been in simulators till eight o'clock the night before launch. So they f- they think they figured out what went wrong, or they know what went wrong. Uh, from the post-flight data they got, because, of course, the components uh, didn't survive entry, uh, that uh, they, they, ha- they know pretty much procedurally an error was made at Kennedy when they tried to detank the oxygen tank. And uh, without the spacecraft powered up, they were doing that to try to force nitrogen, gaseous nitrogen through the tank to boil off the liquid oxygen the the stem pipe through that that the the gas went through Uh, again uh, over a year and a half earlier that tank had been dropped not very far but uh 10 10 inches 12 inches and they think the stem pipe had been offset right so the flow couldn't go through 
And so they decided to, uh, to use spacecraft heaters. And the only way they were monitoring it was having a technician with a gauge, but the gauge, <laughs> the gauge they chose locked up. In other words, this highest point it could read was short of the red line. And so he didn't realize it, of course, the technician was monitoring, but it, it way exceeded the red line right? Uh, and that heaters in the tank that normally would have been cycling. So that's what caused the problem. One of my criticisms of Apollo 13 is that there was a tension between your character and uh, Jack Swigert, where you were implying that when he he was asked to stir the oxygen tanks and you accused him of creating the blowout. And I thought it was unfair to you, and I thought it was unfair to Jack Swigert, who wasn't alive at the time, to defend himself. Uh, your reaction to that? Well, that's one of the things I complained to uh, Ron Howard. You know, that was his humanizing thing. See, I was still in the limb at the time uh, putting away equipment we had pulled out for the TV show. We had just finished. In fact, we came close to being live <laughs> when the explosion happened. Uh and uh, if I had been in my normal couch position on the right side, I would have been the one to throw the switches. I would have started to cry out, not Jack. But see, he was all alone at the time. So when they asked to start, he was the only one in the command module, so he threw the switches. There was no way of telling an electric chart was going to happen. Right. It, it, there was a, but it left just a, a seed of doubt that maybe Swigert had done something wrong. It, and he wasn't alive when the movie came out, correct? That's correct. And yeah. I thought that was unfair to him because he should have been allowed to defend himself. It reminded me of when The Right Stuff came out because Gus Grissom, as we know, perished in Apollo 1 in that fire. And they showed him, well, panicking and kicking the hatch open after he landed and... I think the term is screwing the pooch and and he what I thought he wasn't alive either to defend himself. Did you what 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 are your thoughts about the portrayal of Gus Grissom in the right stuff? Well, I, I agree with you on the, your discussion and they did do some testing later uh I know to prove that he had not uh hit the lever of I say I'm not familiar with mercury what the, what made the hatch could make the hatch blow off. Uh, and how where it was situated to where you might bump it. Uh, but no, it was proved later he had not manually blown the hatch off. But they portrayed him really unfairly, you know, hyperventilating and panicking. He wasn't alive to set the record straight. And my reaction is if he screwed the pooch as badly uh, as the movie says he does, did, why was he Apollo 1? Why, why do they put him in charge of the Apollo mission if he was that uh, right. incompetent? I thought that was unfair. And it, it I thought they preyed upon both Apollo 13 and The Right Stuff, which are two great, great movies. But they did, I feel, take advantage of two men who weren't alive to uh, defend themselves. You served as backup on the lunar uh, you were the backup lunar module pilot for Apollo 11, which meant that if if Buzz Aldrin got sick, you were you were going to do it. You were going to 
sit in his seat, correct? No, the, the plan was uh, if the command module got sick, as happened, you would change out the single person. If either one of the limb pi- commander or pilot uh, had to be pulled off, you changed both because they had to work more intimately as a team. I see. And jokingly, in the limb simulator, we uh, Jim Lovell uh, backed up one day and he found a sharp object in the back of the simulator, and he whispered. You know, he knew the trainer guys would hear it. He said, "Don't let's not tell anybody that. Maybe Neil will step on it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to fly." So you would have been, yeah. Uh, so you you were the the uh, the lunar module pilot. My imagination of what a pilot does is he works the controls. However, it's the lunar module commander who works the controls, correct? And not the pilot. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think that's because none of us didn't like to be called, not called a pilot. Oh. <laughs> the lunar pilot system engineer or whatever, because that's basically the role you were playing during an uh, actual landing. Uh, you supported the commander with readings to and en- to enforce what he was seeing out the window uh, as we as he approached for landing with the sink rate, uh, with his motion fo- forward or aft or left to right. Uh, if you were drifting, uh, so you were giving him those kind of readings so he could, uh, with, without him having to stick get his head back in the cockpit to uh, n- n- hear that. Actually, if you had a HUD. Uh, it could have been done that way, but HUDs, I don't think, were very prominent on anything. What's a days. HUD? A HUD heads-up display, like some cars oh. have, where you give you a speedometer in the windshield. Final Cut Pro has caused them HUDs, it's too. Yeah. Uh, they didn't exist yet. But, right. Uh, that's, so that's what the lunar module pilot was doing, was really supporting the command module pilot right. Uh, right. with information. So during the lunar descent, there are several abort options. It's up to ground control to decide go or no go. And I've heard that when Armstrong and Aldrin were getting the, the 1202 alarms, this was right in the middle of the descent, and they're getting these 1202 alarms that nobody had ever heard of. I've heard it said that Armstrong would have landed anyway even if he was told to abort. And I'm not going to ask you whether or not that's true. But I would like to know, uh, what at what point after the LEM undocks from the command module, at what point can the two astronauts in the LEM, at what point can you do it all by yourself uh, without checking with ground control? Because it seems to me, at some point, the two astronauts can make all the decisions and uh, is that true? For example, Neil Armstrong would have crashed the LEM had he listened to ground control because they got the, the math wrong on the landing site. So at some point, you, you astronauts take over the LEM and you don't need ground control. Is that fair? Well, for the final landing, that was always true to pick out the landing spot. Every every mission, uh, the, the commander ended up landing manually because the site picked, uh, nobody had the real definition of what was really there. And I'm talking about sizable boulders even. 
And so it wasn't until the pilot looking out the window, the commander saw the situation. Uh, could he then pick a better site, which was the, always the case from what the computer, how it would have landed it, had it been on its own. So the pilot, uh, you, it flew through the computer down to a pretty low altitude. We have to pitch over, and somewhere there they took over manually to find a good spot to land. But no, you you could not, if you lost calm on the way down, that would constitute an abort. You always had to have communication with Mission Control all the way. Right. I understand that. However, if they decided there was no, is it, Com, if, if there was no communications with ground control from the time you undock to the time you land. Uh, could you do it without any ground control communication? Uh, yes, yeah. You, you, you normally would give you a go for landing. They'd give you fuel quantity left because it always was short fuel in the Ascent engine. So they'd always give you those kind of uh, uh, messages but no, it was up to the pilot and, and the person flying the vehicle to to finally land it. I mean, right. So I, I guess the question I'm asking is how much looking back and it's un, I don't want to dismiss ground control because in many ways they are the heroes uh, as much as the astronauts are. But again, from the time if it if you had to without communicating at all with uh, Houston. From the time you undock to the time you say we've landed, could it just be done by the two astronauts sitting in the LEM, reading the dials and looking out the window? Was it necessary to communicate at all with ground control? Uh, I, I know that there are, you know, it's a, you're, you, uh, there are backup plans and, and your redundancies, but could it? Could it have been done without any of that? Just you, just the two pilots. Yeah, it says they were just monitoring. You're saying they were, you had communicate. You could have communication, and they were monitoring, and nothing went wrong, and everything was nominal, if you will, all the way down through pitch over the radar altimeter locked up, which they could see. Uh, no, there would be no necessary calls needed from right. Mission Control. They, they could fly it all the way. Without without a comment, right? Bill, did you want to say something? I'm sorry. Yeah, um, if if you look back to Apollo 10, uh, that lunar module was still in the early stage development stages. It was too heavy to land with the fuel they had. But people still ask Tom Stafford, "Did you were you tempted? Would you right. have taken it?" Down? And every time he tells them, "No, we wouldn't have made it. We'd have crashed." But he said, and, and then we wouldn't have been able to get off the surface. But ultimately, these guys, these, they're test pilots, and they know, their, they know their craft. Right, right. I, I mention this because there, we all live with chatter in our ears, people talking. And we're, we're, uh, we're taught how to speak, but we're not taught uh, when to speak. Uh, we all sit in meetings and a lot of people like to talk just for the sake of talking. People like to be heard, especially incredibly smart people and incredibly competitive people. So uh, when you're in a situation where three lives are on the line, 
What is the virtue to keeping one's mouth shut? Is that part of the training, learning when to speak and when not to speak? No, I, I don't think so. The, the, the rituals uh, of what's needed to be said, uh, and I call it in a standard mission, you know, that, that's uh, from training. You, you, don't, you don't chit-chat if that's what you're talking about. Right. Now, at mission control, they may have more of a problem with the flight director controlling the room because uh, he's got too many, a lot of pe- 28 people in that room. Uh, that are monitoring things. So he might have to deal more with that. And uh, sure, and he, the traffic and overwhelming uh, what he needs to keep track of and uh, make decisions on. Right. But on board the spacecraft, I don't, there's none of that in, the, in a normal mission. You know, offline, all the way in the coasting flight, we do a lot of shit chat just among ourselves. But you when know, there's a crisis, uh, everybody starts talking and it creates, it makes the crisis worse uh when you listen to the air to ground uh conversation everybody knew to keep their mouth shut and they only talked when they had something important to say we're talking with fred hayes and bill moore their book is never panic early go to smithsonianbooks.com right now and buy the book i'll reimburse you if this book doesn't uh, make your heart swell. Let me know and I will reimburse you. This is a great book. My only criticism is I wanted more. Never Panic Early is published by Penguin Random House. We have uh, six minutes remaining and I want to get to the Q&A in a second. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, I had heard it said that one of the astronauts said you'd be amazed at what you can get used to. That you can, I think it was it Michael Collins who said, you, you know, what's it like to, to orbit the moon waiting for Buzz and Neil? Uh, you know, were you just constantly in awe of the moon? And I believe it was Michael Collins who said, you'd be amazed at what you can get used to. Have you heard that? No, I have not. I, my, Michael, uh, I, I thought, enjoyed his time alone uh, orbiting the moon. Uh, while they were on the surface, and he, I don't think he had any problems to deal with. Right, it. but do you, the point is, you could you were up close on the dark side of the moon. Was there a point where you go, okay, that, I'm used, I've, I've seen it. <laughs> I mean, does it wear off? We get used to things as humans, don't we? No, I, no, I think you're right. Uh, no, I, I was not actually. I was. I didn't fly for the sake of the view, uh, which is why I wasn't interested. I, I was assigned to fly the third orbital flight on shuttle, and I was interested in the mission we had, which was to rescue Skylab. And when right. that went away, the mission was, I'd say, in my view, pretty benign. And so I wasn't interested in just going up to fly in circles and uh, look at the ground. Uh, so I, uh, my, my interest was more in the, from a test filing standpoint, what the task was and what the mission was and how complicated and challenging that might be um, versus uh, just going for the view. Uh, A lot of the questions uh, from our studio audience, uh, we discussed what Fred thought of Bill Paxton and uh, uh, that was from, and then Jeremy wanted to know about the oxygen tank. We covered that. Uh, uh, 
Harsh wants to know your thoughts on Mars travel and can a moon base become a reality in our lifetime? And by our lifetime, that's a good question. Depends on who we're talking to. What do you think of a a moon base? I'm 88 years old, so I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime. But uh, no, obviously it's uh, any progress we make, be it uh, landings on the moon or building the moon base or going to Mars, uh, at least for the United States, uh, depend on uh, the administration and congressional support, uh, how, how well a, a program is funded. Uh, if if you, NASA sets out for a program like they have now Artemis, uh, which has uh, already had problems, I think, with the less than they planned funding along the way, which caused them to get in a little problem with the uh, competing up for the lander part of it. Uh, then, then, you know, things take longer and, and ultimately uh, cost more. Right. But uh, progress is for, uh, for major programs like space programs have been dependent on the, uh, the support you have from the, the government. And that's the same as if uh, no different than policy-wise in China or uh, Russia. I mean, it's not just the United States. Uh, but that's uh, that's what makes programs uh, be able to be done is the, the funding that supports it. We've been talking with Fred Hayes and Bill Moore. Their new book is Never Panic Early. Go to go to SmithsonianBooks.com. Buy Never Panic Early. If this book doesn't make your heart swell, I will reimburse you. I promise you. It's published by Penguin Random House. Before we say goodbye, uh, God, I wish... I can get you to come back. I want to briefly play the ground uh, to air, air to ground communication. It's been played to the point where I'm sure you're sick of hearing it. But I want to play your voice because uh, I don't think I think. Well, anyway, how calm it is and uh, just. It's, it takes 40 seconds, and it really is a lesson in not panicking early. Roger, main the intervals. Okay, stand by 13. We're looking at it. Okay, uh, right now, uh, you said the uh, voltage is uh, looking good. Um, and we had a pretty large bang associated with the um, caution and warning there. Your world was falling up. Your world was falling apart right then. Yep, that was uh, that was uh, not not too long after I got in back in the couch position. I from the limb coming up to the tunnel and got a look at the instrument panel. And I was reporting uh, what I was seeing uh, there because I immediately I knew we pretty much uh, we had lost the uh, one, one oxygen tank, tank too, but the other one looked okay. And so that's what I was calling out, how, it, how things were holding up with only one oxygen tank reporting uh, the voltages I was reading. And what are you thinking? Uh, we're in danger or I'm going to lose the moon? No, at that point, I didn't think we were in danger. Uh, I, I knew, and I, like I said, I was sick to my stomach 
feeling uh, from knowing we lost the landing. I knew we would not land. Right. And I, I thought we'd just stay fully powered up and uh, limp around the moon or, or some way we'd come home uh, without, uh, without it being a danger, really. The second oxygen the tank had held up, we would have had no problem. Right. Bill Moore, America, a lot of us think we think it's lost. Uh, what, what could all of us take from Apollo 13 to, to, to save a country that some think, some people think this country is uh, in trouble. Yeah. But what, 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 what could we take as a nation from never panic early? I think that it, if you look at the overall activity that happened in mission control and across the nation, actually around the world, people were offering to help uh, other countries, whatever they could do. Um, all the all the contractors Fred mentioned all ago, they were working to, to do their part. Everyone pulled together and it's it's not it's not lost. It's not anything that's gone. It's it's still there. I've seen it happen here in Oklahoma City when we had the Murrah building that right. was bombed. Right. I, I saw America and the world come together, and we saw it with the Twin Towers in New York. It's still there. And Apollo 13 just shows us that we have the capability to do whatever we want if we set our minds to it. I think failure is an option. I think we learn a lot uh, from what we think we wanted to happen and what ends up happening. Uh, I think Apollo 13 uh, taught me that, that it's not uh, necessarily what you want. And uh, what what did they call it? Uh, The uh, successful failure, a successful failure. Well, uh, Fred Hayes, uh, I'm going to beg you to come back. I know uh, this is one of the high. I, I know you hear this a lot, uh, but if you're if you're of a time, getting to talk to you is. Uh, but I don't want to embarrass you, Fred Hayes. Thank you so much for for doing this. Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome, sir. Thank very you. Welcome. And and Bill Moore. And the best way to thank them for their time is to go by Never Panic Early. Let's sell some books. Go to smithsonianbooks.com and buy Never Panic Early right now. It's written by Bill Moore and Fred Hayes. Let's sell some books. I promise you, if this book doesn't make your heart swell, I will uh, reimburse you. It's... uh, It's an amazing story about an amazing life. Thank you so much, Bill and Fred. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I think I did a pretty good job not fawning. Okay. (laughs) I couldn't help it. This is uh, when we come back, we will be talking to Howie Klein from Down with Tyranny and talk about more quotidian problems like the midterms. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. And once again, traveling light. This is Professor Mike Steinell. And nobody traveled lighter than the Apollo 13 astronauts. 
traveling light Got everything I need Got a little bottle of Woolite And a little bag of weed Got to saw bellow novel Cause I really like to read I'm traveling light I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller. Magic kit So I can do my tricks Got my favorite pillow Which I call Mr. Fluffy Four kinds of allergy pills In case I get stuffy A pound of Epsom salts Cause my ankles get puffy I'm traveling light Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. Sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high speed parallax motor, cause I'm into robotics. And my little red speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket. I get a chill, I'm traveling light Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender A 50 tequila, in case I go on a bender My attorney's number, in case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light In case I have some visitors For breeze if my room is stinky A Polaroid in case I get kinky My Jesus bobblehead And my Star Wars bedspread I'm traveling light I got my rabbi costume and my portable dark room, my hair plug lotion and my expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self-esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoeshine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list.
Thank you, Professor Mike Steinell. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And I, once again, thank you to astronaut Fred Hayes and Bill Moore. Thank you so much for, for coming on their show. Go by Never Panic Early. You can buy it over at smithsonianbooks.com. Buy the book right now, Never Panic Early. Joining us is a man who never panics. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive candidates around America. And read them over at Down With Tyranny. Hello, Howie. Are you... Oh, what, what's going on here? Why am I... Oh, come on. Are you there? I am having... <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. Hang on. What is going on? Why are you doing this to me? Uh, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Why is there no sound here? Stay calm. Stay calm. How are all? Let me see here. Uh, Howie, can you hear me? All right, I need to figure this out. Work the problem. Let's not make things worse by guessing. Okay, hang on. All right, hang on for one second. I think this will be the David Feldman Show's finest hour. Hang on. Come on. Uh, never panic early. Now are you there? I have a problem. Uh, my, let's see. Uh, well, let's try this. Power it on. Hang on. <laughs> this is exactly I wanted. The what's? Why are you doing this to me? All right. Oh, mother. So my phone, my phone died. Uh, and I had the motherboard replaced. And it is not reading. So let me think here for one second. Uh, hmm. What do I do? How do I do this? You're still there, right, Howie? I'm here. Okay, I think the way we're going to have to do this, Dan? Yes, sir, I could hear Howie at like a 0.5%, almost like I could hear him through. I can do it phone. this way. It's going to sound horrible. Howie, can you say hello? I said I hope the listeners aren't hearing all this. They are. Uh, oh, I got, well, that's, the first thing I, that's the first thing I heard from Howie, and it sounds pretty good. It it's, sounds it's, okay. We'll do it this way. but we can hear him. We'll do it this way. Okay. Howie, uh, sorry about that. David. How are you? Technical problems. Uh, uh, I'm good. We're good. Good. We. I wanted to talk to you over the weekend, but my phone died. And so uh, now I, I think I have to take my phone back. But let's talk about Tuesday because we have important midterm primaries coming up. What, what do we have? Let's start off with California, if you don't mind. 
No, California, very important primary. Uh, tomorrow. I mean, I don't know what day people hear this thing. Some people hear it on Monday. Some people hear it on Tuesday. But uh, on Tuesday, our primary is in several states, California being one of them. And there are, uh, you know, all sorts of office, people running for office. But, you know, in a lot of cases, it's a foregone conclusion. I understand that the... Um, the voter, the uh, early voting turnout is historically low. No one is interested. But there are some important races. I was excited just uh, a few minutes before you called. Uh, Ted Lieu had decided to endorse um, uh, one of the Blue America candidates, um, Derek Marshall, who's uh, a great candidate. He ran Bernie's um, uh, uh, outreach program in Nevada. And he lives in the, in San Bernardino, and he's running there against a Republican named Jay Obernolte, a uh, just a you know a Trump knee jerk Republican. Mm-hmm. So that that was really good news, and that that's uh, one of the few chances to flip a seat from a Republican to a progressive. And then you know the Democratic Party managed to um, nominate. Or almost, they're about to nominate some really offensive characters, like two of the worst state legislatures, legislators in Sacramento, uh, Rudy Salas and Adam Gray. They're, they're, they're so bad. I mean, they're, they're both of them make uh, Joe Manchin look like a liberal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no one's going to go out. I mean, not actually no one, but lots of people won't go out and vote for them because they're both so terrible. Right. And, you know, I mean, if you want to... Uh, you know, uh, get get people to go out and vote. You don't find the most uh, reactionary members of, of Congress, uh, of the legislator, legislature to run for Congress. And you don't find people who are uh, known more than anything else for their corruption to run for Congress. That isn't going to encourage voters. But, you know, the Democratic Party, uh, even in California, is just so uh, worthless that, that they'll never learn that lesson. Right. Sports betting is on the ballot or is that not on the ballot in California? I don't, I don't know. Okay. And so we have uh, primaries in California, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota. Of those, what do you find the most interesting? What should we be looking at? Well, California is the most important. It, it has the most seats up. They have a lot of good, a lot of good candidates. I just talked about the the, wor- the two worst, but um, in in a lot of the districts that are very very blue, and that's a lot of the districts, there will be no Republican in the general. So we have a we have a jungle primary system. Everybody runs tomorrow on the same ballot. So in other words, um, you get a, you know, two or three Republicans running, two or three Democrats running, and the the two that have the highest number of votes, regardless of what party are the two that go on to uh, the general election, which is almost like a runoff. And um, in a lot, of, a lot of districts, they're so blue that uh, there will be two Democrats running. So in, in generally speaking, it's going to be, you know, kind of like a corporate liberal kind of thing running against, uh, to hold his seat, running against the progressive challenging him from the left. That we're going to have all over the state. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them in L.A. There's a couple in uh, San Diego. It's it's uh, it's exciting because uh, once they're a serious uh, contender, once they they pass the threshold, then a lot of these uh, progressives will start getting uh, media coverage. Right now, they don't get any media coverage. The media just covers the incumbent. Right. Right. 
Uh, all right. There's, there's a, a new seat in uh, Montana. We've had uh, Tom Winters on the show right. before. And, and he's running, I think there are just two uh, conservatives running against him now uh, in, um, in the new seat in Montana, the, the western part of the state, which is the less red part of the state. It's still red, but not as red as the eastern part of the state. And, uh, you know, I think Tom's got an uphill battle, but, um, but we'll see tomorrow. Um, you know, that's what I'm, I'm very excited about. There's nothing really in uh, New Mexico. There's some really good races in New Jersey. Uh, again, uh, congressional races where the uh, where there are progressives challenging the uh, the corrupt establishment candidates, uh, or, and, and in some cases uh, incumbents. So, like uh, Menendez's son, Senator Menendez, known for his corruption, has a son who uh, is supposedly as corrupt as the father. Learned it from the father, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's an open seat, and he's he's running, and there's a really good progressive running against him. So there are, there are lots of races like that. New Jersey has a, a special situation because they they they're so corrupt. They designed the ballot to make it next to impossible to vote for a challenger, even if you want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they make it very very hard to do that. There's a lawsuit now challenging that whole uh, uh, party line uh, situation. So what is your sense? Uh, heading towards the midterms, would you say, despite the disappointments, that the progressives are getting more candidates elected than ever before? Or not ever before, but within within the past 20 years. We're, we're seeing much more progressive candidates bubbling to the surface in the uh, Democratic... We're seeing progressive candidates, but we're... You know, uh, there's a guy from Brooklyn who plans to be the next speaker, and he will be the next speaker if the Democrats win, uh, named Hakeem Jeffries. He's a Wall Street guy. Uh, really, he was a terrible state legislator. Now he's a terrible member of Congress. And he, you know, Pelosi has kind of handpicked him behind the scenes to be, the, um, to be her successor. And unfortunately, speaking of behind the scenes, he's the one that's coordinating the efforts against progressives, uh, that are dumping millions and millions of dollars into races against progressives, usually in the last two weeks, where they're, so they're not prepared for what hits them. And he has defeated a lot of good uh, progressive candidates. Now he's going after progressive uh, incumbents as well, which is I've never seen that happen before. So he's so basically it's APAC money and uh, Democratic majority for Israel money, and in many of the cases also um, cryptocurrency billionaire money. Uh, so he's he's cobbling together these really vicious campaigns, all negative, against uh, against progressives. So you know, I am not at all uh, optimistic. You know, we, we a couple of candidates managed to beat him, uh, uh, Hakeem Jeffries' machine, because they were so far ahead that you know, even when he would slice twenty points off, they could still win by five points. But but literally. Unless you're 20 points ahead, his machine just like rolls right over you. So a very, very bad situation. In San, very Fr- bad. In, in San Francisco, California, our friend Shahid Buttar is running in the jungle primary. What does he so need? He'll make it into the, uh, I, I, I'm thinking, he'll make it into the general election against Nancy Pelosi. This race isn't about him 
beating her. That's not going to happen. This race is about the likelihood of her retiring uh, soon after she wins again. So the plan is she'll win, she'll retire, and then her daughter, Christine, will uh, supposedly inherit the seat. But uh, Shahid will be in position, hopefully, uh, to to um, to run a good campaign against uh, Nancy's daughter. Why would Nancy Pelosi give up? Who do you see uh, in the Democratic Party in the House who can throw that kind of money around that she can? Well, she's like I said, she picked. You probably weren't listening. I I, <laughs> I know, but does he have that? Uh, Jeffrey. But but that that would be Wall Street money. Is that? Yeah, Wall Street and corporate money. That's what he does. He has nothing to do with policy or uh, in any way, shape, or form. It's not not an interest interest for him. He's only about raising money. And I don't. When I say he's about raising money, I don't mean from from donors. I mean from you know real people. He raises corporate money uh, day in and day out. That's all he does. He's on the phone raising corporate money. If he becomes speaker or minority leader, well, the good thing about him becoming speaker or or majority leader is that he will be the worst uh, the worst leader of the House Democrats in our lifetimes. And in my mind, hasten the time when the Democratic Party splits in two, which has to happen for any for this country. Uh, because the the, 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 the party that um, the corporate party is, is so terrible and so not part of anything to do with progressivism at this point, that uh, it, the party just has to split in two. The Republican Party will probably split in two as well. Yeah, um, you would have so, you, you would have Hakeem Jeffries, a bagman for Wall Street, running the yeah. Democratic side of the House, and in I mean, the, and he's got a bunch of cronies around him, like Pete Aguilar, Coke Freak, uh, to to you know be part of his leadership team. So he's got a really really bad leadership team, uh, and the Democratic Party will just be absolute. I mean, they're pretty worthless already. But they'll be absolutely worthless. I mean, with him, you can say there's not a progressive bone in his body and never has been. You can't really say that about Pelosi because at one time she was a progressive. Right. And Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader, Democrat, is also a bag man for Wall Street. Yep. So it would be two Wall so Street... his job as, as um, Majority Leader seriously. You know, he, he won't let anything really bad happen to Wall Street. But he's, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he seems to, well, I, I don't really want to say too much good about him, but he's not as bad as, as I thought he was going to be. But I, you know, thought he would be really terrible. But he, he's not, he, he's still bad, but not that bad. It, w- it would be a beautiful thing to see the Democrat Party split into two, the Republican Party split into two. Because then you'd have to form coalitions to get a president elected. Yeah, there's another there's another possibility here as well, which is that the uh, mainstream conservatives of both parties get together, so that there would be like a you know a Democrat you know the the, the New Dems and the Blue Dogs form a party with the uh, you know the the shrinking. Uh, mainstream Republicans, and then the other side of the Republican Party, kind of a fascist party, has itself as a, a party who would want to be in a coalition with them, and then the uh, and then the progressives would have a party. Okay. But, you know, I mean, I, I spoke with two progressives today in, in the House, two very senior progressives, about uh, the threat of, of uh, Hakeem Jeffries, 
And they both just shrugged. You know, they said, you know, I said, why don't you guys run somebody? And they, and they just shrugged, no, nothing. Yeah. You know, they, 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 you know, they, they don't defend him, but they don't, uh, you know, they, they don't see, they don't see the direness of it. Or, or if they do see the direness of it, they just, they just don't feel there's anything they can do about it. Right. It's just really depressing. That, that's, that's why when you asked me uh, an upbeat question, I couldn't give you an upbeat answer. Trump is less of a threat today than he was a week ago, politically. Well, some people might say that because he, he, he got his uh, head handed to him in Georgia, of all places, where he lost everything. I mean, he you know his two primary enemies were... Um, Kemp, Brian Kemp, the current governor, who he, he thinks, you know, somehow stole the election from him, and the Secretary of State, who also stole the election from him and who's testifying against him, uh, and, uh, and the Attorney General, who also stole the election from him. So, so Trump had his own candidates uh, that he um, recruited, and in the case of Brian Kemp's race, he, he, uh, he recruited a former U.S. Senator, uh, 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 David Perdue, who didn't really want to run, and Trump, Trump talked him into it and made him all sorts of pie-in-the-sky promises that he would deliver uh, this and he would deliver that, and he didn't deliver anything, uh, although he did make, I think, a $2.5 million contribution, which is a big deal for Trump since he's so cheap he doesn't, give any, doesn't share any money with anybody. Right. But he did give money to uh, Purdue. And, and then, uh, I don't remember the exact number, but it, let's put it like this, it was not close. It was not even uh, it's not even reasonable. I think uh, Kemp beat Trump's candidate by something like fifty points. I mean, is horrifying. And Trump was at least positive that they would be able to hold the Secretary of State race to a uh, uh, to not a majority for the incumbent, but to, to make it into a uh, runoff. And that didn't happen either. Uh, his candidate Jody Heiss, who's a, con- a congressman and a crackpot, uh, you know, part of Gang Green. Uh, he, um, uh, he, 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 I love that gangrene. Oh, thank you. That's brilliant. Gangrene. Okay, I like, I like it. Um, so anyway, uh, they are, uh, so he, so that weakened him. He lost, you know, he, he talks about this, you know, mythical, uh, win loss situation where he's going to 95% wins. Well, that's because he, 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 he counts, Races that don't have don't don't have any um, opposition, so people run with no opposition, and he counts that as a win for him when he endorses them. I mean, most of the vast majority of people that he endorses have um, have either no opposition or no or no serious opposition. Uh, so you know, he endorses mostly incumbents uh, who are going to win with him or without him. But when it comes to the races where where it's it's much more of a question uh, um, if if the Trumpist can win or not. Uh, there uh, he he has a you know he has a, he has a decent uh, win win lose um, record. He certainly can take credit for um, uh, what's his name in Ohio, J D Vance. Right. I mean J D Vance. You, you have to admit he won because of Trump. That's why he won. Right. He was losing. Trump came in and he won. Right. Uh, and in terms of um, Doctor Oz. I'm thinking that Trump really had a lot to do with that too. But in both cases, those both candidates are not good candidates. 
and they, it gives an opening to Democrats. In Pennsylvania, that makes sense, but in Ohio, I mean, who would have thought a Democrat, let alone a kind of uh, middle-of-the-road-nothing Democrat like Tim Ryan, would have an actual shot? But the latest poll that I, I saw, well, all, all the recent polls show that uh, Vance and Ryan are running neck and neck. And the, the latest poll had Vance, ahead, had Vance behind, had uh, Ryan ahead by a point or two. Right. But it's in, it, that doesn't matter. But it, what really meant, you know, it doesn't mean anything that he's a point or two ahead. doesn't mean anything when he's a point or two behind. What, what it really says is that it's a, it's a competitive race. Right. And, uh, and, you know, and Vance has said a lot of very stupid things to, ple- to please publicly, to please Trump and to pl- please the MAGA base, things that are pretty much indefensible in a general election, even in a red-leaning state like Ohio. Right. So that's good. It's the same situation in, uh, in Pennsylvania with, with Dr. Oz, who, you know, I mean, let's be real. Uh, Dr. Oz is kind of like a mainstream conservative, and he's turned himself into a neo-fascist to please Trump and Trump's base. Now he's going to have to somehow dig himself out of that hole, but I don't see how he can. I mean, everyone sees all these crazy videos that, that he made. That uh, So he's, he's, he's going to be really torn, and there are a lot of attacks against him that aren't going away that were made during the, um, during the primary that are going to continue, including the attacks on him for being a, quote, Turk, right. uh, which I think really means Muslim. But uh, So... Uh, over the weekend, a Republican congressman from Buffalo resigned because he condemned the uh, National Rifle Association. Uh, kind it, of. Yeah, kind of it, condemned them. Is what it Brian did? Higgins? Who, who's the congressman? Um, what's his name again? Uh, I think it's not Brian Higgins. No, no, no. Brian Higgins, that was a long, long time ago. Okay. And that was, that was, uh, Brian Higgins was uh, not in that district. So this is a suburban district that goes from the, uh, the eastern suburbs of Buffalo, uh, to, to, uh, the western suburbs of Rochester, and then down south into very rural areas. But now they've re, they rejiggered the, um, the district entirely so that, you know, he probably didn't feel that comfortable. His name is Chris anyway, Jacobs. He's much more to the right than he is. He's kind of a mainstream conservative. He's from. He's a former Democrat. He's he comes from the richest family in Buffalo, and um, you know, he, he he didn't. He tried to get along with these uh, right wing Republicans, and he, it was it wasn't that easy for him to do because it wasn't the real him. He was putting it on all the time, and they they sensed it. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of right-wingers who wanted to take him on anyway. But he then said he was open. Remember, we're talking about the Buffalo Metro. And he said he's open to voting to ban uh, automatic weapons. And that caused a firestorm. And, they, you know, they started carrying on. They're going to censure him. Uh, the, the local Republican parties in the, in the counties, and they were all going crazy. And he, uh, he just decided, you know, do I really want this? Do I really want to, like, fight this? Trump called him and told him to uh, pull out of the race, and he did. His name is Chris Jacobs. I had forgotten the name. Yeah. He doesn't get credit for pulling out, does he? What do you mean credit? I just said he, 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 he's a coward for yeah. pulling out. Yeah, People, he get credit? Well, I'm saying the press, the way I saw it being spun oh, is... Oh, yeah, the New York Times is giving him credit, yeah. 
Right. He should have stayed and fought. And yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Before you go, and again, sorry about the phone connection. I was going to call you over the weekend. My phone died. So I, I want to talk to you about auctioning off some of that artwork for your favorite. I wasn't thinking about auctioning it off. I was thinking about when I first proposed it to you, I was actually thinking about a David Feldman show T-shirt. Oh. And that's really what I had in mind. You were thinking that I was talking about Blue America. I wasn't. I was really talking about having T-shirts that you could give away as promotions on your show. Nothing to do with Blue America. All right. Now that my phone is working, let's talk tomorrow. Uh, But before before you go, Thursday night, January 6th goes prime time. What what should we be looking for? for we should be looking for the beginning that a beginning that leads to a firing squad for trump and bannon and those people <laughs> no hang uh, no every time you hear uh adam schiff or jamie raskin or liz cheney make a point in your mind just think firing squad <laughs> think offering a last cigarette well, you're joking, but what uh, in the, uh, the law? Uh, what when? What uh, treason? What is the punishment for treason? Yes, yes, it's, it, yes. It's, that's why I say firing squad. Right. I mean, I'm not one of the. I, you know, you know that. I, I, I'm for. I'm all in favor of the death penalty, but only for uh, Republicans. Um, <laughs> so. You know, I, I would, you know, look, if I am told that Trump is going to go to a maximum security prison for the rest of his life, you know, fine, another injustice, but, you know, better than nothing. But I would, I would much, much rather see primetime firing squad. Right. Howie Klein, uh, we should get a petition going. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive candidates around America. Read them every day over at Down With Tyranny. Thank you so much. And I apologize for the phone quality today. I I had a feeling today you were in in out of space. Yes, very well said. Thank you, Howie. I'll talk to you soon. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Yes. Okay. bye-bye. Well, uh, were you able to hear that? David Cobb, were you able to hear that? I I was indeed. And on point one, my feelings are hurt because you you talked to Howie Klein on the phone over the weekend and not me. So I'm just going to get over that. No, 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 I didn't. I didn't talk to him. My phone is I'm having technical problems. So but I'll talk to you over the weekend. I will say, Feldo, I always say. My technical problems may be technical problems, or it could be the FBI's recording equipment malfunctioning. (laughs) One can never be sure. The second thing is, like, I think that what you and Howie, I heard the end of it, but what you and Howie were talking about really set up the conversation that I want to have, which is that we need as, as ordinary Americans to come to terms that actual fascism is emerging in this country, that fascism has a political definition. It's not merely totalitarianism. It's not merely racism. Fascism is a way to organize society. And to be clear, 
fascism requires a mass base in order to be able to uh, uh, to organize a political economy. And I was grateful to hear Howie actually talk about January 6th the way he did. I was grateful to hear him acknowledging the power and control that Donald Trump has over the Republican Party, because I want to start this conversation by being clear and unequivocal, and that is that January 6th was an attempted coup in this country. Uh, It was not merely yet one more example of malfeasance, and by the way, malfeasance on the part of Trump and Clinton and like like there's a long list of of things that that we could get outraged about uh, the executive branch but January 6th was not just beyond the pale it is literally a full frontal attack on the very basics of what I will call bourgeois democratic uh, 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 structures, right? Like I have all sorts of critiques. You've heard me make it uh, uh, about how the the electoral system actually operates. But January six was a fucking coup attempt, uh, and the fact that Donald Trump and his minions are not in jail right now is a is a testament to the failure of the existing system to protect itself, a failure of the neoliberal Democrats not only to act, but to fully understand what the actual threat is. They mouth occasionally how bad uh, Republicans or Trump is to try to gin up the base for donations or to get people to vote, whatever. I'm saying something different, Faldo. I'm saying, no, this is actual fascism. And uh, I am I am outraged. I am mortified, and I am scared shitless uh, uh, about the fact that not enough, you know, people are talking about what the actual threat is. Okay, and there are two articles. One is in the Guardian that we'll get to in a second. Let me play the devil's advocate. Let me be Barack Obama, and he calls Joe Biden up. And says, Joe, you got to be careful here. Uh, Trump has unleashed a Pandora's box of fascism. He has tapped into all our our authoritarian impulses, and you got to go slowly with somebody like this. Don't don't stir the hornet's nest. Ride it out. Play for time. Once you get rid of Trump, once you chip away at his authority, the threat of authoritarianism dissipates. My question to you is, do we have fascism without Trump? Do you have do you have do you have not do you have the Nazis without Hitler? Do you have fascism without Mussolini? Do you have the Daily Show without Jon Stewart? Well, that, that last question is a is a comedic uh, uh, premise. Now, I'm not. I'm not. I, I refuse to get into that conversation with you. By but the, the way, answer is I yes. The Daily to... Show exists without John Stewart. But it does, right? right. But that's the point, right? Like, uh, I, but I really want to uh, circle back here. But do you have the Nazis without Hitler? You had they killed? Had Operation Valkyrie succeeded? They kill. They kill Hitler. 
what happens once once the once the catalyst has has begun the process is is ongoing the nazis were only defeated when they were actually defeated look i'm of a certain generation right i was born in 1962 uh, not notwithstanding I, I look older but i'll just tell you and I was talking to Mel Figueroa, who's been on your show. She and I both came up during the punk rock era. And we both had the experience where uh, where skinhead Nazis would come into venues where we were. And I used to promote and produce, you know, alternative rock shows, which included punk shows, right? And there, I, I've had the lived experience, Faldo. Like when, when actual Nazi skinheads showed up at a club, one of two things happened. Either you drove them out or they drove you out. There is no negotiating with with true fascists. There is no let's agree to disagree. There is an ideological framework that neither in your scenario, Barack Obama or Joe Biden or any of the neoliberals actually understand. And so to answer your question, damn right, there, there would have been uh, Nazism even, continue even if uh, Operation Valkyrie ha- had succeeded. Now, would the, uh, the German high command have been willing to sue for peace? OK, probably. But, there, but Nazism itself uh, would have continued. This is the point. Whether, uh, whether Donald Trump believes it or not, whether he's just a flim flam you know, a confidence man just uh, playing, uh, playing, uh, playing the the card. The reality is Steve Bannon is an ideological believer. Uh, And what they have unleashed, like go and listen to any of the, of the crowds. They are very clear about what they're for and what they're committed to. And like what that represents, Feldo, like it's frightening. I get it. Like it is hard to come to terms with it, but I genuinely and sincerely believe that the Republican Party uh, under the, the under Trump Omania uh, is now preparing to to basically if they if they if they are able to claim the executive branch in 2024, if they are able to claim uh, victories and take over the federal government, they are going to dismantle uh, liberal bourgeois democracy. Like there's just no doubt about that. Now, here's where I land is, okay, we have to be able to defeat fascism but we cannot allow neoliberalism to be the extent of what it is that we're actually fighting for because that's a losing proposition. You have to, the only way to defeat fascism is to create a society and a political economy where the seeds of hate and resentment uh, that, that it feeds on are not possible. And that's why, okay, like go out and vote. And I get it that there's like, but, but, that's why voting alone will never actually defeat this. And it's why I'm so just pissed off at the Democrats for not understanding that if you actually want to get the white working class base, give them single payer health care. Give us single payer health care. Give us a true living wage. Return the, the, the ability for ordinary Americans to feel like they're actually part of it. And, and it's just... I'm sorry. I'm. I, I am. I am 
having a hard time controlling my emotion about this topic because I see with clarity the, the, the depth of the danger. And I am not seeing the leadership of the neoliberal Democratic Party respond accordingly. Not, not, they are not responding commensurate with the challenge. Right. And this comes from somebody who famously talks about not fetishizing electoral politics. You know, that's true. But electoral politics have consequences. They do indeed. Uh, And and so this is the point, right? Like, so uh, I'll say it again. Defeat fascism without allowing neoliberal bourgeois democracy to be the limits of what our demands and expectations are. We need to build a mass movement that is broad, is deep, is politically educated and conscious, right? Like really aware of the ecological crisis, the economic crisis, the political crisis. And Democrats who are constantly just playing the, uh, the, the, the get out the vote game are actually missing the point. Uh, that's actually part of the reason why even in the midst of such a, a horrific existential threat and, and you know, in the last uh, election cycle, uh, presidential election cycle, at least, we did not see a, a market uptick in, um, in, in voter participation, right? right? Like that's not apathy, David, that's cynicism. Like apathy is when you just don't care. The cynicism is it doesn't matter. And our job has got to be, it actually does matter. It matters a great deal. Uh, but but we cannot fall for the hype of the Joe Bidens uh, uh, to say that that's what's actually going to inspire people. Because right. he won't. Washington is irrelevant. We're going to find out once again just how immaterial Washington is Thursday night, prime time when they hold the hearings about the insurrection. People will believe what they believed before the hearings and nobody's mind is going to be changed. They're doing this for history. Washington isn't going to change. Washington. Well, though, you you make me smile uh, because that that uh, first of all, I agree with you. Second of all, one of my great mentors uh, and uh, Alan Minsky, who introduced us, uh, also knew Richard Grossman. Richard Grossman was uh, a a towering figure and mentor for me. Uh, He wrote Fear at Work. Uh, He was one of the very early people. Uh, He ran the Stop the Poisoning campaigns at Highlander. He was one of the very earliest people in the 1970s bringing together the oil, chemical, and atomic workers, uh, and uh, environmentalists, right? Grossman was actually executive director of Greenpeace, and he was working with OCAW people to actually bring, like, far ahead of his time, right? I'm going to tell you this. Grossman, my friend, my mentor, he's since passed, but Richard Grossman once said, when I was talking about D.C. and organizing for, you know, one more mass protest, I'll never forget, he said, Cobb, listen to me. D.C. is lovely, especially in the springtime when the uh, cherry blossoms are blooming. But from now on, there's only two reasons that I'm going to go back to Washington, D.C. One, as a tourist, 
ideally in the springtime when the cherry blossoms are blooming or secondly as part of a conquering army because otherwise dc is not only a cesspool but it is a place where the imagination is sucked out of you they taunt you with opportunities and they 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 literally will beguile you uh to convince you from doing what really needs to be done and it reminds me of what my mama once told me she said keith my middle name uh, i grew up as a keith mama southern for grandmother the devil will not come to you smelling of sulfur and with cloven hooves. The devil will be a good looking bastard and he will know your favorite cookies and he will bake them homemade and deliver them to you. The devil is seductive and dangerous. And that's, I think, how I think about electoral politics. We have to engage it, but my goodness, we have to understand the limits of it as well. And this is again, why I am so grateful for you to be willing to actually talk about January 6th and and have the courage to talk about the the fact that Washington DC has already made a determination about how they're going to, to to proceed with it. That's what I would actually be looking for. I would be looking to say do do any of the Democrats Um, uh, as part of that committee, have the courage to actually name what happened on January 6th. It was an attempted coup. And if they're if they're unwilling to do that, then they're unwilling to. I I think some of them I think some of them have. I think. uh, Yes, agree. I think some of them have. May the goddess bless Jamie Raskin and Jamie Raskin. Yes, I think some of them have. The uh, a conquering army. Well, January 6th attempted something like that. I believe in nonviolent resistance, and I believe that we have all the tools uh, in in the law and in the Constitution to be a conquering army of Washington. We just have to know what we want, and we, we don't have to resort to violence. I think there are other ways to scare these people into submission. Oh. I wish... We would focus on money. Uh, one Listen, of the, you, you and I agree. You know, look, we mostly well, let me agree. just let me just we, finish. Let me, let me, oh, let me, yeah, the 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 anything that kills people in America is because of greed. That's what I've. I look at every issue that's killing us, from guns to climate catastrophe to health care. It's greed. And I wish we could focus on one thing, money, because the other side is only focused on money. The left needs to clarify their mission, and that is to take money by any means necessary legally from the health insurance companies, from the NRA, the gun manufacturers who who use the NRA as their lightning rod, from the arms manufacturers, any discussion other than money is noise. And I wish the left could understand that there is a game being played in Washington. It is for largesse, period. All our problems, all our immiseration flows from the fact that greedy bastards 
are taking all the money from us and we need to fight an asymmetrical war, not depend on Washington. We fight a peaceful, legal, asymmetrical war to get the money from the ruling class. It's that simple. So listen, you know, Feldo, I, I, I hope Dr. Fraud is actually with us with us because I'm grinning because literally you are talking about Antonio Gramsci's idea of a war of maneuver, right? And to your listeners, uh, folks who are watching us live, viewers, but those of you who are listening by podcast, please go and check out the work of the great Marxist philosopher Antonio Gramsci, uh, who was uh, a brilliant thinker, his prison notebooks. Remember, he was a Marxist who was like, hey, we were supposed to win. What the hell happened? You know, what, like Musa, and he was imprisoned by uh, Mussolini. And what he realized was, oh, we did not actually fully understand what, that not just the ruling elite, but they, we thought that the, the, when class consciousness emerged, uh, that everybody in the working class uh, would rise up, and they did not. Uh, and uh, I think Gramsci had the best understanding about how fascism and how and why fascism emerged, how it was able to grow into a true mass movement against their own class interest. He also understood the difference between a war of maneuver and a war of position. Uh, Gramsci is the one who famously said that the old world is dying the new world is struggling to be born during this interregnum or during this interstitial space is the time of monsters. Trump and what Trump represents are monstrous to be sure. And just as the fascists of the 1930s, that what, what was dying was the agra agrarian society, the way to organize all of society. What was struggling to be born was what we now understand as industrialism, a whole way of reorganizing society. I argue today we have two things going on. We have an ecological collapse beginning and economically we have a new like the industrial society is basically being replaced by some version of digital uh like data like information and attention as capital itself this is a reordering of the entire society it's part of the reason why the ruling elite do not have agreement about actually uh, how to proceed this is why as dangerous as it is it is actually a moment of true opportunity because in this interregnum, in, in, in this interstitial space, the old neoliberal way of ordering things cannot and will not continue. We will either have some version of eco-socialism or some version of fascism. It's not, and I'm not happy about it, but that polarization, I'm not creating it. I'm observing and describing it, right? And so this is a long way of saying the idea of money, you bet. Secondly, when you say the left, I got to tell you, the left, as I describe the left, understands that with clarity. It's the neoliberals. It, it is the what we can at best call the centrist of the soft left that don't understand it. Right. And that like what I try to do on this program, I'll be really transparent, Feldo. I come onto this program not just because I like you, which I do. You know that I like Dr. Fraud. This is this is good. 
I'm trying to bring as many people as I can into a consciousness about how social change works. Yes, we have to engage in electoral politics, but if all we ever do is electoral politics, we are doomed. Like we are doomed. Because they can also, capitalism is dying. Corporate capitalism is dying. It's not only the digital stuff. China is growing by eight and a half percent because they're regulating capitalists, even though they have a lot of them. We're growing by two percent or less. You know, they have fast trains speeding over their country. We have none. It's crazy. Corporate capitalism is dying. And with it, the old Europe is dying and the United States There were two great empires after World War II, the Soviet Union, which died out of its own corruption, and the United States, which is dying out of its own corruption and has to be replaced. And that's, you know, and people are being displaced, not by black people with their replacement theory, but by machines and robots and computers and foreign workers and all the old dreams you work hard, you'll make a living, you'll be somebody, which was offered to men who were white, okay? It's dying, and they're going crazy, and they're regaining their manhood with guns. But that's what's dying, as well as the planet, which is being plundered by capitalism with no regard for the future. And I think the left has a chance only if we unite That's what won in Chile. That's what won in Portugal. That's what won the abortion struggle. That's that's what will win because we're all these disparate movements. We need a socialist basic agreement to address everything together. But we have to understand capitalism is dying. They are, you know, it, it. Marx said they'd sell, capitalists would sell you a rope to hang them. Well, that's what they're doing. They're destroying the planet. They're destroying their own businesses. They're destroying America, their big capitalist showpiece. And just like Yates said, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. The center of America cannot hold. When people... The center of France cannot hold. Mélenchon did great in these recent parliamentary elections, and probably I didn't read about the fascists. They probably did okay too, but the middle is falling, and you need a different dream because that's destroyed. And I'll tell you, Feldo, thank you for that, Doctor Fraud. Uh, and that's why, to me, like the the we need to remember what is. Every human being descends from indigenous people who were once in right relationship with each other and the natural world. And the dream there was not conquest. It was not extraction. It was not power over. It was stewardship. It was power with. It was community, right? And that's the thing that's so, like, I am on the verge of tears because it's such It's so simple and so beautiful to actually say the real dream is community. It's love. It's compassion. It's connectedness, right? And what I understand is people will either embrace that and join us or they will not. I cannot actually 
I, 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 I have given up trying to persuade people. What I do try to do is to conduct myself in a way I hope to inspire people and to invite them into this work. And I got to say, because uh, I know it's your time, uh, Dr. Prager. Okay. I see we're at the top I, of the hour. I feel generous towards you. Go for it. I, I want it. Well, I, I, you'll be glad you did because I got to say, I was interviewed on Dr. Fraud's uh, uh, podcast. I don't know when it comes out, but I like it was one of the most brilliant conversations I've ever had with you and your colleagues. So it's 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 gonna. I don't know when it comes out, but it's it's not in your head. That one, yeah. And, and we did like that conversation. I felt like it was as raw and deep. It was both intellectual and spiritual. Really and truly, I felt like that is the conversation that we need to start having everywhere. Let's get real about the, the crisis, about what where we are, and how desperately we need each other. Right. And also those indigenous societies, which we destroyed or tried to, were primitive communisms. Everybody shared. The idea was we won't survive alone. We will survive and share together. And that really, we need each other. And without, and capitalism destroys that. Within capitalism, other people are a chance for you to exploit for your own gain. And it's doomed. It is. And and that's the, that's the thing. Like, like, uh, like, so, so I am so grateful, uh, Dr. Fraud, to actually name, you know, what Marx called it primitive capitalism. But remember, he wasn't denigrating it when he said primitive. He wasn't trying to say, no. oh, no, he, what he was say saying was, it was, was saying before. Simple. I'm sorry. Basic. Basic. Exactly. It was it, when he says primitive uh, communism, what he's saying is. This was at its core how human beings were actually meeting uh, people's needs. Now, he did correctly point out uh, that surplus uh, value was not able to be uh, uh, created. And this is what excites me, actually, is with appropriate technology, with appropriate advancements, we now live, if we actually had the core values of love and cooperation Y'all, there's enough to go around. There's enough for everybody to have a rich and meaningful life. We don't have to toil in factories. We would not have to, to like, like we could literally be living in the millennials call it. How do they say it? Uh, uh, luxury gay space uh, uh, communist. Right. right. Uh, I, I forget that the phrase that they use, but it's really cute and really funny. It's like Star Trek. Literally, y'all, we could live in Star Trek. Like and like these folks that the, the fascists are holding on to something that's dying and is going to kill the rest of us. That's right. And they look, Karl Marx say of capitalists, accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. That is Moses and your prophets. That is what they believe in accumulation for them. And that eliminates everyone. The idea is to embrace togetherness, to embrace cooperation, and that we have to to save the world. And it, you know, it's palpable, it's possible. And I think unity is what the left needs most, because if we had unity, we could stop the bribery of our legislature. We could stop the idea that here over the weekend there was mass carnage. There were mass, there were, I think, 
15 mass shootings just over the weekend. People are falling apart. And how do you how do you unify the left? Not going to ban assault weapons. What, how, how do you unify the left? You have to say, we'll perish without unity and but, go around and try to get people. But that's an abstraction. Unity, unity, unity is an abstraction. The idea of unity—you can be unified. Right. The Nazis were the Nazis were unified. Right. How do you sell the left on unity? It seems to me you need one or two specifics that you get them on board. You would say that. So, no, they, you would no, say. No, I got to jump in here because I, 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 you won't win without the rest of us. You'd say to the gay, lesbian, and etc. rights people, you won't win without the rest of us. You could say to the black people, you're not going to win by it without us. You're 5% of the population. You say to the laboring class, you won't win without us. We have the numbers. They have the money. We need each other. Do you mind if I push back? Do you mind if I push back? I don't want to sound rude, but I think we're all frustrated and I'd like to push back on this because it feels like we're losing. And so the message of unity, lockstep, where are we marching? Why? We're individuals. We, we don't join clubs. We're Americans. We have a sense of our own identity. Why would I want to join the left unless you're promising me something? What are you promising me? you'll win, that you'll finally have a share of of what we all produce, that you'll finally have a decent life, community with other people, hope for the future, hope for children, a green planet and survival itself. But only if we work together, not unity that you're wiped out, but that we cooperate. And, you know, Feldo, I agree with Dr. Fraud. And I will say this, I like, we are at a point now in this moment in history where we either win everything or nothing. Not. Like, and again, I'm not creating the polarization. I, and I, like Dr. Fraud and I so often find ourselves in agreement. We, we will occasionally disagree on some of the, the minor details, but she and I have an understanding of how the arc of history uh, unfolds. And uh, it is because of that, a shared sensibility that we're able to so quickly find commonality and say, okay, yes, but da da da. So when you ask the question, like, like, how do we unite? The, my point is, and and I'll speak for myself, but I think that Dr. Fraud and I would agree as well as others is the the unity is in the power, like like that the 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 unity is literally the opportunity to fully participate and have ownership interest in everything. This old idea of, oh, well, we like, it's Dr. Fraud is the same thing with the AFL versus the CIO, right? Like, is it going to be unionism that is about actual social justice and an injury to one is truly an injury to all and that you're bringing the working class together as a class? Uh, to assert its power, or do you do business unionism? Do you say we're only representing our individual uh, members, right? right? Like, this is the distinction. Dr. Fraud, I, I'll, again, I'll speak for myself. I believe that we have to unite 
all of us who are willing to unite. I used to say, I only have one enemy and that's my class enemy. Now I have to come to terms with, I actually have a class enemy and I have enemy, I have members of my own class who are willing to break fascist rather than eco-socialist. Mm-hmm. And they, like, I, I can't bring them right. along. That, like, no, but when we say unity, we don't mean that we wipe out the individual concern about ecology and the planet or labor rights or feminist rights or sexual choice rights or sexual destiny rights. None of it. But it means we have to be together because what we have is the mass of people. What they have is the money. And they can't do it without us ever build everything and continues to build everything. That's what, that's why um, Chris Smalls, when they won at the uh, Amazon labor union said, this is a revolution because they cooperated and won against the behemoth. Right. The law on its side and and everything. To be clear, the law was against them. The media was against them. The neoliberal leadership of the democratic party was against them. All they had was each other. The AFL was not for them. <laughs> That's right. Let, let me. And they had everyone, and they spoke to the people that they worked with. Let, let me push back on this. I don't disagree with you, but I'm looking for numbers on the board. How do we win? And the idea of unity, uh, to me, you have 70 million, roughly, people who voted for Donald Trump. 75, 77 million who voted for Joe Biden and then 100 million who don't vote. That's right. Of the 140, 150 million Americans who vote. uh, A lot of them think to themselves, F unity, F coming together. I'm, you know, you work hard, you take care of yourself and uh, I, I, I'm not willing to worry about my neighbor. I think that's where how most Americans, unfortunately, have been socialized, especially since Reagan. That I that the idea you. of yes, unity, yes. you know, I'll, I'll go to a Springsteen concert and turn on my uh, big lighter to show unity, but I'm not rallying with my fellow man to improve material conditions. I think that's where most Americans, unfortunately, are. Would you agree? No, I wouldn't, because the labor movement is surging now, because it's occurring to people. I work hard. I get shit. I never get ahead. My kids will be poorer than me. I can't afford anything. Two full-time workers that work at minimum wage, full-time, can't afford an apartment, or a house or anything in any city, state, or county in the United States. So that their idea, I'll just take care of myself, I'm working well, and I'm, no, they're not, they're suffering. 60% of people are in trouble. We, you know, therefore, they can't do it alone. This isn't and- time in the United States where if you were white and male, you could get ahead. Uh, 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 uh. Nobody can by themselves unless they've been, you know, a few can. Okay, but very few. The massive. You know, Bill, uh, sorry. The other thing that I'll just point out is in times of acute crisis, September 11, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy, 
any national disaster, what do people do? They come together, they quote unify, and they do their best to help each other, right? Like that's, that is literally what history shows us time and time again. Uh, And, you know, the, the, like I know in uh, my experience, uh, having lived through hurricanes, that's what happens. And when you are in the moment, uh, you begin to act. Uh, now, does everybody do that? No. No, isn't it? Most people do that? Yes. Yeah. And look at the, the pandemic. Look at how many mutual aid societies erupted just self-organized well, but that, for folks to actually do their best. That, to help that, yes, but but we also saw divisiveness. There, there are forces at work to divide us in times of crisis. Of course. And again, like, so, uh, and I did, I did notice uh, Joe in Norway said, Hey, why not push from the other side of the left on the pushback? Right. Like again, at the end of the day, if folks think that, that the world is nasty, brutish and short, and there's nothing to be done. I, 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 okay. I'm not going to try to convince anybody, even you fellow. What I'm saying is this, I am doing the work day in and day out with people in my community to actually prepare folks to build the lifeboat that we actually need. And I come onto this show to try to convince other people, wherever you live, work, play, and pray to band together with other folks to build a lifeboat as well. And what we're going to have to do is connect our lifeboats uh, because the, oh, the no. crisis that's yeah. coming has only Huge. begun. So and you know what? It's recognized. Even Jamie Dimon, I heard, you know, the head, what is he, the head of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. Or JP, he said, look, Americans don't know it. There's a hurricane coming. It's all going to blow away. OK, they know it, but they're trying to grab it before it all disappears. Grab it for me. And we could build a lifeboat. And I think that's what you have to say. The planet without us uniting is done. And so is your life. People no longer think if I work hard, I can protect my own. They can't. They won't. That's over. The American dream is dead. Okay? Aren't we dealing, though, when we're dealing with the American people? I'm going to push back. I'm not disagreeing with Go you. Ahead. I'm, 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 I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying. It does feel that we're in trying to animate the American people to act, to rise up legally and peacefully to animate them to rise up we're dealing with addicts they're addicted and occasionally they know they need to do something but they can't the genius of bernie is he sat in for 50 years with into conversations like we're having right now and he isolated one specific pursuit medicare for all and i think the left needs to take a page from bernie you want unity you have to offer one thing or five things i disagree you know more than i do but it seems to me simplicity is what sells but that's false one Solution isn't all we need to change capitalism. If you're going to focus on one thing, it's capitalism has to go. That way of treating people, that way of exploiting people. But how do you get rid of capitalism? That way of how do you get rid of it? Can make more money. 
How do you get rid of people capitalism? People have gotten rid of it all over. So well, let, let me take that on head on, Faldo. So and maybe sometime you know, uh, on a show, what, what I'll what I would uh, request is the opportunity to to come on and break yeah, down non-reformist reform. Communist. I'm sorry. What are you saying, David? So, so uh, Feldo asked, well, how Suddenly do you get rid of capitalism? And what I'm saying is non-reformist reforms is how you get rid of capitalism. You identify the key reforms that are achievable, that can actually win, make people's lives better, that are in what what uh, social, uh, social change agents call Overton's window, right? Overton's window is w- the window of what is possible, right? And sometimes you fight to try to shift Overton's window, right? Remember, there was a time where, but anyway, Overton's window, what is actually possible now? So I will argue there are six key reforms that are achievable, they're, they're being won in multiple places all across the world and in the United States right now. Here are the six. One, worker-owned cooperatives as a way to produce and distribute goods and services. Number two, participatory budgeting. Number three, public banking. Number four, locally owned energy production and distribution mechanisms. Uh, Number five, the the, the use of a universal basic income. Uh, and uh, number six, the use of community land trusts. The reason that I'm using those is that those make people's lives better, but they also undermine the power of the capitalist and the ruling class. They're a way to actually shift the power structure. They're not just a reform that then when you end it, you say we won and you stop. That's the distinction between a non-reformist reform and a a reform. Like, you know that I am a huge supporter of uh, single payer and. uh, Okay, so let let me ask you this. Let me let me ask you this, because Dr. Fraud is having Internet problems. You gave me concrete examples of. So worker owned businesses. Yes. Worker owned businesses. Is it against the law in America to have a worker owned business? It is not. And so where do we see these happening? Oh, all across the country. Uh, and in fact, it's one of the the the, uh, the fastest growing uh, ways to organize business. We're, and in fact, I can bring you economists on uh, that could could, uh, could speak much more eloquently and uh, uh, accurately than I could. But to show you that every single study shows that worker owned cooperatives businesses are actually better businesses. They're not just better businesses for the worker owners, which they Is are. there a limit to, I, I love this and thank you for this. Is there a limit to how big a worker owned business could get? Because once you start stepping on Whole Foods territory, they're gonna come in and break you. How big can a, how successful can a worker owned business get until they have to be taken out by the bigger corporations. Listen, at some point we are headed to that. Like there, there's no doubt about that. But let me tell you this. In Spain, the third largest national corporation, Dr. Fraud, you're back. 
So tell us what the third largest business entity in Spain is. It's Mondragon, which is a collection of 104,000 people in different cooperatives, and they all cooperate each other with each other. But so- can you? That's that's Spain, and the, we've ta- and I love the idea of worker. I'm not. This is America which is a caricature of capitalism. Everybody's playing the lottery. Everybody thinks they're going to win the genetic lottery or it's all about self-sufficiency, foolishly. Can a worker-owned business grow to the point where where somebody gets, uh, where the workers get uh, not rich, but incredibly comfortable? Yes, you know, already there are small versions of this. The Azermendi Azermendi bakeries in San Francisco started out as just one bakery. Now they have pizza, they have cheese, they have several bread stores, and everyone is guaranteed who works there $70,000 a year, and they're doing great, and they're expanding. But can they compete? But are there, you need protections in place to keep the bigger well, Sarah Lee from and Entenmann's from putting them out of business. If they no, got too big, like, they would be put out of business, right? Look, no, just like they tried to put the Amazon labor union out of business. That's not a business, though. I'm talking about a worker-owned business. So, so well, Amazon is not a worker-owned business. You're right. I see what you mean, but that's no. Of course, they can't do that. Again, like at the end of the day, that's why actually we have to be organizing for power, right? Like this is the Alinsky understood. uh, The issue is never the issue. The issue is always power, right? And and I absolutely agree with him like uh, Mm -hmm. about that point. The second thing that I want to make is, although it's not a pure worker owned cooperative, the there is an employee owned company in the United States with over 200,000 employees. That's Publix supermarkets. Uh, it is like th- these business entities can actually work. But that's why it's important to say worker owned cooperatives and community land trusts and public banking and participatory budgeting. What I'm getting at is we have to democratize the ownership of how commerce is uh, 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 operates. We've been trained to think that only the experts can make this thing run. Workers make everything run. Workers know how to actually do everything, right? It's the ownership issue that's really uh, at stake here. And I want to take head on, you're right. We've been lied to and propagandized about the lottery. We have been lied to and propagandized that like hard work will, will equal success like and we've got to actually engage the the work from the bottom up grassroots up to say our actual power is actually together and the only way we win is if we all win and that's actually a um, a narrative that i would argue is a winning narrative but there's a reason, Feldo, that somebody like you is not allowed to have a program on mainstream uh, media outlets, right? Like, uh, there's a reason for that. There's a reason that what Ralph Nader was vilified. You know, he went from the most trusted man in America to being vilified. Uh, why? 
because he had the audacity to speak truthfully and plainly uh, about how power operates. And yet people I know. Our culture, you know, we are the United States. A house divided cannot stand, said Lincoln. You can't secede from the union. There's a whole lot of unity talk. People on a winning team have to play together. If they're all doing their own thing, the team would lose. There is, there are those tenets as part of our society and we can build on them and people are understanding that they're not getting ahead the old ways they can't they have to cooperate and there's lots of examples of it the women's soccer team which is a big inspiration but they decide okay we're going to make sure this is done and they publicized it everywhere and went on strike and were an inspiration there's a lot of unity talk in our society that we can build on and people understand that and they also understand it because you don't get out of kindergarten if you can't share and you can't cooperate because in order to basically civilize people you need a communal understanding and everyone has that somewhere and they're failing that 150 million that don't vote that's who AOC addressed the people who don't vote in her district because they have nobody to vote for Yeah, and uh, I'm just trying to figure out why there's this sense of paralysis that the left has, and and I'm trying to, you know, get us. Because they're so busy being correct that they don't realize that we need each other, and that's the most important thing. Not who made a microaggression that was a slur. No, that's a mistake corrected. But the idea is to get together and be stronger. And I think the left was hijacked by the FBI and the CIA and Operation Great Wurlitzer, which introduced identity politics into the left as a way of subverting unity so that they got Barbara, they got Gloria Steinem, CIA agent, into the women's movement. They got several blacks into the black movement to change civil rights into black power against whitey because they realized that unity is what will destroy capitalism if i had to unite the left if i had to unite the left i would push fire uh, financial independence retire early it's a movement among millennials financial independence re- retire early and the, and i think that's a winning message and it creates unity on the left and it creates an understanding of how money works and how corporate ownership works. And that is, if you're in your 20s, if you're in your 30s, don't buy anything. Stop. I am appalled by the consumerism on the left. I am appalled by somebody I care very deeply about, a leftist who went with her cousin to go see Top Gun. And I said, why would you support, why would you give your money to this war porn? It's war porn. It's propaganda. It's that you're, you are supporting the enemy when you go see this crap. Well, I vote the right way and I'm almost vegan. You have to reject everything. And that includes not spending money on this crap. When you say to me, mainstream media, 
would never give somebody like me a show uh, or put Ralph Nader, the radio show, on mainstream media? Of course not. So the question is, why would anyone on the left keep listening to MSNBC or CNN or support these rags these neoliberal rags. It's not just about voting. It's not just about mobilizing. It's acting as a human bit individually and saying, I reject all of this. I'm not going to eat your meat. I'm not going to go to your fast foods. I'm not going to buy your books, listen to your music. I'm, I am not going to see your movies. I reject all of it. But David, you, then you have to have a supporting alternative culture. It's That's called reading happens. books. It's called use the internet, but it is not spending crap, your money on crap. Go to the well, library. If the right values, you wouldn't spend money on crap. And if we teach people that they need each other and we need to cooperate, then watching Top Gun is a whole lot less fun. I think the me- my message, if I, if I could get the left to march in lockstep... Mm-hmm. It's you have you have more power than you realize, and it's in your pocket, and it's how you spend your money. In connection with others, look. If we had a general strike, when the way Sarah Nelson called for, when um, Trump wanted people to work as um, security agents in the airplanes and get no salary. If all the Americans worked out, that would be the end. When we have general strikes, it'll be the end. Okay? They've changed apartment rules in Berlin where there's a movement to get 142,000 units from the biggest landowners and make them affordable. And they had such huge demonstrations. Okay, we have to get in the street. We have to demonstrate. We have to show we're not working. We're not doing it. Instead of just individually. And people are almost there. 20 million people have dropped out of the labor force. Amazing. They dropped out of the labor force because they're disrespected and underpaid. People are saying no, but they don't have a movement that says we can all say no together and we will have the power. We need each other. I say people, young people, people who are struggling should move to red states, rural areas, go off the grid, form communities grow your own food, turn to veganism, and stop buying crap. You're killing yourself, you're killing the planet, and you're killing our democracy by buying all this crap. Reject it. Don't spend $5,000 to go see Bruce Springsteen. He doesn't need the money. Don't support this garbage. Cancel your cable. But if people have enough different values and understand and are inspired enough with each other, then that's obvious. Well, I think people should be scolded about how they spend their money. You know, budgets, participatory budgeting, I wanted to ask you about that. Budgets are a reflection of your values. How you spend your money is the best way to see who you are, what you, that money is a language. And you, if you, you know, I have a credit card bill that I look at every month and I that's not who I am, but it shows me what I value. Who do I donate to? 
where do I, when do I take the easy way out and choose Lyft over mass transit? When do I take the easy way out and go to Subway for a sandwich instead of cooking my own meal? Every time I look at my credit card statement, I see my weaknesses. If I eat out, that's weakness. If I use a Lyft, that's a weakness. If I uh, rent a car, that's weakness. And that's how people have to be trained. How you spend your money, when you spend your money for the wrong things, that's weakness. And it's wrong. But for you to be pure doesn't make a revolution. For people to unite together does. For people to work together. For people to understand that they need each other. That we do all the work. And if we stop working, this place dies. And we need one another to accomplish that. Right. And if we stop spending our money on stuff, it also dies. That's how you fight an asymmetrical war. When you change your values, those things don't look so fun. You know? You know, one thing that I believe, and I I do mean this, like, I don't think that we're going to to inspire people to join us by by merely scolding them. No. Uh, I think that what we can do, however, is to inspire people to imagine that they can actually have, as my, with a hat tip to my niece, uh, who... Uh, I now know I'm quoting the Spice Girls when I say to teach people that we can get what we want, what we really, really want, because what we really, really want is actually not the the escapism of Top Gun or or no. the, the the superficiality of materialism. What we and and by the way, the studies are clear and unequivocal. What people really, really want is connection. They want. Uh, they want to, to do meaningful, productive work for which they will be respected and applauded and lifted up. Uh, we, we do want uh, a fair amount of sex. The studies are also clear there. But I would argue that's just another example of connectivity. Right. And when I say this, y'all, I'm saying that's what like. Americans are the most highly tested group of human beings that have ever existed on planet Earth. Wall Street America is constantly examining us using the most cutting edge social science data that they can possibly get. And, you know, that's what motivates us. Connection, respect, how we feel about ourselves. And there is a special place in hell for the alchemists and the wizards of our society who then say, okay, now that we know what people really want, let's make up a 30 second television commercial to make them think that they'll get what they want by buying some useless crap. It's like a crack cocaine addiction. You might get a moment of feeling good in the moment of acquisition, but you're the quintessential Buddhist hungry ghost that never gets full. You eat and eat and eat, consume, 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 but you never get what you want what you need, which is connection and respect from other people because you're doing good. That's what we want. The studies are clear. That's what we want. And that's what the left has to provide. Music together, connection, celebration of each other rather than patrolling each other and and criticizing microaggressions and making people feel like crap. You know, I agree with you. I agree with you 100. I think I agree with all of you. Uh, and uh, I do disagree with, I think some people need parenting and scolding, especially parents. I, I, I do. I think that most people are, I think most Americans 
have been infantilized to the point where they get a job and they think that's a license to kill themselves, to to pay themselves back by buying pizza, a McDonald's, a no, car they can't no, afford. No, no, no. If you read um, Emily Gindelsberger's book about the four biggest employers in the United States, which are Walmart, Amazon, all the different call centers, and fast food. They don't get a chance to enjoy it. I agree with you. I, I agree with you 100%. They don't have those choices to buy and buy. They're basically trying to survive I, and, you I, know, and do whatever they can to survive. And if they have a child, to help that kid survive. It's desperate. Those are the biggest employers. And that's what most Americans are suffering that way and are ready to have a message of something better. That's why they're going into labor unions now. But we, what we need to do, what we need to do, though, is, uh, you know, Henry Huckamacki said something that I, I never forgot. He said, people on the left, especially the coastal elitists, we mock the churches and the religious institutions. He said, but they offer food, clothing, housing to the least among us. What do you have to offer other than a critique? And to me, if the left wants to win, you have to, the 150 million Americans who don't vote, the left needs to go where they these people are and not for college credit, but to, to lift them up spiritually. Yes, spiritually and out of connection. And the left should do what some of those churches, the most sex, successful ones, have promoted the family while replacing it. They have the men's groups, they have the women's groups, they have the children's groups, they have this event, they have the other event, so they don't have to spend time with their families. And they're not trapped in a little house with their family. And they have connection with other people. And we need to offer connection with other people and deep connection with other people. The most successful programs in this country that are social programs are 12 step where people support each other and where they're run according to communist principles from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. No money is allowed at all. And when people learn from the program, they are to teach and help others and guide them in the program for no money for connection because connection counteracts the evils of the capitalist society. And if you had the 12 steps, but they were 12 steps towards a revolution, you'd have them. You'd have a fearless moral inventory of what our country has done. And you'd be able to connect to change it in the future. And you, you, I once wrote an article, 12 Steps to a Revolution, which took those 12 steps, which are the most popular thing, where every little dinky town across America has an AA that follows those steps in connection with each other for no money. You know, there was the Reagan Revolution, there was the Gingrich Revolution, and the media was fine calling it a revolution. And we have the people on the right talking about 1776, and this is another revolution, and they celebrate it. But when the left talks about a revolution, we immediately go towards, oh, you're going to be violent? 
Well, that's just picking up the right wing message. Right. You know, it really is. It becomes a freighted word for when it's used it by the left, it immediately brings up guillotines. Not that I'm against guillotines. I think it's green. Appropriately used. <laughs> nobody, it's, nobody, you know, but uh, yeah, this was a great conversation. Dr. Harriet Fraud Guns. I was thinking today, I know we're out of time. Can you, sp- you have five yeah. more minutes? Sure. This is, a, this is banal. This is trite. This is a cliche. And I, and I know that you want to talk about guns and masculinity. I don't have to. I, no, I want to because I want to say something that I feel sounds trite but true. And there's a reason some things are trite. If you see a man... If you look at Wayne LaPierre, who happens to be asexual, that's a yeah. fact. He's asexual. He's been mm-hmm. described as his co-workers as asexual. When you look at a man who celebrates the Second Amendment, you are looking at a man who can't get laid either because he can't get it up, he's incapable of connecting with another human being, but he is sexually defective. There is something seriously wrong with his penis because if your penis works, and this is a cliche, but if you are not, you know, if you're, if you're, if Viagra is impenetrable to your condition, you are going to be in a rage and you are going to cling to your second amendment rights. Culturally, how do we make it axiomatic that all men, because I believe this, any man who clings to his hard shooter cannot get laid because either his penis works, doesn't work, or he stinks to high heaven and nobody wants to be near him. Why can't we drum that into our culture? Well, look, there's a lot of horny women around who don't have guns. It's not so simple. It's not about their penis. It's about men are brought up as little boys to not acknowledge that they need other people, that they're lonely, that they're sad, that they're self-hating. And every one of the mass shooters has been male. Hmm, Wonder why. And every one of them has been bullied. Hmm. They've been bullied by other people. This Ramos fellow who shot the um, 21 people recently in Uvalde, Texas, the 18-year-old, his mother was a raging drug addict. Her, she and her boyfriend were violent with him. He went to, to live with his grandmother, who he didn't like. He had a terrible stutter in school. No one helped him, and the kids mocked him relentlessly. He gave signs he needed help. He came to school in high school with cuts all over his face. And when the kids, when his friend said, what's, what's the matter? He said, I did it for fun, right? He's a, he was a very, very disturbed, needful, sad, lonely boy. And he couldn't address any of those needs and nobody helped him feel them. But he could do what men are allowed to do, be very angry, and violent. And what the gun ads do is say, reclaim your manhood. 
And men feel that they've been unmanned because they can't earn a living that could support a wife and children because the capitalists exploited their jobs, exported them, computerized them, robotized them, or replaced them with women who are cheaper or people of color who are cheaper or immigrants who are cheaper, right? right? So they've been replaced. And so, you know, and here is this product that tells you you can reclaim your manhood. The studies of insecure manhood exactly correlate to the studies of who owns a gun on the map. Mother Jones had that map. What you have is a tragedy of manhood in a country where you can't have a future. And women have a better future than we used to have. We can earn a living. We can take care of our children, however inadequately. We have power we didn't have. And we had a movement behind us. Men haven't had that. And they're berserk. And their power is in a gun. Because they couldn't admit how lonely and abandoned and upset they are. And that's how we address our problems here. And when somebody like Abbott says, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, he says, well, it's a mental health problem. He just cut mental health a great deal because he rejected the Medicaid funds that had mental health provisions. What is mental health? It's all about connection. And these are disconnected, terribly lonely, disturbed people. And they're male because males are the worst off in our society. Women at least are breaking through to new areas. We have a future we didn't have, and most of us are rejecting men. More women in America, the majority of women in America are single for the first time in our history, and it's we who reject marriage because we don't want to be working all day and then taking care of a man's needs when we get home without any reciprocity so that we have a chance in equality. This is a crisis of manhood in America. And I don't think it's just their dicks. I think their dicks don't work because they feel terrible. You know, they're unmanned in the most, because manhood was a stupid, limited, emotionally crippling description, but it gave superiority over women and it gave a chance to feel like somebody because you had a good job or at least a job where you had some stature. You don't now. Yeah, you work. It's the same for huge industries that totally demean you and use you as an adjunct to a robot. Right. Well said, Dr. Harriet Fraud. We love you here. Thank you. Capitalism hits home. And I love David Cobb and David Feldman. And this is good. This is good. It was. It's good to just get some stuff out of our system. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of. Capitalism hits home, and it's not just in your head. Her show is on. It's not just in your head with Liam Tate and Ikoi Hero, but um, Capitalism Hits Home, I do by myself. Very good. I'm on a radio program, interpersonal, up to Wednesdays at 2.30 on BAI. WBAI. And David Cobb, public banking. And what is your new job? You have a new... I do have a new job. I am an employee of the WIAT tribe, Task Dishkama Humboldt, which means love in Salat Look. Uh, it is a community land trust tasked with regenerative economic development, restoration ecology, and housing, affordable housing in perpetuity, uh, proving that we could actually do this, like on the ground, right here, uh, right now. So thanks for the shout out. 
which means I won't be able to join you all next week because the second Monday of every month, I, as a staffer, I have to go to the tribal council and, and, and be available. So once a month, I won't join you. Uh, but in two weeks, I am going to take, it was a great question uh, that was uh, uh, was asked. I'm going to do some research and try to take that question head on. Thank Good. you, David Cobb. Thank Goodbye, my friends. Goodbye. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. And thank you, David Cobb. And now it's time for Stump the Humps. And John Hayes, a friend of mine, joins us. John Hayes from Los Angeles. And uh, it's, you know, I love John Hayes. Uh, whenever I make a, a bad joke on the show, it's because of John Hayes. I want to get to the crappy jokes or the jokes before John Hayes does. Now, you're, you, you, uh, you're a master wordsmith in the chat room. And I'm, whenever I hear something, I'm always thinking, oh, I know John Hayes or Ann Lee is going to get to it. So I better just, I, I compete with Ann Lee and John Hayes in the, uh, in the chat room. John, welcome, John Hayes. Uh, hello. Uh, Anna's actually, I think, twice in one of the chats last week, we almost simultaneously came up with the same retort to something we were talking right. about. So uh, John, before I, John has challenged me. Dan, is that correct? From what I recall from office hours, he was talking some shit. <laughs> right. It wasn't, it wasn't a challenge. It was just pointing out the fact that I uh, beat you a couple of times. But, uh, before I hand... Not physically. Before I hand you your ass with Stump Ooh. the Humps, uh, talk to me about the virtue of rejecting everything. You're a vegan? Yes. How long have you been a vegan? 11 years. Right. And a little more than that. And how long have you been a vegetarian? Well, before that, I was a pescatarian. So I was eating fish for, I don't know, a dozen years. It's been like... 25, 26 years since I've had any, like, beef or pork or poultry. So don't people, don't people need to be scolded? Don't people, when I was growing up, I was told by my friends, there was a cultural revolution that came out of the 60s, which is, don't listen to that music, it's corporate. Don't see that movie, it's corporate. You don't, don't support this business, it's corporate. You... Culturally, when I was growing up, we were shamed, shamed by how we spent our money. That seems to be uh, gone away. Don't you think Americans should be scolded on how they spend their money, the choices they make, online gambling, for example? Don't they need to be told that that's a sin because that that's money you're wasting that could either go for your own well-being or somebody else's where are the scolds to tell the american people mcdonald's causes cancer a new study came out last week obesity causes cancer mcdonald's causes diabetes cancer heart disease mcdonald's is killing you. You go to McDonald's, you're killing the planet because they raise the rainforest for the soybeans to feed the cows who belch out the methane. McDonald's is killing you. McDonald's causes cancer. 
If you eat at McDonald's, you're going to get cancer. People need to be told that and 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 scolded for giving themselves cancer. It's like smoking. You know, we've we've turned smokers into pariahs. Well, we have to do that. I think people who eat at McDonald's smell as bad as uh, people who uh, smoke. Yeah, I, I do some scolding myself, not necessarily directly. It depends on the situation, but the way they, it ends up though, they still end up just changing their menu somewhat and adding some vegan options so they can still keep the business going. It still comes down to making a profit to them. They don't care what you're eating, really, as right. long as they're making their money. But it's, if we can get enough people to go along with that and they convert to totally vegan menus, that would be relatively fine to me. But that's, I think the only thing we can reasonably hope for, and that's not even reasonable, is as long as we get more and more people to make the change. And even if McDonald's keeps up with the change and they keep a lot more change in their pockets, at least we'll have changed the, um, the bad habits to some degree. You know, it's not like vegan junk food is healthy itself, but it does reduce the environmental impact. And certainly, most importantly, the cruelty, the mass cruelty is reduced. We need to train people. By the way, I found out what the sink problem is. I need a new computer. This is what they do to me. They just, I, I always have to be buying new stuff for new computer. I spent all weekend at the Apple store. You know, it just... Nothing works. These iPads, they're just... Dan, uh... The problem with your sink is you need a new computer? Yeah. I, I'm running too much software through this one computer. Could you tell I'm out of sync? Yeah. Yeah. God damn it. Is it better now? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. My CPU, my GP, something was... Some PU was off. <laughs> well, John, you're a nice guy. I like you. But now it's time to curb you. Now it's time to, 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 to take you to the curb, to kick you to the curb. It's going to get ugly. It's time to play Stump the Hump. So today, um, because it's springtime and I'm seeing a lot of baby animals running around. Baby animals? Uh, baby animals. Baby animals. <laughs> uh, today we have a quiz of five questions about uh, animal babies. Animal babies. Yep. Hmm. Right. And we're I both might have a chance here. Uh, I was telling Dan earlier on the chat that if it was about sports or video games and some other topics, I I would probably not stand a chance. But we'll see about this one. Yeah, this will be pretty fair. I would. Think. All right. This is going to get. I'm going to. You're now. You're a vegan, right? Yep, so, still am since you asked me a few minutes ago. Yep. So you wouldn't know anything about veal, animal babies, right? Oh. I know how it's made. It's one of the most disgusting, cruel things ever. I changed one of the answers because you're both vegan. They're oh. killing the boys. <laughs> veal is, when you eat veal, you're eating a boy cat. You're eating a bull. That's who they're killing. Potential bull, yeah. Yeah, potential bull. All right. And, yeah, let, male let, chicks get ground up because they don't produce eggs. So that's that too. Male, what, they what, what they ground up the cock. They grind the male chicks because they aren't going to produce eggs. Um, they just and what, what do they do eggs. with the ground cock? They grind the cock into what? They probably, I think, they might feed it to animals. Actually, some of it anyway. Yeah. Isn't that how we got mad cow disease? 
Um, well, this would be mad chicken disease, I suppose, if there was such a thing. But yeah, that is, they were feeding cattle some meat products from other animals. And I think that's how it came about. Yes. And so uh, when, when, when they see a, a cock coming out of the shell, they just grind it up. Yes. Well, they, they're like on an assembly line and they just, they're separating them constantly all day long. It's a horrible job for the humans. But Looking for cock. Separate the males and the females. I, Where's the cock? Is well, they, <laughs> they are birds, so it's different. It's a different anatomy, but they separate the males and the females and throw the males into these vats of grinding things or whatever they are. It's a giant circular grinder, basically. And do you know why they're called cocks? No. Because they have a cock. That's why. And this uh, is why you're back. Which bat- came first, the cock or the chicken? <laughs> no, chicken. <laughs> well, um, if it were my cock, he would come first unless we use the squeeze <laughs> technique. We are talking about chickens and poultry, by the way. So you picked off zero of my jokes in that bullshit. I'm happy. <laughs> okay. Uh, John, you're a nice guy, but now it's time to kick your ass, kick your ass on Stump the Hump. You've heard money in the floor of the audience. Now, your, your, your friends in the chat room can't help you, John Hayes. You're all, what do you got there? Whoa, uh, whoa, whoa. Cash. 40, 46 bucks. 46 bucks. All right. Uh, uh, the guest, John Hayes, is first. We have five questions. Uh, question number one is, what is a baby kangaroo called? Is it a joey? A joey. A, a hopper? A wally? Or a bag of donuts? A. Joey Bag of Donuts. What, what was that from? Not, that wasn't uh, Goodfellas. Who's Joey Bag of Donuts? Or is it Sopranos? You're, you're an expert on Sopranos. Uh, I don't remember which one. All right. So uh, re- read me the questions again. because What is a baby kangaroo called? A Joey, a Hopper, a Wally, or a Bag of Donuts? Okay. Uh, my advice to John is uh, don't jump on the answer because now I know it's a Joey. <laughs> so I could be trying to, you know, I'm doing some uh, three-dimensional chess here. You might yeah, be, uh, and I might add, I change the rules as we go along. So <laughs> it's very complicated. I will agree that it's a Joey. That is correct, Joey. So the score is John Hayes has one point, and I have 15. All right, <laughs> question number two. Just tie it up, one to one. David is first. Is it? What is the name of a baby eel? A baby eel. Wow. Is it a, is it a snake? Well, well, hang on now. Can I just, did the parents give the baby eel a name? Like Myron? Or are you talking about the official name? Of the baby. It's the, it's the official scientist. Official. A- okay. Is it a snakeette, an elver, row, or fruit of the Feldman? A fruit of the Feldman. Give me the, give me the, the first three, please. <laughs> snakeette, 
No, I'm going to say not. I'm going to say not a snakehead. I believe that was a uh, Phil Spector group. What's Elver, E L V E R. I'm going to go with Elver. Mr. Hayes. That's my choice as well. Elver is correct. <laughs> it just sounded right. So the score is now John Hayes has two, and I have two. This is close. Question number three. John is first. I hate kicking your ass, John, because you're such a nice guy, but I just, this is, I'm very competitive, and this is, I'm, I'm winning. It's tied two to two, <laughs> and this is like golf. I have a handicap. So technically, if you factor in the handicap, I'm kicking your ass. Go ahead, Dan. We have all heard how cunning a fox can be. A female fox is so cunning, she goes by a completely different name entirely. What is a female fox called? Is it a hen, a sow, a vixen, or a trollop? <laughs> this is good. This I'll is say vixen. I'm going to say hen. The correct answer is vixen. You know, it's funny. I'm out of sync. I'm out of sync. So when you heard John say vixen, it was actually really me. You. Yeah. So you. I'm going to give myself that point. All right. So the score now is three to two. Uh, John Hayes thinks he's winning, but with. Okay. Yeah, it's like the Senate. You're like Wyoming versus California. You get much more influence than you deserve in this yeah. case. Yeah, I'm losing. <laughs> question number Why four. Why didn't you send me the uh, answers and questions on time today, Dan? Because I just finished them. This is no good. This is how am I supposed to do this if I don't know the answers? Go ahead. Question number four. What is the name for a bunch of baby chickens or chicks? Is it a clutch? A pack, a horde, or a cloaca doodle do? A cloaca doodle do. Uh, I'll talk about the cloaca in a minute. I'm going to say clutch. That's what I'm going to say. The correct answer is clutch. <laughs> so the score now is four to three. And the cloaca, do you know that chickens uh, have sex? They only have one hole. So their poo hole is also their love hole, and that an egg is poo? Mm -hmm. Did you know that? I, I read my own answer wrong because I wrote cloaca doo doo poo. That's what the clo. When you eat an egg, you're eating. <laughs> Uh, a turd baby. I'm not making that up. Chickens have one hole, and you and, and an egg is a turd baby. It comes out of their ass. That that is a you're eating turd baby when you eat chicken. That's, Look it up. That's not what we mean by whole food, by the way. <laughs> whole, whole, it is whole food. <laughs> I want Americans before you. 
eat your eggs to know that you're eating a turd baby. The it's cloaca. Period, the, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, it's also a period. It's also a period. Yes. Go ahead. This is the last. I'm sorry that I had to kick your ass, John. It, it's it's a turd that comes out once a month. That must be disgusting. <laughs> that's, that's like, Chris Christie looks like he has one turd once a month. All right, here we go. But it's an MFer. That takes four days to get out. What is a fingerling? <laughs> Who's up? <laughs> is uh, uh, John is first this time? What is a fingerling? Is it a bird? A fish? A frog or a wiffle ball triple? <laughs> a bird, a fish, or a frog? I'm going to ignore the last one. Um, uh, this is <laughs> this is the toughest one. Um, I'll say a. Damn it. a Are you considering the wiffle ball triple at all? What's that? Are you considering the wiffle ball triple at all? Not at all. Not, sorry. Sorry, Dan. Mm, no, that was, that was an interesting move. Uh, the quiz master. Psychological warfare. Interesting. I'll say it's a fish. Uh, my fingerling. Wasn't that a Chuck Berry song? <laughs> my yes, my dingling. But yeah, yeah, close. Finger my dingling, I think. So, what, what are the, so a fingerling is, give it to me again. A bird? No. Fish? Frog? Or wiffle ball triple? I'm going to go with a wiffle ball triple. I saw some psychological warfare. The correct answer is a fish. Mm. And, and what did John Hayes say? Fish. He said a fish. So... So you but, just barely beat him, David. Uh, yeah, that was a close one. It was close, John. You put up a good him. fight. But uh, one, two, three, four, five. John has five points. I have one, two, three points. Hang on. But five minus three is two. So that goes to me. Plus the East Coast. <laughs> uh Hey, you gave me you gave me that last one. You didn't have to do that. I still would have beat you. No, no, no. <laughs> I, Dan, all I need to do is find three points. Uh, <clears throat> oh, okay. You got to call the uh, got to call the guy in Georgia for that. This seems Dan uh, doesn't live there. Sorry. <laughs> this was rigged. This was definitely rigged. John Hayes, thank you. Sure. Great <laughs> to see you. Uh, what's your favorite charity? My favorite charity. Um, Doctors Without Borders, I guess. Okay. People should give to Doctors Without Borders. What about you? My favorite charity is uh, the federal government, the IRS. All our money. uh, But while we're waiting for that day, uh, I'm serious. I, I, I wish we didn't need charity, that we had a fully uh, manned, womaned IRS. St. Jude's. St. Jude's. They turn nobody away. Yeah. St. Jude's. All right. Thank you, Here comes John. Peter B. Collins. Here comes Peter B. Collins. Dan Frankenberger, uh, we need to talk. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Yes, sir. Thank you. That was good. These are getting good. These are fun. Well, Peter B. Collins. 
is a Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. And uh, I'm pissed off. You told me what happened, and I'm pissed off. You did an interview with Greg Pallast, who's been on this show. Who is Greg Pallast, and what happened with YouTube? Thank you, David. It's good to join you again. And Greg Pallast is well known to many of us. He is an independent journalist who uh, is independent in the United States, but has been uh, his, his work has been widely viewed in the United Kingdom, both on the BBC and some of the commercial networks there. But he's a little too hot to, to touch for corporate media in this country. Because Greg Pallast has uh, focused on many things, but in particular on election integrity uh, and in particular elections run in Georgia in the last uh, eight to 12 years. And Greg had hoped to join us here this evening, but he is in Atlanta and he's shooting interviews uh, right now as, as we are speaking. And Greg has exposed the long-running voter suppression schemes that go back to when Brian Kemp was the Secretary of State, Stacey Abrams ran against him, and Brian Kemp suppressed thousands of registrations that had been collected by Stacey Abrams' uh, troops, uh, the nonprofit that she had started. And so Greg is one of the most credible reporters on elections in the United States. And We've had him on the Ralph Nader show all the time. Yes. Uh-huh. And he produced uh, several documentaries uh, that you can find on YouTube where you can no longer find the very last interview that I conducted before I retired. And we posted the interview with Pallast on uh, December 11th of 2020. Last Tuesday, the final day of May, uh, I woke up to a love letter from YouTube, actually from its robots, and it reads, we wanted to let you know that our team reviewed your content and we think it violates our misinformation policy. We, may you not, you, we know you may not have realized this was a violation of our policies, so we're not applying a strike to your channel. However, we have removed the following content from YouTube, and it lists the interview from December 11th of 20, which was entitled the Peter B. Collins actual last interview. Greg Pallast comments on 2020 election hijinks. So uh, the notice from YouTube continues again, kind of empathizing and condescending. We realize this may be disappointing news, but it's our job to make sure that YouTube is a safe place for all. If you think we've made a mistake, you can appeal this decision. You'll find more details below. So then they uh, specify, to the extent you can call this specific, the policy that I violated was that I posted content that advances false claims, that widespread fraud, errors, or glitches change the outcome of the U.S. 2020 presidential election, and that such content is not allowed on YouTube. Now, this is so infuriating on so many levels, David, because this is a notice from a robot. It's very clear that nobody actually listened to the interview 
They might have read the headline. They might have read the post. You know, everybody posts a little text about what a podcast is about. And nowhere did it suggest that uh, the widespread fraud or errors or glitches changed the outcome of the election. Pallast and I went back and forth discussing the vote count in Georgia, how close it was. Fellas, 11,000 and 700 and some votes. That's all Trump needed. We discussed how before the election occurred that uh, a guy named Raffensperger, who succeeded Brian Kemp as Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, that he was on board with Trump. He and Kemp were both working to continue to suppress Democratic votes in Georgia and tried to deliver Georgia for Trump. And they failed. (laughs) But after the election, they were forced to conduct themselves with some level of integrity because there was first a, a, a partial recount and then there was a full machine recount and then there was a ballot by ballot recount in the state of Georgia. And this is what we covered in the podcast that YouTube has decided without citing a single speck of evidence violated their standards. And uh, just shy of 18 months after it was posted, they got around to removing it. So this is arbitrary. It is capricious. because or somebody reported it. Maybe. But they don't cite receiving a complaint. They simply announce that they have removed it. So... I've posted a link. I've just reposted that podcast on the homepage of my website at peterbcollins.com. And I invite invite listeners to the David Feldman Show to review that podcast. I've also, in the text, included the verbiage that YouTube uh, supplied about why it violated their community standards. And I invite you to listen very critically to the interview And let me know if you find anything that even approaches the kind of violation that YouTube alleges. Right. And David, what's really interesting here is that uh, I never used YouTube as a primary uh, distribution channel. My podcasts were at iTunes and uh, Spreaker, Stitcher, a, a number of sites. But... I only came to YouTube in about 2019. And frankly, I didn't pick up a big audience there. This podcast that they removed apparently had been uh, listened to only 70 times when the traffic at my own website showed that more than 50,000 people had listened to this interview with Palast. And one of the things that's really fascinating to me is that When I started posting podcasts on YouTube, I would occasionally get a notice that they had either blocked or removed a specific show because I had violated the music rights policies. Right. right. And so in the podcast that they removed, claiming I violated their community standards, I played music that violated their licensing rules. 
to open up the interview with Palast about the election in 2020 in Georgia, I played the Charlie Daniels song. The, the devil, devil went, went down, down to, to Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> right. But there's no mention. And, and they didn't, in 18 months, uh, discover that, uh, you know, music that's not allowed. And they never attempted to uh, block or remove. Sometimes what they would do is just black out the part where the music was and leave the rest of the interview for people to hear. Uh, so it, it's strange, but it really is depicting a form of censorship that is really dangerous right? because they're like a drunken sailor. Oh, well, your podcast said it's about the election in Georgia and glitches. Well, right. that's all we need to know. And boom. So let's peel this back because this really is important and it's creepy and terrifying. 2020, there were charges of fraud. Uh, the steal, as they called it. It led to January 6th. We're hearing, uh, we're having the hearings prime time Thursday night. And YouTube and a lot of so-called well-intentioned corporate gatekeepers felt that charges of uh, voter fraud were bad for the country because they were coming from liars like Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump. And so they took down his Twitter account after January 6th, and word came down from Martha's Vineyard where Barack Obama rules, we have to fight misinformation. He just gave a big speech at Stanford about stopping the spread of lies because our democracy is at stake because of these lies, not because Washington, D.C. won't give us Medicare for all or do anything. Our democracy is at stake because of lies. And so you've been censored by YouTube. An argument could be made that it was well-intentioned. They were working to shut up the, the, the right the right wing, because democracy is at stake and we, we cannot allow any falsehoods to uh, fall into the brains of young, impressionable idiots. But there was no, there were no falsehoods. They just are shutting down any conversation about the 2020 election and the possibility of voter fraud. Did Greg tell you any other stories of this happening to an interview with him? Uh, not so far. I've had some brief uh, email and text exchanges with Greg, but he's uh, working very hard. He also tells me he got COVID while he's uh, in Atlanta. So uh, we have a plan to talk tomorrow. And I'll learn more about that. But let me offer this as an interesting example. Uh, are you familiar with the latest uh, Dinesh D'Souza agitprop called 2,000 Mules? 
No. Okay. Well, 2,000 Mules is a uh, new doc that is circulating widely among right-wingers who talk about election integrity only as it affects Donald Trump. So the only elections that lack integrity are the ones that don't report him as the winner. So D'Souza, who has done this before, uh, he raises big coin from the right wing. He created this movie. It, it debuted in theaters where they rent the theaters and uh, then, you know, use their social media networks to fill them with uh, right wing Trumpists. So uh, the content of 2000 Mules is uh, provably false. What they claim is that as many as 2000 people were captured on uh, <clears throat> cell phone location data as they repeatedly went to locations where uh, absentee ballot drop boxes were located. And it has been shown by people who are critical of the claims in the movie that they may have found one case of an individual who returned to a drop box several times with a, a, a wad of ballots. The footage is very fuzzy and you can't really tell. Uh, but they use this cell phone location data to create the perception, a false one, that there were hordes of people who were uh, handling ballots, uh, harvesting them is the uh, term that the right wing likes to use and that they were illegally delivering them to uh, election drop boxes. Now, the fundamental falsehood here is you can stuff as many, you know, absentee ballots into a drop box as you want. But if it doesn't match the ballot that was mailed out to voter X or voter Y, then it's not going to be counted. But they blow past all kinds of obvious rational uh, arguments against their claims. And it's a zippy movie that has persuaded a lot of people. So <clears throat> moments before, while you were just whipping the ass of John Hayes in that Thank uh, you. animal. You, you animal saw the same thing I saw. Yes. Thank you. It was rigged. <laughs> right. Thank you. I looked up on YouTube. And not only is the full-length version of 2,000 Mules available for wow. free, but there is no comment that, you know, that critics have raised about how, uh, how much bullshit there is in this package. Right. And, and so for me to interview a journalist who is highly credible about not just the 2020 election, but past ones and the most recent one, Greg Palast. And to have that declared uh, out of bounds because it violates uh, or, or they claim it advances claims that widespread fraud errors or glitches change the outcome of the election. So YouTube offered me the opportunity to appeal. And of course I did. And here's what I wrote. You're only allowed 800 characters, but I did my best. This is an hour-long podcast, and we covered a lot of ground. If a human had actually listened, you'd know how absurd your decision to remove it is. We talked about the history of Georgia Governor Kemp and his successor as Secretary of State, 
trying to rig the election for Trump before votes were cast. We talked about the recounts that show Trump lost. Greg Palast is a respected journalist who has covered election issues and Georgia in particular for 20 plus years. We absolutely advanced no, quote, false claims that widespread fraud, errors or glitches changed the outcome of the election, end quote. This arbitrary removal is chilling censorship based on clear ignorance of the content of the video. I reserve all rights to protest and appeal this decision, including legal action. I demand that you reinstate it immediately. So I filed my appeal and I was shocked at how quickly they thoroughly revealed my appeal. Because, David, 43 minutes later, not even long enough to listen to an interview that's an hour and, and seven minutes long and includes uh, an illegal song. Right. <laughs> they responded, we reviewed your content carefully and have confirmed that it violates our misinformation policy. We know this is probably disappointing news, but it's our job to make sure that YouTube is a safe place for all. And the next paragraph reads, we won't be putting your content back up on YouTube. Our goal is to help you succeed on YouTube. So they are now suggesting that I censor myself by looking at their community guidelines. And by the way, that was a required step. When I clicked on I want to appeal, the first thing they did was require me to read their community guidelines. And they linked to a copy of the audio file for the podcast as if I don't have one uh, so that I could listen to it again. And I guess I was supposed to go to confession and mm -hmm. say, Oh, YouTube, you're right. I violated your standards and but I they, feel so badly. They can't offer a specific sentence. Like they, they can't no. isolate. If you, if you're playing copywritten music, they can isolate the song, but they can't isolate the thought you express that merits expulsion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to bring this to people's attention because I would like people to listen and give me their views. You can email Peter at PeterBCollins.com or there's a contact form on my website. And if you disagree and you think that YouTube has any merit in this decision at all, let me know. But I'm quite confident that there's nothing that actually violated their standards. And I, you know, I did look also, I searched for Greg Palast at YouTube. And so far, I don't see any indication that his recent work uh, has been removed. He's got some reports uh, that are on YouTube from just a couple of weeks ago. So uh, I'll dig deeper into that. But this is an issue that shows the power of these companies and that as independent media creators, we have no rights. Uh, there's nobody I can call. And they basically leave me at this stage with a lawsuit as the only course of action I can take. And you probably, the terms of service uh, don't allow you to sue probably. You know, I didn't look at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, David. Well, Google, YouTube are so big, they've, they're have they really more than utilities. They're, as Al Gore used to call it, the Internet highway. These are highways. These are roads that we can't live without. 
We certainly can't live without Google. Uh, I mean, you can, but you can't. And it sounds like you were on a private road and they kicked you out. So what do we do? We have to nationalize. Once a company gets too big, there are two choices. Break it up into 100 little pieces or say it's a utility or nationalize it. Those are your three choices. When, when a company can act unilaterally like that with no sense of uh, redress, there's a problem. Absolutely, there's a problem. Well, what is the difference, just while we have you, there is voter suppression, there is voter fraud, and then there is electoral fraud. Uh, these are terms that are thrown around. They're conflated, and it leaves us confused. So let's start with number one, voter suppression. Voter suppression is something the Republicans, for the most part, are guilty of. Correct. Uh, they, they have a hundred different ways to uh, make it more difficult for people to vote. And many of these were banned by the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which the Roberts Court neutered uh, around 2014, declaring that we don't have any race problems in this country anymore. Right. And, Shelby. That, uh, you know, the, the southern states that were required to have any policy changes reviewed by the Justice Department before they could go into effect. Uh, they're not trying to stop people from voting. So uh, since then, uh, it's just been a race to erect new Jim Crow barriers. And uh, Eric Holder, the Obama attorney general, was on with your old buddy Bill Maher on Friday. And he, he did make the point that at least in Georgia, in the recent primary election, that despite all of the hurdles that have been set up, that uh, voter participation was actually higher um, than in the past. So suppression doesn't always work, but it works best when people aren't aware of it. So in the Stacey Abrams case, where she uh, and her uh, uh, troops collected, uh, according to Greg Palast, uh, nearly 200,000 voter registration forms of new voters in Georgia, uh, those were not processed. They were put in file drawers. They were lost. They were uh, just, you know, left. <laughs> and so he has a lawsuit currently uh, running to uh, try to expose that and hold some people accountable. But other ways include the photo ID uh, and yes, we've been talking about the photo ID long enough now that uh, anybody who was concerned about being blocked from voting should have gotten an ID by now. But the permitted IDs are skewed. And Holder offered this example. In Texas, uh, a student ID is not sufficient to register to vote. But a gun license is. Mm. And so... We also saw in Alabama where they uh, redirected voter registration to the DMV and then they closed 20 
DMV offices in predominantly black communities. So suppression takes on many different covers, and uh, it is a very serious issue. Uh, Gerrymandering is a form of it uh, by drawing people out of districts where they might have more leverage with uh, their votes. And uh, so that's that's in a nutshell or a long nutshell, that's suppression. That's voter suppression. Then what is voter fraud? Now, the Republicans accuse the Democrats of voter fraud. Democrats accuse Republicans of voter suppression, which is real. And the Republicans accuse Democrats of voter fraud, which gives them an excuse, Republicans, to initiate voter suppression laws. But so what Mm -hmm. is voter fraud? Voter fraud takes on two general uh, characters. One is an individual votes twice, either by voting in different jurisdictions, uh, including in some cases crossing state lines in order to vote twice. The second way it's done is through uh, impersonation. And that's where I go to a precinct and say, I'm David Feldman, give me my ballot. And I vote that ballot, and maybe I voted one under Peter B. Collins as well. So uh, voter fraud is extremely rare. And in the 2020 cycle, a handful of cases have come up of people who voted for a dead parent who was alive at the point of registration but not uh, on Election Day, Uh, people who were registered in multiple locations, like Mick Mulvaney, uh, mm-hmm. who, who was... Uh, we Steve still Bannon? Figured out. Yes. And Coulter? Still, yes, and we haven't figured out how Mulvaney managed to register to vote in a little town in North Carolina where he has never had a footprint of any kind. Right. Uh, And the cases where people uh, illegally voted someone else's absentee ballot so far are 100% Trump voters. Still, the numbers are minuscule and have no impact on the actual outcome. We also have cases where, uh, and this I believe was in Tennessee, uh, a woman who was an ex-felon, didn't know that she wasn't allowed to register to vote. She registered. She did not vote. But they nevertheless uh, convicted her of a felony for registering as an ex-felon. And I I believe she got a couple of years in a sentence, but it has been uh, suspended. Right. So uh, those are the only cases. So let me ask you a question about voter fraud. So we've covered voter suppression and voter fraud. And I'm going to say something that uh, could jeopardize my standing on YouTube. I am a member of the Television Academy and the Writers Guild. And they, during award season, they send out ballots. And they're mail-in ballots. You, you, you don't go to a precinct to vote. And Uh, When I was younger, they would arrive and my kids would open up the ballots and they would vote for me because they certainly saw more of the television shows and the movies than I did. Uh, I that's there were a couple of I let them vote a couple of times. 
the the joke about the Academy Awards has always been that it's the uh, nannies who fill out the Academy Award ballots. Those are write-in ballots. Uh, mischief. There can't be an orchestrated, uh, there's no evidence of an orchestrated attempt for all these absentee ballots to go through one processing house. But I would assume some absentee ballots are filled out by the, the, the daughters or the sons of elderly people, wouldn't you say? Yes. And in fact, uh, you know, we now have the option to entirely vote by mail in California, or you can go to a voting center if you're really determined to go to a polling place. And on it, if you help somebody vote, an elderly person, or if you're delivering the ballot for a household member, you are supposed to report that. Right. Now, the most recent case of egregious uh, absentee ballot harvesting occurred in, I believe, the 10th congressional district under the old map in North Carolina. And a Republican operative was discovered to be harvesting ballots. And if he thought the, the ballot was a vote he for Democrats, died. he threw them away. He just, the guy and just he, died, by the way. Yes. Uh huh. And, and he was convicted. They vacated the election and, and ran a new one. That was a Republican operation. Right. So this is a, a, another case of projection right. where the Republicans blame the Democrats for what they are doing. Right. And, and it works. Look at how many people believe right. that Republicans are the victims of these elections, not in the Senate, not in the House, but only one Republican was the victim of this rigged election in 2020. But before we get to, well, let's get to electoral fraud. Um, what is electoral fraud? Well, I, I use the term election fraud because it refers to insiders manipulating the process uh, by there are various ways from the point where people get a ballot, either at a polling place or by mail, and when they submit it. And after they submit the ballot, there are ways that the tabulators can be rigged, that uh, votes can be cherry-picked, either to be counted or not counted. There are ways to program tabulating machines to give four-fifths of a vote to Joe Biden and uh, 1.2 votes to Donald Trump. So there are significant ways that election fraud can occur. And this is where I have a little bit of common ground with the right wing activists who call for election integrity today. If their goal is hand counted paper ballots, where there is always a paper trail for every individual voter, I support that. Mm -hmm. I have supported it since 2004 when I went to Columbus, Ohio with Stephanie Tubbs Jones, the late congresswoman from Cleveland, and they uh, uh, developed a plan to challenge the certification of the 2004 election on January 6th Diebold. of 2005. You're talking about Diebold. Yes. Currently, well, and 
They're, they're owned Ohio? by Dominion oh. Voting now, but they came out of Ohio, Diebold. And did, did, wasn't the Secretary of State, did, wasn't there somebody who worked for Diebold who became an elected official who said, my goal is to get George W. Bush reelected? Not quite. Ken Blackwell was the Secretary of State, and he was also co-chair of the Bush-Cheney uh, re-election campaign right. in Ohio. He didn't work for Diebold, but he allowed the tabulation of the 2004 election to be conducted on servers in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that were controlled by a guy named Mike. (laughs) I wish I could summon his last name right now. Mike died in a plane crash uh, of a plane he was piloting under very suspicious circumstances. Uh, So... That was election fraud. The insiders took extraordinary steps to manipulate the tabulation of the ballots to produce a desired outcome that was not consistent with the actual will of the voters. And we are seeing with the election at the state level of these Trumpers as secretaries of state, as their nominees at this point, they're not elected, uh, and also right down to the county level, that there is a significant scheme to make election fraud available in 2024 should Trump, uh, still being at large, run (laughs) for president. Right. Well, I'm old enough to remember the 2000 presidential elections and the money that was spent to uh, reform voting in America, make it easier to vote and easier to count the ballots. Is it? And and David, if you're going to get nostalgic about 2000, let's remember the Brooks Brothers riot. These were the people who flew to Florida to jam up the system to delay any recount so that the Supreme Court could intervene and declare Bush the winner. And three current members of the Supreme Court were part of that Brooks Brothers mob. John Roberts. He was uh, really. Yes. John Roberts and uh, Gorsuch and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. All three of them were there at the scene of the steal. Well, that's that's amazing. Yes. I yeah okay. Peter B. Collins, great seeing you, great having you, Peter B. Collins. Nice to be with you, David. Go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of this man's interviews, podcasts, radio shows especially the one he did with Greg Pallast. And, and how to- David, uh, a, a post in the chat gives a necessary correction. I conflated uh, uh, Mike Meadows, Mark Meadows, with uh, the other guy. It was Mark Meadows who had the dual registrations. Oh, the... Uh, Not the, uh, Mulvaney. Not Mulvaney. Yes. Great. Thank you for correcting that. Imagine that, somebody who corrects himself on this show somebody that's amazing well let's go to aurora illinois where marianne cummings is standing by she is parks commissioner 
for Aurora, Illinois, and she is a particle physicist. And how are you feeling? Um, good, good. I'm, I think I'm fully recovered. No long COVID. Well, uh, I, so far, <laughs> no. Um, no, but I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm going to be taking off for Thailand uh, Thursday night. So I'm having to get ready for a conference that uh, I'm doing over there. Will you join us from Thailand? Uh, probably mo- Monday, I, I probably will be able to. It'll be like, I've got a meeting, a, a board meeting for the park district. A bunch of people want to yell at me there. That'd be fine. I'm going to be doing it remotely, though, from my hotel room. It'll be like five o'clock in the morning. I think Thailand is exactly 12 hours ahead. All right. So, so maybe so maybe we could be like uh, eight o'clock usually or no, eight thirty. Yeah. Eight thirty could probably do that. I have uh, already yelled at a bunch of people, you know. Oh, I, I may be taking that. I actually may be taking next week off. Oh. I just realized I haven't I, I'm going to find out tomorrow. I may take a week off. I'm waiting to hear on something. I may actually do what people have been telling me to do for 13 <laughs> years. Stop doing this. How long are you in Thailand for? I leave uh, Thursday night and I come back 10 days later on a Monday. You should ask Howie Klein about Thailand. He loves Thailand. He was going there every a couple times a year until COVID. Yeah, I knew a couple of guys that would go to Thailand, specifically Bangkok, pretty regularly. But, uh, but the, it, the meetings in Bangkok, uh, I don't know. At least I have, there's a couple of colleagues who are from Thailand. So uh, I'm sure they'll tell me interesting places to go. Right, that, right. I'd like. Hey, are, they're all Buddhist. How many boosters do you have? Uh, I have the two shots and then the one booster. But since I got over COVID, that's good enough for a fourth booster. I mean, that's the what actual they... getting of it and and recovering from. It. As a matter of fact, they advise that you don't get a booster for a while because if you've recovered from COVID, because you have such natural immunity. Right. So, um, it, yeah, I looked at Thailand. Thailand uh, peaked about two months ago. They peaked in, in early uh, April, and the uh, COVID has gone down. But I have to show my, I have to show my VAX card. I have to show proof of uh, insurance and, you know. But I didn't have to have, I don't have to have a, a visa to go to Thailand. You don't need a visa, but you need a if passport. If you're from the United States, I needed one to go to um, to to go to Australia three years ago, but uh, don't uh, don't need one now. I need a visa when I go to Thailand, but for work that I'm I pick I'm making a bad joke about <laughs> some of the work that I do in Thailand. I, don't I, tell I, me about it. I had a friend. We'll just call him Lawrence. Oh my God. He sent my me and my boyfriend when I was in uh, was grade school uh, grad school. He said, uh, 
showed that he would like rent or hire a 15 year old girl that was. All right. All right. All right. All right. Let's change the subject. Let's. uh, Yeah. That's that's the kind of thing I know about Bangkok. Yeah. Let's that that's going to. Long years ago. Yeah. Not giving out any names, though. Not any real ones. Didn't Gary Glitter? Wasn't he in Thailand? Where did where did Gary? Did you watch any of the uh, the celebration of the Queen's platinum anniversary? Oh no, I didn't. They brought Diana Ross, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Lin Manuel, and I kept waiting for. And now Jimmy Seville. <laughs> it would have been so great. The ghost of Jimmy Seville. Ever since watching that series, The Crown, and I guess uh, there's a whole new series coming up in a couple of weeks, I have, um, it, it, I just never understood what a really bizarre, weird institution that is. And yeah. that has, that's the one monarchy that matters, that has survived, you know, from the European monarchies. And that yeah. is just weird. And it's just a, bizarre and often cruel kind of institution. I mean, these people survive. That's what they do. Cruel to themselves and to others who get in the way. Yes. I mean, it's, it's crushing. Um, But they understood survival. Um, There there was a picture that, uh, so there's all these Netflix, they've got all kinds of like documentaries because people are watching the crown. And um, one of them, showed what they called the Club of Modern Monarchs, and it was a picture from 1912, and it showed like 14 kings, I think they were all kings, and they were all over Europe, and they were, you know, uh, they, they are very, they're all modern men, quote unquote. Um, by the end of World War One, there was only about three of those guys left. I mean, it was really devastating. Uh, the queen's uh, the que- the queen's husband, the late Prince Philip, had quite a harrowing escape from Greece because I think he was royalty or his uncle was on the throne. Right. It was or something like that. Anyway, he was violently deposed. It was and not to mention the cousin of the of the English king who looked like his twin brother right. who was in Russia, and they wouldn't let them come to England. I think people didn't expect that, you know, the Bolsheviks would be, would just shoot the entire family. That came as a shock. But yeah. nonetheless, they yeah. knew they were in danger, but they also knew that, you know, this was not going to do anything. They were trying to, you know, be rebrand as English at that time. And, uh, you know, having this, uh, you know, this czar, this, you know, uh, medieval relic and his family come to stay would not do very well for their PR books. So. Right. They yes. were they, they left the communists were on the rise in Great Britain at the time. And uh, King George was afraid that uh, if Nicholas and Alexandra and the kids came, it would threaten their own monarchy. Yeah. So these guys are survivalists. You know, I, I keep saying that about people who are in the Congress and people who we think are stupid they might look stupid, they may act stupid, but these guys are consummate survivors. They know how to survive that system. And unfortunately, even 
some of the good ones that are supposedly on our side start playing that game and they start making calculations that more and more put their survival and their continued presence in the House or the Senate or whatever, you know, kind of as the chief priority. When you get to a certain point, you begin to realize that there are uh, institutional memories, there are cultures, there are office, you go to work for a place and there are, you walk in and go, ooh, this is a vibe here. This is interesting. Uh-huh. Oh, this is a different vibe. This is, And you get to Congress and there is a institutional memory of how this thing works and do not draw attention to yourself. Go with the flow. Otherwise, you're going to suffer. You will not get the money, the largesse from Nancy or Kevin McCarthy, and you will be you won't get the committee assignments and you're going to look like a fool to your constituents and you won't be coming back here. It's high school, basically. Congress is high school. And understand that, um, who is it? Who is the uh, Republican whip? Tom DeLay. Tom DeLay was on trial, was indicted for essentially money laundering, but, but he was basically collecting money from the state organizations and then it was, he, it, to the Republican National Committee. And then the, the, that money would flow out to his favorite candidates or Congress people. And that's basically the pyramid scheme that he was running um, to, to hold on to power. Well, now that just happens. And I think he got convicted, but I think his conviction was overthrown because they changed the rules. And now the the Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign did this in 2016, you know, basically found a way around campaign finance laws so that wealthy individuals, I think a a wealthy couple could donate up to $360,000 to her campaign. And so they were doing this insane fundraising you know, all over the country. And it was just basically the money of the, that was supposed to be for DNC for, you know, the state parties, uh, as well as, as the presidential race was all going to Hillary Clinton. And so it's, it's money. It's a, you were talking earlier about Nancy Pelosi. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's, you know, single biggest uh, asset is her ability to fundraise. Right. And that all started because she had the fanciest house in the, in the San Francisco area because her husband was wealthy and she could throw like really swank parties. And that's kind of, you know, what you're stuck with right now. And you're trying to make nice with this. And I believe me, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got some issues now with the park district. It, it, it's much more pleasant when everybody is getting along, but sometimes, you know, you have to make people mad at you. And yes, they can, they, 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 they can sabotage your career. If you, if you plan your career depended on the goodwill of people in power and an institution that you want to have, you want to disrupt or at least, you know, change course, uh, you know, you're not going to succeed. It's just, uh, you know, I know it's, it's very hard. Um, you've got members of the squad now complaining on YouTube, like you know, they didn't they didn't vote against Nancy Pelosi. They didn't take a stand when they had the possible leverage. But now, because it's election time, they're complaining about you know just how hard it is to be in an institution that's so corrupt. 
Well, name names. You know, say out loud why the institution is corrupt. And it isn't just, it's not just the Republicans. Um, I was uh, reading something that was, because I knew you were talking earlier about why, uh, why the left seems so demoralized. Well, well, we are demoralized, the collective we, because a lot of us, we're snookered yet again. You know, we put faith in raising all this money through Justice Democrats that we get Democrats who would actually, who would actually be disruptors. People who are, you know, promising, hey, if you're only there for one term, you can get a lot done in one term if you really put your mind to calling them out. But, you know, um, they just don't want to do this. I read occasionally the... Uh, the soapbox, the New Republic, and there was an article that showed up yesterday that just, man, it illustrates my whole beef with the Democratic Party. I do not know who this person is, Michael Tomaski. Tomaski, he's an editor. I mean, he, except that Slate? he's an editor. No, this, this was uh, New Republic, the New Republic. Okay. So he's talking about, you know, how the democratic messaging sucks, but it's much harder to fix than you think. And he's given us three reasons why. He said the structure, one first structural difficulty is there are just not many liberals in this country. There are more conservatives than liberals. It just flies in the face of polling on things like Medicare for all, mm-hmm. loan debt, Green New Deal, the whole nine yards. As a matter of fact, real polling, even my friend back at the Institute uh, social uh, it was the um, big social sociology institute at University of Michigan was doing a survey in neighborhoods of Detroit, and this is in the late '60s. And the profile of the average Detroit worker was just so radically left. His advisor told him to redo that data like three or four times. Really? Over years ago, people were way. I mean. This, it was always shocking to the academic elite how how radical local just common workers could be, and of course, you know that was back in the day still with strong unions. But nonetheless, you wouldn't have called these people lefty. They weren't so maybe not socially leftist, but they certainly had a sense of class and class struggle because they were in unions. The second structural difficulty, he says, is not quite half of Democrats are liberal. (laughs) Yeah, not quite half of Democrats who managed to get themselves elected to Congress and and the Senate are liberal because of the money that they have to raise. Um, And so he's telling us to mold those numbers. And then he says that structural difficulty number three is that the Republicans' message is just a lot less complicated. Yeah, because the Democrats are always straddling. And what this guy isn't saying at all or addressing at all is the money, Lebowski, the money in politics. He's not even touching on that. In fact, he, this is sort of gives you a gauge on what the, this guy is saying. He says he doesn't know if Biden will run again in 2024. He often looks tired, but I'll say this for him. He is more unambiguously on the side of working people than any Democratic president in a very long time. Wow. Well, 
I don't know who was the last. I, I would say that uh, th- that Kennedy and Johnson were on the side of working class people and right. also, uh, you know, on civil rights issues. Jimmy Carter. Um, no, would get an argument from uh, Professor Harvey K. Right. But the thing is, is that, you know, Biden, if you look at his entire record, is decidedly not on the side of working people. He is unambiguously on the side of finance and the credit card industry and everything else. So, you know, but this is this is, quote, elite Democratic liberal opinion. And they just can't see it. They're so they're soaking in it. They cannot see the corruption that's going on. Um, and because, and I've often said, I, I was noticing this with, with John Kerry. I really tried to like John Kerry when he was running mm-hmm. against W. I really did. I went and saw that documentary going up river. I'm going, well, that 26-year-old that was testifying before, I think it was the Senate Armed Services Committee. I mean, maybe that 26-year-old is still there. With the phony Brahmin accent? Uh, he had more of a, yeah, he had, he had a more of a Boston accent. He was then. trying to sound like a Kennedy, the way he talked back then. It was horrible. Yeah, but, well, whatever. He gave, it wasn't his accent that I was focusing on. He actually said some good words. But, you know, as the old hippies used to say, he turned 30. <laughs> but, I mean, the problem is, is that the Democrats have a natural base. I mean, they're, the, the platform of Bernie Sanders appealed to the majority of, a, of the country. And that's what the Democratic leadership is holding off. I mean, that's their job is to keep that suppressed. I mean, and they work for their donors. And even the people who were raising money from all of us and didn't have big donors, they're still going along with this. I mean, they are not challenging. You have to, you have to do a shout over the bow directly at Nancy Pelosi, directly at, uh, who is it, Jim Clyburn, directly at these people who are so corrupt. Jim Clyburn taking more pharmaceutical money than anybody in Congress. And, you know, and so, and he's big wig in South Carolina, which the Democratic Party insists on having South Carolina be a prominent, significant primary, even though in the general election, no Democrat ever wins statewide office. But there's a reason for it. It keeps people under control. So, you know, this is like, this is astounding to me. This is the new republic from yesterday. People care to read this thing. Talk about the fog of delusion. And, uh, you know, I, I think there are some people coming up the ranks. I mean, uh, my friend Junaid Ahmad, who is running against uh, Krishna, Raja Krishnamurti in the 8th. Um, and, you know, friend of the show, Rachel Ventura, is uh, running against quite a political machine. The political machine in Illinois has noticed her campaign, and it's really stunning. This is she's running locally, right? Rachel. She's running for state senate, and there it's a it's an empty post because I think the guy that was there had um, had uh, had retired, and um, and they just picked somebody who was just a part, who had never run for office to run against her, and they got he's got all the party endorsements. Not only that, but the Democratic the um, the head of the Senate, Cohen, had. Um, 
basically appointed him to fill that Senate seat. So now he'll be running as an incumbent. And this guy is terrible. I mean, it's just amazing how he's... So um, I have some amount of faith because she's been a real disruptor on the Will County Board. She's really made uh, she's really made a splash there. She's uh, confronted some big, powerful interests within the Democratic Party um, and pushed back on them. So... Uh, I guess, you know, we have to keep running this experiment until we get people who really say what they mean. For Janaid, I mean, Janaid has been wondering sometimes, why am I doing this? And I said, well, any sane person should be asking themselves that. And because you don't need this and you don't plan to have a long time to make this your lifetime career, you have a good chance of being a disruptor. Right. So this is the kind of people we have to push now. Um, but I have to say that um, I caught a little bit of, of your uh, discussion with Harriet Fraud. And um, I do say that, you know, we cannot rely on our elected officials right now. Um, we have to rely on what they call mutual aid not charity, but the idea, you know, and there are people in my community here that are working on that. Um, but uh, I, I wish that Peter, uh, Peter Collins had stayed on because I wanted to get what his impression of the 2012, um, the 2012 election. Now talk about uh, not relying on Democrats to fix the problem of voter suppression. Um, do you re- do you remember that election? Do you remember that was against Mitt Romney, who was assured by the party um, that he was uh, that he was going to be elected? And why were the Republicans so you know so confident about that? Well, they thought that they had rigged uh, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Florida. And, um, and no thanks to the Democratic Party. Groups organized by, who's it, Robert Fitzraspis, who I'm sure that Peter has interviewed. He was head of the voter integrity group that basically had lawsuits against the rules that had been passed in both Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. And even their state Supreme Courts had ruled that, yeah, this violated their constitution, so they had to go back. So those rules were not, those voter suppression uh, rules were not implemented for that. Uh, Florida just had a massive ground, uh, I mean, a, a ground organization where people were literally waiting in line for 12 hours or more to vote. And they had whole uh, community organizing groups around, particularly Dade and uh, Miami counties, to bring water and food for people waiting in line, babysit their kids and all this kind of stuff, which I guess now I find out is illegal. Right. In Florida, right. And the the best thing of all was, well, Ohio, because um, the Secretary of State, Ken Blackwell, had at the very last minute decided they were going to switch tabulation machines oh not the voting machines themselves they were going to switch the tabulation machines the code, you know they were going to just upgrade the code and bob Fitzraffis' group made an emergency appeal to the fbi and the fbi did an emergency injunction against ohio state 
So who is a who is Turd Blossom? Uh, Carl Rove. Carl Rove. Carl Rove, as you recall, was a um, was on Fox News that night, and I knew Obama was going to win. I was watching Fox News, and of course, Carl Rove was frantically you know, going on and on, but as the numbers were coming in from Ohio going, those aren't right. Those aren't right. <laughs> right. To the point where uh, I think Megan Kelly was sitting next to him going, okay, Carl, are these real numbers you have? Or are these just made up? Well, what Carl Rove did not know was the FBI was in the secretary of state's office that night in Ohio, making sure that nothing funny was going to, was, was happening. So uh, Obama won, and poor, uh, you know, poor Mitt Romney, who didn't even hadn't even written a concession speech, had went to his hotel room and wrote his speech. You know, better man than Hillary, as far as I'm concerned, at least in that sense. That's got to be tough. You think you're going to be president of the United States, and you lose, and you got to get up there, and you got to, you know, pull it together. So, right. Anyway, well. Um, Great job. Uh, Did you see the interview with Fred Hayes? I caught a little bit of that. I want to go. I want to go watch the whole thing. uh, Maybe you can explain the slingshot effect of how you have to whip around the moon to get on back. uh, Oh, yeah. 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 That's. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Gravity is the, the moon is constantly falling toward the Earth. It's just. It, because acceleration is, you know, both you know, linear acceleration and and angular acceleration, but it's always falling toward the Earth. But you have to get that right. I mean, it's amazing how many things they had to get right just by the seat of their pants, literally. I mean, like, you, what, like the slingshot, like has that ever been tested before? Um, I. I'm sure it's been tested so many times. Not, not in the field. <laughs> no. No, I think it's been tested by um, by the, by not, I don't know if Voyager, but definitely the probes that have gone out. Oh, yeah, out he did the, say that. He did say that. Yeah. Look, I think that's all right. But you get, you get a little nervous if it's like, you know, right. humans. So... Professor Marianne Cummings will talk to you hopefully next week. If I'm doing, I may be taking next week off. We'll see. I'm waiting to hear. Yeah, I know. Somebody wrote a song telling me to take off. Follow Professor Marianne Cummings on Twitter at Razor Girl. And we look forward to seeing you Thursday for the professors at Marianne. Thank you. Actually, actually, I'm not going to be here for the professor. I'm going to be uh, boarding a plane about that time. Oh, right, right. All right, so it will be the professors without Marianne. Yeah, yeah, that it will be. So you will be missed. Hope those pants without me being there. Okay, Too thank much. you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Joining us is Professor Mike Steinell. Go to mikesteinell.com. He is a jazz musician, a jazz professor. And you can buy Song and Dance, his latest CD. Saving Charlie Parker is his latest book. When does that come out? And you look like you're in Kansas. I'm at the lake house, David. You can see the campers behind me. Yes, the one. Blocking, blocking the campers, blocking the... How's my audio? Is it okay? You hear me? Yeah, it sounds great. And you've written a novel about the, the lake house. Yeah, yes, you can go on YouTube, uh, The Lake House, one word, Lake House, 
uh, part, start with part one. And uh, <clears throat> there's, I need to change the title. We talked about it. It's because there's like 12 lake houses and some of them are kind of creepy. So anyway, mine's not creepy. I don't, I don't think it's creepy. Well, you anyway, said the a, campers, you, you talked about the campers behind <laughs> you blocking your view the way you of the sit. lake. Yeah, because we could see the lake if they weren't there. So you can see it down there a little bit, but uh, they these this is all those are interlopers, David. You're like They're Barbara the, Streisand in Malibu. You yeah, want right. Your, exactly. You want your private I like, beach. I feel exactly like her. Do you maybe <laughs> you go out there and say to them, "Can you move? Do you mind not?" Actually, actually, my wife. One day, there was a guy that parked. He parked his airstream. He brought an airstream in and park it right in the view of the, because we can see the swimming dock, the swimming beach. Right. And uh, my wife wanted me to go over there and ask a man uh, to move his boat. And, you know. Boat or Airstream? Did I say Airstream? Yeah. Might have been an Airstream. Might have been a boat. I can't remember. An Airstream was parked there today. That's what made me think of that's a, That's a great country song. My my wife just asked me to tell a man to move his airstream. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> that's that would be a great country song. My David, wife. I had some surprises when I got here. We haven't been up since October. And, Any smells? Uh, what's that? Any smells? Okay, David, I'm going to tell you about this. <laughs> I walked. In and I was checking the place, you know, and uh, you you know that song. Uh, something, something died, died in, my garage. in my garage. I'm looking well, for. I need, it. To, I need to redo it. Something died in Nana's room, uh -oh. and it's not Nana. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good. That's a good thing. That's a good sign. <laughs> That's the good part. But anyway, so um, yeah, and I had to. So so that was last night, and I was tired, and I. I just kind of put it out of my mind and went and got went into town and got a pizza. There's a there's a there's a, a um, service station. Casey's service station makes great pizzas. If you're traveling through Kansas and Oklahoma and Iowa, Casey's has fantastic pizzas. Anyway, so best pizza in town. So I went and got a pizza and I came out. I just put it out of my mind. But anyway, by four in the morning. Here's the thing, I. I'd been listening. I drove up from from uh, Texas through Oklahoma, and I've got books on tape on, and I'm listening now to uh, Steinbeck, who is great, uh, fantastic. I'm listening to uh, Grapes of Wrath, which I kind of read at one point. And we had gotten to the part where um, Grandpa died. Uh, did you read that? Uh, do you know the book? Year, uh, yeah, years ago. Okay, Grandpa. in the... They're, they finally leave Oklahoma to go to California where you can pick an orange right off a tree and grapes. You could just, and they run down your mouth, the juice. That's what I'm going to do. The only thing I don't like about Steinbeck is that when he describes everything, it's beautiful. But his dialogue, I think he did a bad turn for people in Oklahoma. I don't think they ever talked that poorly. But anyway, so anyway, I'm listening as almost weeping at this, this long scene of grandpa having a stroke. He didn't want to go. They got him drunk so he could, they threw him on the, on the top of this, this truck with mattresses and 12 people were in this truck. And, and the first night out, 
they run across some people that are having some car trouble and they camp with them. And then grandpa has a stroke in their tent on the lady's quilt. That's rude. And, That's rude. And Ma, Ma says, I'm afraid he's ruined your quilt. I'll make it right. I'll give you one of our quilts. And then she starts stitching him up in the quilt. And she says, you know, we had a, had my mom died on a mattress and the bar, the, the, the dog barked at that mattress until we threw it out. So in my mind, I'm going like, I got to, th- there's something dead in there and I'm going to have to clean that whole place out to right. find it. I did. There was three mice and one was in the bed. One was in the bed. So, um, after the grapes of rat, so today I, I, uh, called the guy and they're taking all the mattresses to the dump tomorrow, getting new mattresses and I've cleaned it up. But see that, you know, that, I don't know if I hadn't re- heard, read that story or heard that story on the uh, grapes of wrath, maybe I wouldn't be so rash, but those mattresses had to go. And I knew it. I was laid there at four thirty-five in the morning. I've got, you got to get up. You got to go in there. You got to find what's dead. You got to peel that stuff out. You know, oh, it was horrible. Death is a bad smell, Dave. It's a bad smell. Yes, it is. I, when I was living in New York, I smelled it once. Mm. This happened. Everybody who lives in New York, it's, there's no other smell. I walked, I was visiting a friend and I walked into his apartment, the building, the lobby. And I went, well, that's a dead body. That's a dead body. No doubt about it. I don't know. Never smelled it before. That is a body that has been left for about a week in a, a studio part. Ooh, anyway, let's yeah. change the subject. Yeah. Uh, you look great, by the way. Hey, I got a bone to pick. Okay. Okay. I love this. The stump, the humps. I love the stump. By the way, shows have been fantastic. Yeah. I didn't do last week, but I listened to everything. God, do I should have made a list of all the great people you had. The shows have been and, great. Yeah, you had Fred, Fred Hayes. Did you yeah. hear that? Oh, all of it. I played him traveling light. I know. I love his demeanor. Man, that is a guy. If you were going to have a flat tire or you, or any problem in your life, who would you want to have? Fred Hayes. Fred Hayes. Fred he was Hayes. so calm. Yeah. Just describing, you know, like he's describing the craters on the moon. Yeah. And uh, how was that, that was how cool was that, that he had never, yeah, seen, never the, seen it. That was like a, I'm doing this, I'm going, this is like a historic moment. Like, this is like, I've stumbled into like a great moment. But he saw it first. (laughs) I know, but for him to recreate, all the people who've interviewed him over the years. No one showed him that. No, nobody has shown him that. And for him to give us, and and he identified all the legs. Yeah. Legs, yeah. Wow. The the dang rushers got up there named all that crap. yeah yeah he's <laughs> he a superman but he's like a marvel superhero he really is because how he, old is he think he's he was 30 he, and 67 he's in his 80s mid to late 80s looked good looks great and yeah and these these astronauts were physical and intellectual specimens they they were studying math and geology and biology yeah. and physics and they were famously doing math equations while the, I think it was the Odyssey was dying. I mean, it, it's just, anyway, are you an Apollo nut? 
I love it. I'm not as nutty as it on. I, I did because of you and your show and playing those clips. I have listened to a lot of the actual transmission and it's pretty fascinating. There's a lot of dead. There's a lot of dead air though, too. You know, it's calming though. Yeah. I, you know, I, I just can't imagine, you know, this isn't, this is somewhat related. One of the reasons I came up here is my mother-in-law, Nadine, who is 99 and a half. She's getting there to be a hundred in October. Um, she, her first husband was um, lost at sea in 1943. During World he, War II? He was a World War II pilot in the Solomons. And his plane had trouble. He left his group to go back to the, 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 um, the air base on the island. And that's the last they, they heard of him. So he's declared dead in 1946. But anyway. I think a lot of married men... Got themselves declared dead during World War II. Maybe. I don't know. That thought occurred to me. He might still be out there. Oh, yeah. No, he wouldn't have done that. He was too. They, they were they were so in love. They got married in a. He enlisted, did his training and then became a lieutenant. And then she went out there and got married. And she has a book. They went and heard the Woody Herman band and the Stan Kenton band. And they ate everything in L.A. like in 1940. It, during the war years, they did. Right. She has napkins from um, what was probably uh, Ciro's. Uh, yeah. Well, um, you know those the, those things you've heard about for years, you know. And she kept right. everything. And um, but anyway, so she's she's had three husbands. But anyway, they, they've never done a marker for him, you know, because there's no body. So finally, Beverly and her brothers said, "We're going to figure this out." So you have to go through the Veterans Administration. And they have they produce a marker that says "lost at sea." So it, it was um, a day of going into to the cemetery over here and and getting that okay and going to the monument place and and getting a, a, a stone to put this thing on. It was it was really really pretty neat. And and then we're going to have the American Legion come and they'll shoot off their they'll do a, like a twenty one gun salute. But anyway, but I didn't tell you my beef. Oh, you have I a didn't beef. Tell you my beef. I was telling my beef. So you do stump the humps. I'm th I'm thinking you're doing this on purpose and without fail. Dan can read that those options three times, and when it comes to your turn, uh, would you read them again? Yeah. I so noticed. What do that. you have the attention span of a goldfish or what? Well, that and <laughs> yes, I find or is that a bit. That's a bit. No, I, while we're doing, I'm multitasking. You're right. I'm multitasking. I'm checking on things, and I'm so I take a little break while I'm doing stump the hump because I don't have to. In order to do this, what I love about doing the show is it is complete focus. I, I can't. I'm. I'm. Yeah, you got to be focused. Yeah, and, and sure. for me, that's, you know, it's a vacation from life, so I love it. But occasionally, I have to take care of other things, so I, I can lay back a little and, you know, snipe at Dan and the person I'm competing against. So, all right, that's David, a fair I, I beef. Think, David, I think I smell. Failure? You smell? Is my failure already reaching Kansas? Might be marijuana. Somebody 
somebody's got a little weed going over there, I think. Yeah. Hey, uh, is it legal I, I in Kansas? You, no, I don't think. Well, I don't think so. No, I got, you know, I bought the, I went and got four, four weeks of the new, of the paper so we could do like a police yeah, blotter. Well, yeah. Stuff. What's happening. So you're going to be in Kansas for a month. No, I'm going back tomorrow. Probably. Well, what's happening? What's happening okay. in Kansas? I love this headline. This is from the Marion County record, which was my wife's family's paper for right a hundred years. You know, um, her great grandfather or great, great grandfather started it. And, um, Nadine sold it when she moved to Texas and married her third husband in 2001. Oh, I love it. But anyway, this, you love this headline carpooler shot parked OD felon jailed. Now there's a lot going on in that yeah. headline. The carpooler, carpooler shot, shot parked semicolon parked OD felon parked OD felon jailed. So he was a felon who had OD'd and he's in jail. Oh. So here are the details. This is kind of creepy. This just happened right out here on the highway. A passenger in an SUV headed from Emporia, which is that way, to work in McPherson, which is that way, was shot Friday morning as a car he was riding in passed a car, apparently broken down on the side of, the, of K, K-150. A 2015 Nats, Nissan Murano, it's dark out here, uh, with four people carpooling to work past a black Ford Explorer, it's a black car, no wonder, on the side of the road and heard loud bangs. A 33-year-old Emporia man seated in the right rear passenger seat in the Murano was shot in the hip. Uh, I would say he was shot in the butt. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then the shooting victim was taken to Newman Regional Hospital in Emporia, way back there, like 45 minutes away. Hope he wasn't losing too much blood. Deputies and troopers found no one in the Explorer. After a search, they found a 38-year-old male suspect from Milford, Kansas, lying unconscious Milf? face down. Milford. That's a town. A lot lying of pretty married women, right? What's that? A lot of pretty married moms in Milford. Milf. Oh, I got it. Just okay. don't. All right. All right. Okay, good. Bada beam. Um, Not even. He was face down in the creek. They found a gun in the creek also. So they, they revived him using nalox, uh, naloxone, naloxone, which is a OD drug. Right. God, there's a lot of there's a lot in the paper about um, methamphetamine. I asked the, the lady at the paper today. I said, you know, when I was growing up in this town. Did you go? Do you go visit the newsroom? Yeah, I, I I went and bought these papers there today. At the at the at the where Mary they County Record, of course. Yeah, you go to the publisher. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so um, wow. I said, you know, is it my imagination? I mean, when I was growing up, the paper was full of like what what this church did a social, and somebody had a birthday, and blah blah blah. You know. She said, well, yeah, was, you know, I said, there's a lot more crime. Well, she said, well, you know, there is the murder. <laughs> the murder. <laughs> there was a murder. I love this one. I got to Let me see if I can find this other one here. Um, uh, okay. 
farmer faces $75,000 lawsuit because driver hits his cow. A now, driver hit the cow? Hit the driver, a Fort Riley man who was driving without a license on August 2020, is now suing farmer who, whose cow he hit. And I know the farmer, it's Greg Bauer, is a really great guy. He was, he was salutatorian of our class. And uh, he came back and he became a, a, a farmer and a banker. And uh, he's retired now. But this guy came by and, and hit his cow and killed his cow. Now he's, and he didn't have a license and all this. Now he's suing the, the lawsuit, he's suing the lawsuit. And this made me think of something that happened in my life. Can I tell you about this? Hang on when you, uh, there's a, he could have avoided it had he had a steering wheel. <laughs> That's good, David. You're always, but what, what is, is steer? working. Is steer, steer is a male, is, are those bull? What is steer? Uh, it's a, it's a, a bull without his uh, right. equipment. So the he's joke been, doesn't he's work. Been, he's been polled. That's the polite term. He's been pulled. He's been castrated. Pulled. Right. He hit a cow. It's too bad there wasn't a bull in the middle of the road because the guy had a steering wheel. That's maybe a, a worse. That's, ver- That's, That's almost a joke. If you know, but you know, for this is kind of what happened to me. Not. It was a while back. We had a cat. We had a cat, and the cat got out, and I, I opened the door. The cat gets out, runs into the street got hit by a car, killed right immediately. And I'm upset and I go out and the lady gets out of the car and she starts railing at me. She starts almost violently, you know, why'd you let your cat out? You you know, and, and I'll go like, Hey man, this is, this is our cat. You know, this is, this is when I, this is my daughter still live in the house. My, this is my cat. Right. You know, you just killed my cat. <laughs> and somebody in the neighborhood called, there was so much noise from this lady and, and the commotion. They called the police and a guy, a police officer showed up. And, and then she goes, okay, okay, okay. And she gets out her wallet. And she gives me, <laughs> she gives me a hundred dollars. And I'm kind of, and the cops standing there <laughs> and I'm kind of going like, what should I do? And I take the money. Good. And he turns around and gives me a ticket. For what? Selling pussy in the street. I can't you, believe you bit. I can't you, believe you bastard. Bit. You <laughs> bastard. <laughs> oh, that's great. That is so great. That is so great. I kind of kept it straight. I kind of yes, made you. Yes, you did. You had me. You did. That, you, you. Yep. You did it. That is so great. Real Dan. Yeah, that is yeah. so great. That is so great. Wow. <laughs> that, that is such a... <laughs> Hey, I sent you the Mark Bresen song. I thought, you know, I was You know what? I I can't play it because my system cra- My system is crashing. I need 
a new computer. Really? I need a new computer. Well, you played the other songs today. I know, but then it crashed. Uh, oh, I really? Can, I can try it. It was, let me try it, but I don't think it's going to work. So let's. Well, that's fine. I have no, 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 let's try it. Okay. But, but I'm, it may end the show. So, Uh-oh. but that's okay. And worst, worst things have happened. I can't imagine, but let's see. I want to tell you, I got one more, I got one more funny, funny headline. Excuse me. Oh, where is it? Shoot. Oh, dang it. I don't have it. Oh, here we go. Political beef turns pugilistic. You like that? Yeah. Okay. So a Burns man, Burns is the town up the road. And a city employee who was mowing got into a fight Tuesday. But that is where the two sides of the story part ways. According to Sheriff Jeff Sawyer, Billy Castle, Castleberry, Billy Castleberry, that's a good name for a novel, had a beef against the city of Burns. And when he spotted a city employee mowing, he stopped, grabbed the employee and pulled him off the mower. They ended up on the ground fighting, Sawyer said. Sawyer said. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's what, you know, <laughs> this guy's mowing. <laughs> He's just minding his own business, mowing the lawn, and somebody comes and y- yanks him off his mower. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. Where we go here? All right. Okay. Um, Well, where the hell is it? Hang on a second. Yeah, it says page three. Page three. Well, I don't see it. But there's a better one there. More finger pointing than theft in a candy store caper. Hillsborough police were investigating the burglary Saturday evening at the high school ballpark concession stand. Assistant Chief Randy Brazil said officers had recovered 90% of the candy pilfered by the juvenile burglars. Four suspects ranging in ages from 11 to 14 were were blaming each other for the burglary (laughs) and the theft of another. Brazil said apparently another was involved. One story is that the group did it, and we talked to two other people who uh, did it as a... It's dark here, I'm sorry. They're telling it that two others did it. A caller who tipped the police... I love this. They try to make the caller not, not... And then a caller tipped the police that two of her children... <laughs> might have been involved. Anyway, I can't find the rest of that that uh, pugilistic uh, political thing. But um, well, I anyway. thought I would play "Who's Afraid of Catherine Lou." Oh, if you could play that, yeah. To crash your bu- Why is that different than well, playing? Well, I, I have I have a software Video. program. No, I have a software program on my computer. And then I have my soundboard, but I like, anyway, it's nobody's, let, let me play Who's Afraid of Catherine Lou, which I didn't play okay. for her when she was on, but I love this song. 
is a jazz trumpeter, composer, educator, member of the University of North Texas North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 to 2019. He's the author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary, and his latest is Running the Changes. His latest 
release of music is Song and Dance, the Mike Steinell Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckerd. You can get that on Origin Records. Go to MikeSteinell.com. His book, Saving Charlie Parker, when is that coming out, Professor? Well, I have a copy. They sent me my author's copy. Wow. So it's done. And then they said 14 days after that, it goes on their website. And a couple weeks after that, it'll be. But you can mark down the week of June 8th. I'm sorry, the week of August 8th. Hey, we're going to do a book signing concert at the wine bar. I'm thinking, I'm trying to talk the guy into doing it on Monday, August 8th. And then we will do our thing. In and honor of Nixon's resignation. That will be, is it August Perfect. 8th? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe and then, you and, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Then at nine, my time, 10, your time, we can go on the show and you could, I can introduce you to my band. Yeah. And, and we could do a segment from the, from the wine bar. Oh, that would be heaven. I remember so you did it last. count on that? Whatever you want. Yeah, so that's going to be, and by that time I'll have the CD. I mixed the CD. Uh, we finished up mixing the CD on Friday, and that'll come out on uh, Rosewood Audio. And then the audio book will be done by then, too. So everything, I want everything come, coming out together. But I think actually people can start to order the book, I would think, think um, by next Monday. I think that you can order it on Dorrance's Maybe we should do like a you and Ethan, maybe somebody like a book thing that we do together on a Saturday night to discuss. I am so jealous of Ethan. You know what he did? He wrote a book and he didn't tell anybody about it until it was done. And I, I, I'm, I can't, I, I'm a, I'm such a, you know, I kind of get, I just kind of blab about stuff, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad the book's actually coming out because there's, other stuff that I said, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And right. it doesn't happen. And then you look like an idiot. Well, you are an inspiration because you not only tell us what you're going to do, you do it. You. Well, so far. We'll Jerry, Jerry Stahl is like that. Jerry Stahl. Wow, he was great. That's another one you had on. Yeah. He was fantastic. I'm reading I Fatty, his <laughs> novel about Fatty Arbuckle. That's fantastic. That's you know, that happened before. I, I just remember that name. Yeah. And my folks would go, oh, Fatty Arbuckle. You know, it was like a, a scandal. Go and by I, what was going on. He, but. Jerry Stahl is such a great novelist. The, it just, the words jump off the page, and it's just written for people who love comedy. It, there's a reason Ben Stiller is going to be at the 92nd Y helping to sell the book. I mean, you read Mark Marin hired him to write on Marin. I mean, Jerry Stahl, the, the, the writing just pops and permanent midnight is what he's known for along with other books. I fatty is, I think he was in can. I think it takes place in Kansas early on. I think, I, I think fatty Arbuckle was from Kansas? I think. Buster Keaton was. Yeah, they were oh. close friends. Fatty and... And, and maybe, yeah. maybe they were, there is a connection. Well, I need to read that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that. I, Fatty. Yeah. Okay. I have to tell you something before you go. Yes, sir. I couldn't sleep last night because we were having Fred Hayes on the show. <laughs> I, I was so excited 
nervous and afraid it wasn't going to happen. I was like a 13-year-old <laughs> for the past two days. That, that was well, exciting. You, you met your hero, and he didn't disappoint you. No, he did not. No, he did not. I, I was so impressed. You know what I loved about it? He's from Oklahoma. Yeah. You know? I mean, that. say what you want about this part of the country, but there's a certain strength that these people. I love this. I love coming up here. Love going through Oklahoma. Uh, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a uh, always always unique. It was so weird driving through Oklahoma and and listening to them driving through Oklahoma on Route 66, going through these towns that I've been to. You know, and and going through the Panhandle of Texas and stuff. Whoa. Yeah, rough rough trip going to California. Oh, with oh grapes of wrath. Grapes of wrath. Yeah. yeah. I love you, buddy. Thank you for the music. I love you, too. Great job. I'll uh, I'll be back in Texas next week. I'll have a song next week. You know, I was going to rewrite. I was going to punch up uh, uh, I Killed an Organ Grinder. But everything that had gone on that week, I mean, the next day after I did that was the shooting. And I thought, no, I'm not going to write. I just didn't want to write a song about about killing people, you know? Yeah, I I agree. I agree. Yeah. So I'm going to write a song about uh, cleaning up my sh- dead mouse. My dead, dead mouse. Nieces. Yeah. <laughs> Great. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Love you. I love Bye-bye. you too. Thank you. I am wiped out. I really am. Uh, I had no sleep. Having, uh, I was nervous. So I'm going to end the show quarter to 11. And there's talk of taking next week off. So first off, I will thank the following people on Thursday's show. But we had some super chats. Todd from Tucson, thank you. Laura Martin, thank you. I think she comes to us from Great Britain. Lots of love to all from Chelsea Smith. Thank you, Chelsea. Donald James, since David won't set up a YouTube membership, I guess I'll donate this way. Thank you. Thank you, Donald James. And those are our super chats for today. I'll read them again uh, on uh, Thursday's show. I'm going to wrap it up. I am beat. We're going to take probably, I'm waiting to hear, we're we're probably going to take next week off. Uh, Well, thank you, Fred Hayes and Bill Moore. I want them to come back. And one of the ways to get Fred Hayes to come back along with Bill Moore, is to buy their new book, Never Panic Early. Please go to smithsonianbooks.com, buy Never Panic Early, or wherever fine books are sold. Howie Klein, read them over at Down With Tyranny. Thank you, Howie. And David Cobb, follow him on Twitter at David K. Cobb. Harriet Fraud, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Go to HarrietFraud.com and listen to her podcast, Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. Peter B. Collins, go to PeterBCollins.com to listen to his interview with Greg Pallast, which got deplatformed by YouTube. Marianne Cummings, Professor Marianne Cummings, follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl, that's girl spelled G-R-R-L, and Professor Mike Steinel. For more information, 
go to mikesteinel.com. Thank you to everybody in our Zoom room who attended our show today, our virtual studio audience. Thank you for asking questions. I appreciate that. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And we have a YouTube channel. If you would like to watch the show as we're putting it together, we live stream Monday night and Thursday night. You can watch it on YouTube. And those of you who are watching on YouTube who want to join the virtual studio audience, go to my website. It shows you how to get into our Zoom room so you can participate in the conversation. This show is put together and produced by Dan Frankenberger, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Sarah Bush, Andy Brown, Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman, and Professor Jonathan Bick. And I hope I didn't leave anybody out, but thank you to them. When people tell me the show's getting better and better, that's why, because of Professor Jonathan Bick, Sarah Bush, Andy Brown, The Invisible Ninja, Dan Frankenberger, Hannah Feldman, Joe in Norway. I mixed the names up to see if I can remember. It's a little test of my cognitive abilities. Sign up for our newsletter. We have a great newsletter that comes out every Friday. The newsletter includes an invitation to that night's office hours, and it's a recap of the week of our shows. And occasionally I'll send out something in the middle of the week if something strikes me. Once again, this was a big show for me. Fred Hayes from Apollo 13. Thank you. What a great gift that was to me. I'm David Feldman and John Hayes, who went, you know, I have to say a lot of a lot of people when they lose big the way John lost on Stump the Humps, they uh, they cower and they act I, I thought he took defeat very well, John Hayes. Uh, I'm David Feldman. What, what should we leave here? Okay, here we go. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. The day there was a knock at the door, it was the FBI. I said, What you here for? We heard about your song, we think it's seditious. I said, Can we talk later? I'm doing the dishes. I said, What's the problem? What's the fuss? They said, We're the FBI, don't you mess with us. We can lock you up, we can put you away, we can make it so you never see the light of day. I said, Tell me, maybe do we? Feldman made me do it Feldman made me do it And that's all there is to it text this morning from a former student it said we heard you on the show you were not prudent you said the effort professor is that true we really expected much better from you i said Felma made me do it Felma made me do it Felma made me do it and that's all there is to it Amazon 
called it was customer service. They said we need to cut it out. You're beginning to hurt us. You made fun of our boss. You better stop now. If you don't, he'll ship you off to Mindanao. I said, Thelma, maybe do it. Thelma, maybe do it. Feldman made me do it, and that's all there is to it. Feldman made me do it. I got a letter from the lawyer from No Evil Foods. It said we don't like your song or your attitude. It's time now, Professor, to cease and desist. The folks I represent are really pissed. I said, Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. And that's all there is to it. Me, what me, what me, make me feel good. Yes, you made me do it.